everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 441. I'm your host, Chris Zoner. Joined, as always, when comes David Bix and Span. And Bix, we have a, a fun week this week to talk about. Uh, interesting stuff going on in this show. And, yeah, I mean, uh, it kind of ties into our last Patreon show, as we talked about uh, the Von Eriks and... You know, the last days of Carrie and stuff like that. So we have uh, Carrie's final tape match during this show, which we'll talk about later on. But, uh, but yeah, the story this week is uh, the weather for us as we talk about this. I'm right now to record this. It's 60 degrees here in Georgia, although we're about to get our big cold spell. And uh, you're up there and... In New York, and uh, what was your, what were you saying that the temperature was up there? I think it's like right now as we record this on Monday afternoon, evening ish. It's uh, I think it's twenty eight degrees. Feels like twenty two. Yeah, so we got that coming. Yes, but our guest, uh, our guest well, this I was week, going to say too, our order. friends in the Midwest had it the worst the, this, oh, the last yeah. few days. I mean, all the stories of people going to and from SmackDown and indie shows and. Were the, Cheese, were the Kansas City Chiefs played a playoff game in uh, negative six degree temperatures with a wind chill of negative 27. <laughs> and as recorded this now, Buffalo and Pittsburgh are playing in Buffalo. And uh, they had snowmageddon up there. And the snow is all over the, the seats. And basically, they're telling the fans there's no assigned seating. First come, first serve. <laughs> Which is just amazing to think about in an NFL game that they're they're doing that. So, uh, yeah, it's been crazy. And our guest this week uh, also has had a, a, a nice little bout with the, the cold weather lately, being uh, where he's at in New Hampshire. But we are joined by our dear friend, one of the, uh, the all-time greats in the internet wrestling community, John McAdam. John, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you, Mr. Zellner. I really appreciate it up here in New Hampshire. Uh, we actually had a fairly uh, reasonable winter so far, and it's January 15th, so we're just about halfway home. Yeah. When you say 18 inches of snow you just had recently, though? Uh, a week ago, we had 18 inches of snow, and by the middle of the week, it was mostly all gone. We had a hot – not a hot day, a warm day, like 50 degrees with a lot of rain, and it all went bye-bye, so that's good. Yeah. Yeah, our friend Robert O'Connor, who lives in Calgary, um, I think I saw the other day that it was like a the, – the temperature was negative 27 with a wind chill and a negative 40, something like that. Yeah, that's uh, – <laughs> That's got to be fun to deal with. but And Calgary's crazy. They get tornadoes in Calgary on top of all that. <laughs> I know, right? It's insane. Totally insane. That's all one right, well, good thing weather-wise about living up here. We don't get tornadoes. We don't get hurricanes. We just have to put up with a lot of cold and snow. We get tornadoes no earthquakes. Yeah, we get tornadoes and, hur- and hurricanes here. Coming, you know, not necessarily where I live, but in G- Georgia has to deal with that, though. So, especially tornadoes. So, yeah. Eh, I mean, again, it's where you live, you know, it's, uh, yeah. It's type of weather you get. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to the wrestling, shall we? As we're going to go back 31 years now, hard to believe. Yeah. Jam- Jam- oh, 31 17, years. 24. So that's, well, oh, what? 1983? 1993. <laughs> I feel old. January 17th to the 23rd, 1993. Yes. I was, uh, Jesus. I was in the eighth grade. <laughs> when this went, went during this year. Bix, you were what? Fifth, uh, fifth I mean, grade? At this point, no, not yet. 
And at this point, so it's beginning in 93, so I would have just turned eight. So I'm probably in like third, second, third grade. John, uh, <laughs> late 20s. You've been you've already promoted promoted your own wrestling promotion. Yeah, really. That's one way to look at it. <laughs> so yeah, you got us beat. But anyway, let's start with the World Wrestling Federation now. And uh, the latest on Ric Flair is that he's still having this on contract World Championship Wrestling. Flair was on the road this weekend, finishing up his commitments with WWF, and a new contract was supposed to be waiting for him when he returned home. Well, it's expected the deal to be consummated and Flair to start on the February 21st preview show in Asheville, North Carolina. It is not a done deal, at least as a press time. Even Jim Ross at WCW were commenting on the reports of the deal on 900 numbers said deals have been known to fall apart at the last minute. Flair's day at departure was explained within the storyline when on January 18th, he lost a loser leave town match with Mr. Perfect at the Manhattan Center for the January 25th airing of Monday Night Raw which can't air live because WF will be taping television in San Jose, California that night. The matches had been excellent, lasting about 20 minutes, and perfect juiced. The Blades seemed to be back in use minimally in both WCW and WF, with perfect winning with a perfect plex. Titan pulled the coup out with the way they handled this. First off, they established Monday Night Raw as a television show with the angle on the 18th and the blow-off of a major feud on television the next week. Theoretically, the January 25th show should draw a big clash light rating, probably in excess of a 3.0. Some momentum from that rating and interest garnered in the show itself should carry over for several weeks. In addition, it won't look as though Flair jumped from WF to WCW to the casual fan. It will look as though as Flair lost his job with WF and had no choice but to return to WCW, which established again as a second-rate circuit. They didn't know whether or not Flair had the choice in whether to handle this, his departure like this or his release was based on him doing this on the way out. It but was. This, <laughs> yes. But this particular clean job in a match that would be viewed by millions rather than just by just a few thousand hardcores in a few cities, many of whom don't take wins and losses seriously, will have an effect on Flair's image upon his return. While Flair's first interview in WCW, and this is dependent upon him going there, may erase much of the stigma of the loss to a degree. The clean loss to Perfect in a match that forced him to leave, rather than him deciding to seek more lucrative pastures in the fans' eyes, will establish him in some eyes as damaged goods for his return. Give Flair credit, because in a scenario that wasn't designed to get him over, he put on his typical performance. Okay. I, I want to start by asking John something. So, something that's come up on here a few times, I think both we covered the week where it was discussed originally, and then... Also on the Patreon show we did about Flair leaving WWF for WCW. There was a week in the Observer the prior summer. And this is one of the first Observers I ever read. Because it's when I got my little trial subscription. Um, where I was so, as a small child, I was so thrown by the tiny print that my dad took them to work and enlarged them on the copier for me. That's great. Um... There's this, like, whole thing of, like, it's the week that uh, George Arena died. So it's, like, all these rumors that have been going around and been debunked. And then, oh, yeah, and by the way, Gorgeous George, the original, passed away last week. And one of them was that WWF and WCW were arranging a trade of Luger and Flair to get them out of their respective contracts. And... They can't do that. (laughs) Okay, so here's the thing. It's dismissed at the time... But based on the timing of how things work out later, you kind of wonder. So, like, do you remember hearing any of that at the time? No. 
Um, I mean, you know, you can't uh, Walmart and uh, Rite Aid or whatever can't trade employees. Well, the same thing. Official trade, just a deal between the two companies where Luger would get his. They would get their each get their relative releases as an agreement between the two companies. You have something. No, I as a matter of fact, Luger didn't Luger leave in the middle of eighty of ninety two. Well, no, he was still unable to wrestle at first. Right, he was doing the, the bodybuilding thing. deal. Right, so that that's why I was curious if you had heard that at the time. But no, I I had never heard that. Um, I I don't believe it to be true. Uh, Luger, from what I want, from what I heard, you know, he had a certain amount of of dates left on his contract that expired in nineteen uh, the end of ninety two. I want to say, and he you know surprised the company. He was like, hey, you know, I only have so many dates left, and that's all I'm going to do. And you know, he basically took the rest of ninety two off, and he was you know everyone knew he was going to the WWF. Now, well, I'm reading Pride. I forget. Did he know that it, he was going to WBF? I can't remember. Well, I guess because he gave him the restricted release, or was it that WWF put him in WBF because they knew about to get around the restricted release? They they did it to get around the fact that Luger was still under contract to WCW. My understanding is that Luger had a contract where he had to wrestle a certain amount of dates, and then and then he would get paid extra for wrestling extra dates. Right, then the time came max dates. Yeah. Right. Then he suddenly announced when he had like, you know, I want to say five dates left, like, hey, that's it. I'm doing my five dates and I'm going home. And so they took the the title off of him in spring 1992. And that was it. That was the last he wrestled in WCW until 1995. Right. So anyway, back to Flair. Chris, I'll go back to you then. So, OK. So, John, I mean, the thing about Dave talking about here is Flair, like losing face and going out of WF like this, I can get what Dave's saying and where he's coming from, but the fact that Flair's going back to WCW, it didn't matter because Flair's coming back home. And I think, too, it didn't matter because, look, the average fan really, especially, you know, by the, by the time it's 1993, they're not going to take what they see at face value that Ric Flair really lost his job in the WWF and, you know, as if it was a shoot. So I don't think it mattered at all. But one thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, they said, well, Rick hasn't officially signed with WCW yet, but the two sides from what I understand had come to terms and he was definitely coming in. Like when I, when I first read this, when you sent it to me, I was a little bit taken aback because, you know, we all knew Flair was going to WCW. And while there he might have not have put his uh, pen to paper, I mean, they had a deal in place. He was coming back. Well, Bill Watts had spent, you know, a good part of late 92 showing old Ric Flair matches on the Sunday main event show out of nowhere. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. And- Flair, you know, I, I, I have never talked to Ric Flair about this, but I've talked to someone who talked to Ric Flair about this. Rick knew what was up, that his run at the top of the WWF was over and he was going to move down the card. And he just didn't want that. He I was going to say he knew 
he thought at the time that, you know, this was the twilight of his career and he didn't want to spend it in the middle of the, of, of the card in a tag team in the WWF. He wanted to have one last big run. Of course, the big run lasted until what, 2008? <laughs> yes. You yeah. know, I, I've told the story before in 1995. I had an unexpected day off from work and WCW was having a show in Hartford. And I was like, let's go see Ric Flair one last time. And little <laughs> did I realize he'd be he'd still be around 13 years later. <laughs> yeah. Um, and before we move on, get your thoughts on Flair in the WF, to, you know, total. Do you think that Flair's WF run, you know, hurt his career in any way? Or you think that it it made it where he would become a bigger name to more people around the country? I thought his WWF run was phenomenal. Let me ask both of you guys something. Have you ever seen the show on Amazon, The Man in the the, the Man in the High Castle? No, I haven't seen it, but I know of it. Okay. It, the show is an alternative universe where Japan and Germany won World War II, mm-hmm. yeah. and they have a film of what could have been if America won World War II. This is like if we had a universe – if we lived in a universe where Ric Flair never went to the WWF, remained getting more and more stale in WCW, and then we have this film of this wonderful alternative universe where Ric Flair has a run in the WWF and actually wins the title and does everything he did. It it, it was a phenomenal run, and it revitalized Flair. Ten on a scale of one to ten. It it definitely, you know, put him mentally in a better mindset from when he was in WCW, dealing, dealing with Jim Hurd. Absolutely. Oh, and not just Jim Hurd. I mean, I remember uh, late 1990, the somewhat at the time absurd rumor that Dusty Rhodes was coming back to WCW <laughs> as Booker. And you first oh, you hear this when you're like, Barry Windham mysteriously started running the locker room and giving out finishes. And somehow no one had any idea what this meant. <laughs> I had heard that, and I, I wasn't sure how seriously to take that, take it. But I mean, it was unthinkable that Dusty was coming back, and it went from unthinkable to yeah, that's happening in January. And I think you know, and my immediate response was, okay, how long is Rick going to last with Dusty back? And the answer was not long. Yeah, yeah. I'm so much better on other shows than I am my own. I really am. I didn't come up with a man in the high castle thing on my own show. That's how it goes sometimes. <laughs> you well, you don't have relax to relax and be myself. If I ruin your show, who cares? You don't, <laughs> you don't have to stick to wrestling. There you go. Hence the man in the high castle reference. All right. Well, let's go to a completely different part of the spectrum and do it for the time. Hey, one so, other thing I want to talk about really quick. This was the, the beginning of Raw. Uh, it replaced uh, primetime wrestling, which was just a recap show anyway. And yeah. I'm not always right. But when I first saw Raw, when I first heard about it and then saw it, I'm like, this is going to change everything if they can get the ratings. If they can keep up the ratings, this show is going to change everything. And it did. Not the way I thought it would, but I mean, you know, pro wrestling on on prime time on a on a big time cable network was going to change the world. Live, 
live and, and basically booked like a Memphis style show. And you know what though? The ratings really didn't pick up consistently until after the show got a lot worse. Yes, there was a time when there was uh talk of Raw being moved from nine o'clock on Mondays to eleven o'clock on Mondays, and that might have killed the WWF, but that didn't happen. Yeah, they lucked out in that one, that's for sure. Now, they did have some negative mainstream press during our week regarding the Doink Crush angle in at least two newspapers. The New York Daily News, in a column by TV writer Bob Raceman, wrote, On the flip side of credibility, you had the kind of sleaze only the World Wrestling Federation is capable of generating. The toilet bowl Vince Sir Swill McMahon operates has no bottom. On Saturday's show, seen on Channel 5, a character, Doink the Clown, attacked wrestler Crush from behind with a phony plaster cast. With paramedics placing a spine board under Crush's back, McMahon gushed about a possibility of Crush injuring his neck and vertebrae. Considering the seriousness of the recent injuries suffered by Dennis Bird, who was a New York Jet who got paralyzed during the game in the 92 season, the script McMahon was working from could have been written only by an insensitive lowlife concerned only with exploiting the misery of others and all in place to entertain your children. Okay, when you now, mentioned this last week, I couldn't figure out why there was the outrage but the dennis bird thing and the timing explains a lot well, well this is what dave comes in as a wrestling angle i've seen far worse but if you actually think about the bird injury on november 30th the prominence of it in the news in new york and the fact the angle was shot on december 14th well it doesn't say anything about what <laughs> deaths will be used that hasn't already been made clear in the past yeah john the dennis bird i mean because mike utley was the the year previous from detroit lions and then dennis bird has his injury you know in new york on november 30th and then you're taping this angle two weeks later with doink and crush airing a month after that i can see where people in new york especially the new york media would probably would probably look at this as you know being in bad taste. Yeah, I you know it was kind of the, the angle was kind of hardcore by WWF standards. Um, but I think you're you're really trying too hard to you know, have one plus one equal three when you're equating the Dennis Bird injury to that. Maybe, you know, maybe the Bird injury. Uh, was kind of the the gave them the idea to do an angle like that, which wouldn't be good. But I mean, wrestling angles happen all the time, and uh, I, to be honest, I, I don't think it, it might have been inspired by Bird. But to be honest, I, I can't see someone really getting offended by this. You know, um, Chris, I saw an, an interview with Dennis Bird like maybe six months after after he had his injury. And I don't know what was going on with this guy, but they did such an extreme close-up of his face. Like, you saw nothing but his face. You didn't see his hair. You didn't see his ears. So I don't know what was going on with the guy, but, you know, he was still very much not in not good physically. Yeah. And I don't remember them pushing hard the idea, though, that, like, Chris was paralyzed, though. No, they didn't. And we're going to play it. We're going to play. The, they recap the angle the week later. So we're going. Let's go ahead and play that, and then we'll see how they how they addressed it at the time. Because this is after the Bob Raceman article come out. So let's see if that had any effect on the way they recapped this. Okay. So this is the first clip you already had in the notes earlier, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Let's see what we've got here. So this is from the January twenty third Superstar. 
It gives me great pleasure at this time to welcome the reigning World Wrestling Federation champion. Are you sure that's right? Uh, maybe not then. <laughs> <laughs> Who's doing that announcing? Ray, Ray Rousseau. Okay, that was that's a bit over the top, but all right. I was in the process of sitting up the screen share. Hold on, yeah, that's the. Yeah, I, I copied that link you have highlighted. No, I just did it, and it went right to where I needed to go. Hold on. <laughs> okay, let's try that again. The first one. Oh, no, but I isn't it... Wait, how many clips total do we have now? Five or six? Uh, five, uh, Let me send it to you in the chat so you can get this right. <laughs> there. All right. All right. From inside the pages of the WWF magazine, here's Update. Hi again, folks. Update brought to you by IcoPro. Get it together of with course. the integrated conditioning program. IcoPro. You gotta want it. One of the most appalling incidents I have ever eyewitnessed unfolded last week. What? In front of a national television audience. The result of Doink the Clown's... <laughs> He's got the prosthesis in his hand. Someone just hands it to him. <laughs> off from off screen. Yes. Kevin Dunn or perhaps a Duncan <laughs> Leslie or someone like that. Yeah. Using this prosthesis, this fake arm, it's obviously loaded with lead. It's got to weigh 15 to 20 pounds. This is what Doink used to bring down Crush. The big man from Kona, Hawaii. Remember now, Crush is six foot eight. He is well over 300 pounds. I cannot recall such a tremendous outcry from fans all over the world in regards to this vicious and unprovoked attack. In case you missed it, last week, let's go back. If you are prone to having a queasy stomach at all, you may want to leave the room. Here is that devastating incident from last weekend's WWF Superstars. Watch very closely as Doink pulls that fake arm up. Take a look. Now, Crush warned Doink. He's just trying to be friends. Look, I think you're exactly right. He, is, he wants to settle this thing once and for all. Forgive and forget. Give him a flower. As well as he should. Smart clown. Yeah, right. No doubt. There's no one... They would not heed the- you know, I heard from some people who complained that at uh, the Restival, that uh, a certain wrestler was not wearing uh, underwear under his gear, and uh, I guess he was a Crush fan. <laughs> well, quite a few wrestlers didn't wear underwear under their gear, so that's nothing new. Advice, an admonition, if you would, an admonition from Crush. Look at the clown's face. I to see a sad clown. I got a bad order. It's a smart clown. He got a flower out of the whole thing there, Paul. Wait a minute, do it! Did you see that? Wait, he took his arm off! He just took his own arm off! Ooh. I don't know! Like, no! The, he <laughs> took his own arm right out of the socket! That's a cast! Look, look what he's doing! I can't believe that! Again and again and again! With that cast, I guess that's what it is! He's watching down! Of course he's knocked out!
That, that is sick. That's, that's too much right there. I've never seen anything like that in my life. Christ. No. You still that's think that's sick. a funny clown, uh, King? Uh, what do you think? Uh, that may be going a little too far. What do you mean, maybe? What a sick individual. Look, and Crush is still unconscious. But clown, could you believe that? I I couldn't believe my own eyes. It looked like he took, took his, his own, own arm off. That's the only way anybody could bring a big man like that down. That is the only way. Yeah, yeah, well, there's a, a caller for it. There's a show in this capacity what? crowd, I can tell you that. Real and look funny at, clown. And they still can't even believe. Unfortunately for Crush, I still can't believe they turned on the light. We saw the door. attack from behind like that. I mean, it, it had to be a cast. It had to be something with some weight behind it. With Doink repeatedly hammering and hammering in the back of the head of Crush. Crush's first impulse about that clown was correct. A flashback, a blast from the past. That clown. There's no business around the World Wrestling Federation. Now, I'm just hoping that the man from Kota, Hawaii, is going to be okay. Not just okay for the Royal Rumble, but just, you know, uh, okay. How can you take a shot like that? Look at the like big man. Out. From, He's from still out. That's a big man laying on the ground, let me tell you. Well, he kept hitting him. He kept hitting him from behind. He kept hitting him as hard as he possibly could. No one could stop him. He kept hitting him repeatedly. That's a sick, that's the sickest excuse I've ever seen for a clown. His pranks out here that we saw with the kids and whatever are one thing. His pranks against the wrestlers, something else. But, Crush but this? They're going to have trouble putting a big man like that on a stretcher right now. I'll tell you that right now. He's a very popular wrestler in the World Wrestling Federation. And, King, you're not talking as much as you did before. No. Uh, I think we may be. They may be concerned with his neck. Could very well be. As a result of that attack, Crush sustained a severe concussion. The actions of this clown are deplorable. This guy isn't a clown. This guy is... He's got to be one sick creep. Clowns make children smile. This idiot finds humor in the misfortune of others. And as a footnote to all of this, like Doink it. the Clown has cost Crush the opportunity of competing in this Sunday afternoon's Royal Rumble. He has cost Crush the opportunity of having a chance to become the World Wrestling Federation champ, and I find it all totally reprehensible. For update, I'm Gene Okerlund. <laughs> oh, you gotta love me, Gene. <laughs> yes. Also, uh, I noticed that the captions on the images during update are normal case, and then Doinks is in all caps. So was that, like, his name originally? Was he gonna be, like, Walter, or... Shima well, or it, I, Taka? I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, this is over the top for WF at this time, John, to do, you know, an angle like this and do stuff that they wouldn't normally do, like show the ambulance coming through the door of the building and stuff. This is one, this is unlike them. In 1991, the WWF started doing some more hardcore angles, like the uh, the mm -hmm. snake 
at uh, that uh, had um, Randy Savage and Elizabeth's uh, wedding reception, and it kind of went up and down. But you know, it used to be they totally did not do hardcore angles, and you know, of course, they had this the cobra biting Randy Savage, which was over the top. And yeah, this was kind of over the top. And I, you know, I have to agree with McMahon. That's the sickest excuse I've ever seen for a clown. <laughs> He took his own arm off and off had a socket with lead. Yeah. So I'm going to guess that what happened here is that maybe they're going to sell this as more of a neck injury and then went with concussion because of the yeah. bracement. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, they they totally definitely they 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 definitely went in a different direction. <laughs> Absolutely. Gene Okerlund just straight delivering the line. The actions of this clown is are deplorable. That's fantastic. <laughs> Dead banning all the way. Yes. Good old this idiot. This idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and and then, and then you had the extra gravitas in this where Lawler is playing it differently. Yes. You know, even so, this is too far. Yeah. So you have the heel announcer going. This is too far. That didn't happen. And one That's thing great. too, I've always I've always said this about wrestling, and, and it applies to other things. The best way to get people to watch something is tell them not to watch it. Like Bill Watts did that in '85 with the Flair DiBiase angle. You know, if you've got a weak stomach, you don't want to see this. Ain't nobody leaving the room now. Oh no, 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 no! You just made it must watch, must see TV. Exactly. <laughs> and you, you want to save that? Do that maybe once a year, but it's very effective. Yeah. All right, so let's go to Perfect and Flair. This is uh, their first uh, of their little things during our week, and this is from the January 17th episode of Wrestling Challenge. So let's see what goes on here. Let me call in my next guest, who will be in the Royal Rumble, Mr. Perfect. You know, with all the Vince and Kevin Dunn stuff about accents, how did Ray Rougeau manage to be an announcer in English for like two years? It's a good question. It is interesting, isn't it? Vince, Vince has always had this fascination, though, with people from Quebec. I mean, giving Dino Bravo that push. It's the Pat Patterson influence. That totally makes sense. I mean, it's exactly what it's, I think it is. All right, I can see that. Yeah. All right. all those things. Look at him. Does he look in great shape? Yeah, he's a good And they love him. Hey, hold it for a second. Was that Ric Flair that I saw leave here just a second ago? You know who it was. Who was? It was kind of hard to see. It was kind of dark over there. It's almost like there was a, like a, a shadow. I guess what you're doing, Ric Flair, is walking in Mr. Perfect's shadow. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I love it. Don't get me going. And you know what? Oh, here we go. Oh. <laughs>
Crawford. Get that chicken out of there. Slaughter, take your hands off him. Sergeant Slaughter, Rene Goulet, trying to control this. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's the most like WCW type of Ric Flair that you ever saw in WF, isn't it? Right here in this little run here. We're perfect. With the sprinting yeah. out and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was a little bit different in the WWF, but I agree. I mean, you know, this is WCW Ric Flair, and I mean by this time he knew he was going back, so yeah, and we'll talk more about the Flair Perfect feud, you know, when we get to Raw. But uh, yeah, a good, a good, you know, setting to what's going to happen the next night. Now let's go to Monday Night Raw, which is this the second ever episode of Raw, and it's live, and, which I and completely it's forgot until I looked at the notes for this show. I yeah, because the first uh, show was a one-off. Right, live. I could have yeah, I could have sworn that they taped the next two weeks at the first show, but no, they taped. They did just the one show, some dark matches, I think maybe some exclusives for Mania or All-American or something. And then they came back here. They came back on the uh, 18th to tape the 18th and 25th. Yes. So uh, let's go to the torch now with our uh, review of Raw. The January 18th program saw better matches, better commentary, and better angles in the first week. In fact, if the January 18th shows any indication of what is to come in future weeks... Raw will quickly become a collector's favorite, much like Bill Watts' old UWF programs. The episodic, spontaneous nature of the show wrapped around quality matches is sure to draw fans who, for the past few years, have been forgetting to tune in to primetime wrestling. Already, WF has seen the improvement in the ratings when the January 11th debut show garnering a 2.5 rating, up 0.3 compared to the 2.9 rating the much hyped WCW Clash drew two days later. Raw's off to an impressive start, and Wade looks forward to seeing where it goes from here. Okay. Um, so, oh God, that's almost 10 years now. So when the, uh, award-winning WWE network launched, people may remember that, you know, this is before WWE seemed to understand how like streaming and binge watching worked and all that. The thing they did was that like archival stuff would go up on demand after it quote unquote premiered on the linear channel. And one of the things they were doing was showing raw from the beginning. Yeah, so every morning, you know, I would wake up and watch Raw, and those shows, that first year of Raw, holds up so well. It's fantastic. Absolutely. It's such a breath of fresh air from all the other WWF stuff. You know, I'd love to know, like, who, who was the main booking influence in it being so different. I mean, in the past... You and I have kind of concluded it must have been Jim Ross. But he's not there right now. Well, yeah, wait a second. Later on, it might be Jim Ross. But, like, that we couldn't think of anyone else. Like, who's in the mix? Like Bruce Fritcher. But is it Bruce suddenly, like, having not just more of an influence, but also, like, pushing a different style? I mean, he's the only one I could think of that would be would be there as, a, you know, a regular guy that in that circle... That would that push would more happen. of a Memphis Mid South style of TV. And Lawler's there. Well, Lawler's not booking. No, but Lawler's there. I mean, so he's another one that's there. But I'm just gonna say, I, I, it's gotta be, gotta be Bruce. I think I mean, that has the more power here. 
I, I think it's Vince. Okay. I think it's Vince all the way. I think he realized that, okay, the ball game has changed. Like when the WWF was on uh, Saturday night's main event on NBC, they had show, you know, Saturday night's main event was, you know, one main event match after the other. You had Hulk Hogan wrestling against the top guys. And I think everyone kind of realized that, hey, you're not on UHF TV on Saturday morning anymore. You're on prime time on a major cable network. You know, you can't just be roll, rolling squash matches out there. Yeah, that is a good point. The Saturday main event narrative. That's a good point. Now, the next paragraph, I wanted to point this out. It says, uh, January 18th, Monday Night Raw opens with Repo Man attacking Randy Savage and stealing his hat, followed by Kurt Henning pinning Terry Taylor. That Kurt Henning-Terry Taylor match was excellent. I remember it 31 years later and being like, you know, why isn't Terry Taylor getting a better push? (laughs) Was the battle of the guys that could have been Mr. Perfect, the one that was and the one that wasn't. (laughs) never going to be Mr. Perfect. How how did I mean, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning really didn't get over as a baby face. I know there's some revisionist history out there from Henning fans, which I am one of. But the fans just didn't buy into a guy named Mr. Perfect as a baby face. And the the gates showed it. I mean, he he was fine. But yeah, yeah, it wasn't like a major deal or anything. Absolutely. He well, wasn't it was a, supposed a needle mover. Yeah, he, yeah, exactly. All right, and so yeah, so let's go to the ending of that perfect uh, Terry Taylor match as uh, Ric Flair got involved. I'm sure Terry Taylor enjoyed that immensely. So let's go to the clip. You mean because he's the only wrestler who wishes he was Stan Lane? Because Stan Lane is the only wrestler. It gives me great pleasure at this time to welcome the reigning (laughs) World Wrestling Federation. I clicked the wrong. Oh, I closed the wrong tab. Hold on. (laughs) You played the same Ray Rizzo clip twice. And then, then we, and then you removed it from the show anyway. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now right back. Oh, right in the middle of uh, the What a matchup here on Monday Night Raw. We are coming to you live from New York. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who's that? That's Ric Flair. Come on, what's going on, How about Taylor doing all this play? It's Mary Jo going to Fuco. Oh. Oh, Bob Moore. Perfect round to the outside. What is even the joke there? Uh, he said Flair looked like Mary Jo Botafuca. <laughs> I mean, he didn't say he looked like He said, hey, it's Mary Jo Botafuca. Well, I guess that's, that's, the, that's the idea. But, like, what is the joke? Is he saying Flair looks like he's been shot in the head? Is he, like... The blonde hair, I guess, and the, the nose. I don't know. I mean, it's Rob Bartlett on Raw, especially those early ones. A lot of things he just says are, like, weird non sequiturs. <laughs> yes. Oh, wait a minute. Look at this. Oh, come on. Well, had Flair been on Raw yet? I don't know if he was on that. First, I, I think he was on that first show. Oh yeah, wait, he was against Tito, right? Yeah, yeah. No, Tito's on this one. Flair Tito's on this one. Okay, so then yeah. he wasn't on the first show. But had I it happened the... on this show yet? No. Okay, so Bartlett just has no idea who he is. <laughs> well. Flair is pummeling Mr. Perfect and in the midsection of Hino lifting backyard. And then takes off. Give me a break. That's typical Ric Flair. That wasn't too perfect. That's vintage Ric Flair. Oh, no. Vintage. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. A reversal. A super punch. One. Oh, yes. You get it. 
That's Guts right there. That's Guts. That's perfect. Look at that. He well, uh, so perfect went running out the flare. All right, so there's that. All right, Bret Hart did an interview. Then Marty Jannetty pinned Glenn Roof, future headbanger. Right. Then we get the yeah. recap of the Doink Crush incident. Sean Mooney interviewed Repo Man outside Manhattan Center, where Repo said he finally gained Savage's attention. Then Savage went looking for Repo, and then we get Ric Flair and Tito, where Kurt Henning showed up and attacked Flair after seven minutes of very good action. And then we finally get the build to the match for next week. So let's go to that clip, shall we? And we've got an amazing Ric Flair, uh, bulging eyes, nostrils flaring thumbnail here. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I forgot. That's right. I'm looking at the, at the title of the video. And, you know, in Vince fashion, it is not a Loser Leafs Town match. It is not a Loser Leafs the WWF match. It is an end of career match. <laughs> Yes. It's like, you know, Savage Warrior WrestleMania 7 wasn't a retirement match. It was a, what was it, career-threatening match? Something like that. Something like that. And yeah, I remember McMahon, right after Flair lost to Perfect, he's like, it's all downhill from here for Ric Flair. <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> let him it have it. It was an offensive maneuver on the part of Flair. It was all defense. He just fell right down. Wait a minute. What, what's this? Uh-oh. Not out of the building, but out of the 
worked on this. I can't believe you had risked your career, Mr. Flair. I can't believe you would do that. And I'm not too sure that Mr. Perfect is going to do that either. I can't believe. And you started. I can tell you right now, you're not mad enough. <laughs> you haven't got the guts. And you will never see the day in your life you beat Rick Flair. Take a Prozac. Yes, that's uh, pretty clear. Rick Flair issuing a challenge to Mr. Perfect. Hopefully, before we go off the air, we will have a retort of some sort, perhaps an answer from retort Mr. Perfect. Guys, I don't know what to say. We're rocking and rolling here. Sounds like the end of the road for somebody, guaranteed. Here he comes. There's my guy right there, oh. Mr. Perfect. Well, I guess we didn't have to wait. I don't know if you heard that challenge or not from Ric Flair. He states the WWF is not big enough for the two of you. He's going to put his career in the WWF on the line, if you will. You're talking about meeting Ric Flair, and the loser has to leave the World Wrestling Federation? Here, right here next week. Are you kidding me? I'll take that in a heartbeat. Ric Flair, you're going to be gone. McMahon, you know me. Everybody knows me. I am what I say I am, Flair. You want me? You got me right here. I must say, I can't imagine you putting your career on the line like that, or even Ric Flair. It's going too far. Both of you are great competitors. Why risk that? Is that what it has to take? Ric Flair, is that what it's gone down to? The two greatest athletes in the World Wrestling Federation? Only one man will stay in the World Wrestling Federation? I'll take that challenge. I'll put my career on the line right here. Thank you very much. It can't be any Mr. Perfect. Mr. Perfect puts his career on the line next week, one-on-one -on -one with Ric Flair. And, of course, the Macho Man Randy Savage meeting the Repo Man. Two matches of uh, equal value and stature. <laughs> Joe and I have something to say. Yes. Mm-hmm. When I first started watching pro wrestling in 1976, you would have the announcer who would be nice and calm, and then you'd have, like, Bruno Sammartino would come out and be very humble and very calm, and then Fred Blassie and Stan Hansen would come out, and everything about them would be ramped up. I mean, the volume was turned all the way up, and it made them stand out, and everyone – is completely out of control here. McMahon's beyond out of control. Randy Savage is screaming. Ray, Ray Rougeau is screaming. And when you do that, you it's harder for the wrestlers to get over. They don't stand out because everyone is screaming. Yeah. Yeah, the announcers definitely weren't over the top back in the day as they were at that point in time. Absolutely not. You're right. And... um yeah, that makes a difference. I mean, you McMahon know. sounds like a truck just rolled over his ankle. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it like that, the Doink Crush thing, how he was. I mean, he was, this is the like the era where he's really getting over the top, you know, and all the yeah. stuff that he's 94 is when he turns into like, <laughs> really like new generation Vince. <laughs> Where he goes back and forth between that <laughs> and the yeah. <laughs> but you like you watch him in nineteen eighty. Watch him in nineteen eighty. Let's do him in nineteen eighty, and it's a totally different person. And he's doing yes. Howard Cosell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he so wanted to be Howard Cosell. Oh my god. <laughs> 
the first time I noticed that Vince really started to ramp it up was the first Saturday Night's main event. And you're right, by 94, when he became Shawn Michaels' greatest cheerleader, all right! (laughs) You know, it it was nuts. But anyway, I mean, I haven't heard this stuff in a long, long time. And I guess by 93, I was just numb to it all. But hearing it for the first time in a long time, I'm like, you know, the the, the non-wrestlers really need to take a step back here. Yeah. Well, Rob Barlow was toned down the big way on Raw. The show was mu- the much the better for it. It was a hot <laughs> show this week with Mr. Perfect, Terry Taylor, and Flair and Tito building towards Flair Perfect. The two brawls of Flair and Perfect were tremendous. They were also around an angle where Repo Man stole Randy Savage's hat. This is Dave. This set the match for next week. It seemed Flair got more cheers than anyone on the show. Uh, I think Perfect got a decent amount of cheers, too. So the fans I- were in the book of them. One thing I, I couldn't help but laugh at when they first introduced it, I believe it was 1993, either out late 1992, I'm imagining a bunch of people sitting around the WWF going, okay, who's a character that our audience is really going to hate? And someone says, ah, uh, someone who repossesses their car? <laughs> <laughs> well, get back, you got to get Barry Darso credit. He did play the gimmick very well. Hey, do what he could with it, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, now, let's go back to the torch. For trivia buffs, Wade believed this was the first time that Vince Man had ever appeared on television with glasses. Ashley Bifocals on, was on this show. It was an inadvertent camera shot of McMahon. Oh, you know Peters. he hated that. Yes. You know he hated that when he saw that. That was on TV. <laughs> oh. All tickets are $12 for raw tapings. So that isn't the hard-to-get freebies for the show. At the first tape, we by 600 to 1000 were paid. Don't know about the second. And Wade knows the crowd, Raw crowds are different from the average MSG crowds and that there are fewer children and families and a more hardcore gathering of guys in their 20s and 30s. Considering the rabid fans, the show does not need canned cheers as on most other shows. And if talking about how the fans are, a fan held a sign this tapings that read the horse will ride again. Rick, Arn, Barry, and Eric Watts. As soon as Vincent Man saw the sign, he had security ticket away from the fan. That's the other thing, John, about the about the raw shows here, you know, coming from, you know, New York and you know, Manhattan Center is the fact that it's a totally different atmosphere than you saw in any WF show basically ever with the fans, how they were. No, the, the hardcore cities in the late ni- early late eighties, early nineties were definitely New York and Philadelphia. And here they are in this small building, and it's just – it is such a different crowd than the regular TV tapings. And it made it stand out. Yeah, and you know you want that raucous crowd. You want you know you want that. I was watching uh, Mid South from 1984 on Peacock, and the crowd is like something out of a not even out of a movie, out of a cartoon. It's crazy, and it added to the show. And I agree, this sort of crowd adds to the television experience. Absolutely, yeah. All right, uh, line of the week candidate on January 22nd at the show in Denver. Paul Barrow was being yelled at by fans calling him Percy. And he responded in his voice going, Percy is in the urn. (laughs) That is a great line. (laughs) Take that, smart fans. (laughs) The Predator, Mike Balea, 
or Horace Boulder, as we know of, holds nephews on the road. But over the weekend, he was just putting Jim Powers over. Well, let's go back to Denver for a few 200 fans. We have Tito Santana over Skinner, star and a quarter. Jim Powers over the Predator, Mike Horace Boulder Balea, dud. The Head Shrinkers over High Energy, star and three quarter. Yokozuna over Earthquake, star and a half. Undertaker over Berserker, dud. Bob Backlund over Terry Taylor, two and a half stars. Perfect of Repo Man, three quarters of a star. And Marty Gennetti over Shawn Michaels and IC Title Match by DQ, four and a half stars. I'll bet whoever reviews this show was a little bit star happy because I just don't think Michaels and Gennetti are putting over putting a real four and a half star match on just a random house show. I'm sorry, that's not how it goes. But if Terry Taylor really got a two and a half star match out of 1994, Bob Backlund, he's the greatest worker that ever lived. <laughs> Backlund well, was so bad. At well, this part point. of me, part of me, John thinks that. You know, you look at the matches that were held before, and whoever gave the star ratings for this show was when Janetti and Sean went out there and did whatever they did do. Pro- probably it's like, thank you, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe on a WWF scale, but like a normal pro wrestling scale, I, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I just find it hard to believe. Like four and a half stars is a match of the year candidate. Bob Backlund, Terry Taylor is an interesting matchup on paper. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine that one. So, <laughs> that's ter- Terry- this is terrific, Terry Taylor, too, by the way. Yes, putting him against the whitest possible wrestler, too. <laughs> At least yeah, he, Bob- he probably had a good time, then. <laughs> Bob definitely was a white, white, white man. Pasty white. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I, I didn't, I mean, I just went in everywhere. I, I know what you're talking about. Speaking of the Hulk, most of the rumor mill is that he's negotiating with WCW. Dave's heard that rumor from many sources in the past two weeks, and Ted Turner even told Jim Hurd that specific thing last week. And, of course, Dave's working with Jim Hurd at this On time. The, uh, Real Wrestling Hotline is launching right around this time. Yes. Or planning on getting involved with Angela Poffo's promotion based in Florida that's going to run a show in Europe. That's kind of what I said. Some think Hulk himself wants those stories out, like negotiations with Japan that seemingly fell through yeah. because of up the ante for a return to whenever he decides to return. The only advantage WCW can offer is if the Turner organization promises him movie work as part of the deal to wrestle a few major shows because long-range acting, not wrestling, seems to be his primary goal. Those who are his friends say that he does want to, not, does want to come back, but only to work five, ten dates a year. Titan hasn't wanted him back under those circumstances because Holt would overshadow what they're trying to build for the future and bring to the house shows. Well, oh, guess what they do in here. two months. And guess what they do two months later? <laughs> they bring him back. Uh, I mean, I mean, Hogan. You know, one thing the WWF has done over the years, they're talking about, you know, Hogan wants to wrestle five, ten times a year. Well, that's going to overshadow the rest of the roster. And then up until maybe maybe about five years ago, the WWF, WWE now kept making that mistake. You know, at WrestleMania, the real stars came out. Triple H, The Undertaker, Shane McMahon. Why bother watching the guys from Raw and SmackDown. I, I always had a big problem with that. You either have to work full-time or you're really not doing anyone any good. Yeah, I mean, Roman Reigns doesn't work a full-time schedule, but he does work enough where it's not... And he's on TV right. every so often, so it's not as if he's 
you know, gone forever and it comes back for only major shows. You know, I mean, Brock Lesnar's I mean, another he's one getting that's there. on part time. Well, but still, he's around. I mean, he's there. Brock Lesnar, you know, he was doing that for a while. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the era where, you know, they're pushing all of these part time guys or legends as the main events of WrestleMania, yeah, it definitely takes away from the guys that are there grinding it out, you know? Yeah, it's not just about me feeling bad for the guys who are grinding it out, although I do. It's just it, it's the perception that fans have that, you know, the big stars, the Goldberg, the Triple H, etc. Let's wait for the real stars to get here. And it prevents the other guys from getting over. So it's it's not a sympathy thing. Oh, this guy's on the road all the time. It's it's a business thing. No, we've got to get the people over who are who are working 12 months a year. Exactly. But. It should have Hogan and WCW talks here a year before they actually happen. So, yeah, something that uh, would come to fruition a year later. So there's that. I mean, it was so not to get ahead of ourselves. It was so crazy. I mean, the day I did, this was the first WrestleMania nine was the first WrestleMania I did not watch live. I just I just didn't care enough. And it worked the next day. He's my friend says, guess who's WWF champion? I'm like, uh, Yokozuna. They've been planning this. He's like Hulk Hogan. I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> no. And, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm not right about anyth- everything, but I'm like, this is going to be 19, 1984 again. And that was an understatement. <laughs> yeah. And we uh, close with this. Muscle Beach Newsletter awarded Vince McMahon a partial award as the Gluteus Maximus of the Year. Writer Steve Neese, a former wrestler in the early 80s in the Stampede Wrestling Circuit, I wonder what his name was there, wrote, This leads Vince McMahon and the bodybuilding supplement industry to battle it out for the top honors. There's no doubt the supplement industry has ripped off the public for hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars this year by using advertising they knew to be false and dishonest. It is possible that some people may have damaged their health following some of the more crack brain programs. This is in addition to the ill will it fosters in the public and their distrust that results from it that prevents truly worthwhile nutritional programs from being accepted by the public. Whether Vince McMahon is defrauding anybody through the WF is debatable. The fans take their chances at the matches. He has ripped off his wrestlers big time and ruined many of their careers. Likewise, he has more than likely ruined the careers of most of the bodybuilders who joined the WBF and damaged the health of several of them with his poorly thought out agenda. It can be said that those that went to his shows and bought his magazine were taking their chances, but those that bought Ico Pro products were conned big time. Actually, there's more than that, even nastier. But it's of a personal nature and revolves around unproven rumors and charges. Now, Chris, is that from is that from the Torch? That's from the Observer. Okay, wow, I don't remember reading this, but I do remember hearing from someone that would know. Uh, this is ninety two ish that Ico Pro was complete junk. Yeah, I can believe it. <laughs> like, I can like, believe don't it. even touch it. Go ahead. I can believe it. Absolutely, I can believe it. So, yeah. And when I interviewed Dr. Fred Hatfield for that Fighting Spirit article about WBF, he was still very proud of Pro. I'm sure he was. <laughs> he thought it was a very legitimate uh, combination of food, supplements, and uh, workout plans, hence, you know, integrated conditioning program. And he felt it worked well, but as he said, the bodybuilders didn't want it. Bodybuilders like juice. 
That makes Shot. sense. And again, the guy I talked to, you know, he was a bodybuilder and he knew his stuff, but he wasn't a doctor either. So, yeah. Yeah. I, so, I mean, it's interesting of all, the, I mean, I guess there's more in the actual column that Dave didn't mention, but it's interesting at least that the thing Dave singles out is specifically this, if the whole column isn't about that. Yeah. But this, this Ico Pro stuff and Ico Bros, you know, still around it. After this, for what a year and a half, it goes into '94, and I, I think oh, yeah. it did sell the name, and it stuck around in some health food stores a little longer than that, but not for long. Uh, I mean, you think about everything they put into pushing Ico Pro, and it lasted like three years. It's kind of funny. Yeah, it definitely didn't uh, change the industry as they thought it probably could have. But, you know, I remember Dave writing that, you know, when the World Bodybuilding Federation started up, uh, Joe Weider, he was comparing Joe Weider to Vern Gagne and saying that, you know, Vince is going to run over Joe Weider. And it's one of the few things, Dave, was he just made an incorrect prediction, but it was a big time incorrect prediction. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> but not, you know. Not everything Vince touches turns to gold. I know we've seen that many times over the, over the years. So we've learned this over the last thirty one years that Vince is great at promoting wrestling. The rest of it, eh. well, yeah, it it's not like there was any kind of big public appetite for bodybuilding, you know, and it already had its audience. And like we've talked about on here before, and I still can't believe I never heard anyone say this until I interviewed Sean Ray, who did not jump for that article. Who exactly are you selling this to when most of the biggest bodybuilding magazines are controlled by the competitor? Yeah, exactly. Well, I just think Vince thought he was going to he was going to take over that industry the way he took over the wrestling industry. And, you know, it I, I wouldn't have surprised me in 1993 for sure. But like I said, we've learned a lot in the last 31 years. We sure have. All right, let's go international now, and we'll start with the land of the rising sun and all Japan pro wrestling. Where Jumbo Sharuda is supposed to return in late February. He's been out of action since late October with a liver problem. Well, at least we're being Jumbo honest Ceruta. now. was longer than that. Because <laughs> he doesn't come back until October 23rd. Yeah, Full Jumbo Saruta, in my opinion, really is he, – he might be one of the ten best workers of all time, maybe even top five. The guy, I feel right now he's really underappreciated. I mean if you're listening and you have not seen any or or maybe very few Jumbo Saruta matches, definitely check him out, especially the 1977 match he had against Terry Funk. Uh, I, I know that's on YouTube. I invite you to check that out. What a match. Well, see, you know, I've been watching every All Japan possible um, in a rewatch. And right now, I just watched this first match back uh, recently, and it was in the last week. But I will say that 1990 to 92, before he has his hepatitis, Jumbo Sharuda is probably the, maybe the best wrestler in the world. Yeah, I, I, I would take away the word maybe. He was definitely number one. I mean, in my opinion. that feud, the feud that he, he had with Masawa and, and and that whole army and that, Jumbo is simply amazing in that feud. And then mm-hmm. you know, working Gordy and Doc and Hanson and he's he's at an extremely high level. And so I mean, he he's finding himself 
you know, as a guy who had basically at that point in time been wrestling almost 20 years. And but he's finally, he finally found himself in the early 90s and, and where he was supposed to be. And had, my God. He had been on a quality run, but that heel turn completely rejuvenated him. Well, not really, he's not really going to say heel. I mean, he's just because, I mean, it, it's but just he the way. Is, kind of. Yeah, he, the fans, he is by like Japan him. standards. He is by Japan standards, but the fans are, are love him to death. You know, and I mean, it's it, that feels amazing. I mean, just some of the the biggest high end matches, singles, tags, six mans. I mean, just an amazing run before he has to leave due to hepatitis. But my God, yeah, he was awesome. All right, uh, the tour for our week: the TV taping Yonazawa for a thirty four hundred. We have Masao Inoue over Kurt Byer, Dick Byer's son. Mighty Inoue over Takal Mori, Abdul the Butcher and Blade Butch Masters. Over Richard Slinger and Tommy Rogers. Giant Baba, Rush Kimura, Mitsumoto over Ryumi Zamita, Haruka Egan, and Masafuchi. Yoshinara Gao over Bobby Fulton. Stan Hansen and Johnny Ace over Johnny Smith and Al Perez. Akira Tawi and Junakayama over Toshiko Kawada and Shoshikuchi. And then Dr. Dusty, Williams, and Terry Gordy over Mitsuharu Masao and Kunikabashi in the main event. What an amazing promotion at this time, 1993, All Japan. Good it- lord. It really was. And what's Johnny Ace's real real name? John Laurinaitis. John Laurinaitis. Thank you. You know, I know he turned into a bit of a punchline over time, especially uh, thanks to his run as the GM of Raw. But Johnny Ace at this point, this is why every promotion needed to hire someone to watch tapes of Japan, of Mexico, etc. Because WCW absolutely could have used Johnny Ace and put him in a high spot, and he would have merited it. And like I said, I know time has turned him into a little bit of a punchline, but he was good. When he was, I mean, all Japan in the 90s, he got himself in a spot where he was a hell of a worker. And he was a big, good-looking guy. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I would watch him, and I'm, I'm like, okay, why isn't WCW going after this guy and going after him hard? He and you know, let him t- still tour Japan, but get him in and like, give him a push. Absolutely, yep. He he would have been uh, better than some of the guys they had there at that time. Absolutely, good lord, <laughs> That's far sure. better. Nippon TV ran a Saturday afternoon television special on January 23rd for Giant Baba's 55th birthday, airing the best of Baba, which included a 67 match with Bruno, a 67 match with The Crusher, a 71 match with Vern Gagne, and an 84 Baba and Dory against Brody and Hansen match. These are pre-email days, pre-texting days. And I was as soon as I saw this in, in the Observer, I started calling people saying, "Hey, I need these matches." <laughs> Yeah, because good lord, I mean, this is a different time. I mean, these these two matches from that era had not aired since they first aired. You know, you didn't have the classics like you would get a few years later and stuff like that, where all this stuff would start showing up again. I mean, the Crusher yep. match had been replayed at least in clips and stuff. This is full matches, uh, I would but think, these are the full matches. It. Okay, yeah. And, and now all I have to do to see Bruno and Baba is go to YouTube and pr- put in the words Bruno Baba, and there it is on my 40-inch TV. Well, it helps <laughs> that you know, uh, Nippon TV, for whatever reason, does not seem to care much about getting stuff taken off YouTube. No, it's, it's pretty much all there. I, I mean, what a time we live in. It's fantastic. Yes. 
Our FMW latest tour ended on January 19th. The biggest show of the past week was in Nagoya on the 18th, headlined by The Sheik, defending the U.S. title from his old Detroit promotion against Asushi Onida. Yeah, the jokes write themselves sometimes, <laughs> don't they? Well, yeah. setting up God. a unification match with the IWA World Heavyweight Champion, Mil Mosker. <laughs> he might as well have. We can o- only dream. Onina won the match by pinfall 741 to see a Sheik li- live and alive two weeks ago. Dave, can you imagine how a singles match with him could go that long? But afterwards, grabbed the house mind and did his classic post-match interview saying how much he respects Sheik for all he's done in the business. And how Sheik has had a title for 14 consecutive years. So he's giving him back the belt. I know. Why challenge him for the first place then? They don't know how much longer they can continue to bring Sheik in, although he still means something at the boss office, as bizarre as that sounds. So maybe this is a nice send-off. All right, the rest of the results from the Nagoya show. Sabu over Ijiazaki, the future Hayabusa. That's an interesting match. Dr. Hannibal over Koji Nakagawa. Yoshika Meodamari and Erika Shishuya over Megumi Kudo and Miwasato. Dr. Luther, Luther. And the gladiator Mike Awesome and Big Titan Rick Bogner over Haystacks Calhoun. Not the real one. Great Punk and Mr. Ganesuke. Tarzan Goto, Ricky Fuji, and then Onita over the Sheik. Which all built to January 19th in Kiru, where it sold out 3494. So Onita team with the Sheik and Sabu for the first time in the World Barbar Tornado Street Fight Death Match against Gladiator Big Titan and Dr. Luther. However, Sabu was pinned by Titan's Power Powerbomb in 9-11. It was then announced during the February tour. Onita and Sabu will form a regular tag team to feud with the Canadian group of the Doctor, Gladiator. How he's Canadian is beyond me. Titan and Ricky Fuji, who did live in Calgary for a few years. Then we have uh, Mayo Damari over Rio Nakamura, Haystacks over Koji Nakagawa, Megumi Kuno and Combat Toyota over Miwasato and Erika Shishuya, Fuji and the Doctor over Tarzan Goto and Great Punk, and then uh, Dr. Hannibal, and then Dr. Luther, Gladiator, and Big Titan over Onita, Sheik, and Sabu. And Dave says, expressive talent exchange between this group and now, as Onita has been having meetings with now President Kazuo Sakurada, also known as Kendo Nagasaki, about promoting joint shows. But, John, this is where FMW, you know, is really starting to get hot with the American fans with Sabu coming over there. Anita's, you know, becoming a major deal. And the, the tape trading scene, FMW is really picking up some steam here. Big time. I mean, and in, it was I think it was 93. I had some friends over. We were just playing cards. And I just put in some FMW as like background music. And my friends who were non-wrestling fans were just like, wow, wrestling is real in Japan. This is crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, that you didn't see that type of stuff in U.S. wrestling. You didn't see it anywhere. You know, I mean, it was insane, the stuff they were doing at the time. And it just appealed to a totally different fan base. And like I said, I mean, Sabu's in ECW in, in you know, a few months after this. So, I mean, this is... Basically, would propel him into this uh, cult figure status, you know, doing this stuff. I mean, you know, we brought up the name, uh, the name Mary Joe Butterfuco came up during <laughs> yes. this podcast. I haven't thought of that name in probably since 1994. And it, it's funny that, you know, Sabu. Was a little bit like that. You had to be there. Like people look back at Sabu and they're like, uh, you know, he was so overrated or whatever. He was as hot as a pistol in 1994. People couldn't wait to get their next Sabu match on tape. And I think he finished second or third for Wrestler of the Year in the Observer. And you had to be there. It wasn't that crazy. 
time and place and yep. you know so influential on a bunch of people and a bunch of young guys that would become wrestlers i mean you just can't deny it yeah, but you're right i mean it's time and place there's and a lot of things in culture like that and also a much better and smarter worker than i think he gets credit for all like people don't get like and like I they say there's someone who's interviewed him and where he's talked about this like like when when we talk about that stuff being deliberate it's like I mean now we have stories from other wrestlers corroborating it like he screwed up stuff on purpose a lot of the time and he had like he really did have a method to the madness you know yeah he would mess up stuff on purpose to make it seem more authentic the kind of tepid mat work he did to open a lot of his matches was boring on purpose to make his Sabu spots pop more. You know, like, he really, he had a perfect understanding of what Sabu should be. Absolutely. Uh, well, that makes sense. Quick. I mean, his, his uncle spent his entire lifetime in the business, so he's got to pick up something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, where, I mean, where is independent wrestling in the United States without Sabu getting hot here, too? You know, it's nothing you got to take consideration. Good point. I mean, he, he was a huge deal in getting in the indie scene over in that era. I mean, no he doubt. was the first, like, indie superstar. He was the first guy who was being flown in in places and stuff, not off of being on TV. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, real quick, I just wanted to mention yeah, what John's saying. You know, his friends were like, wow, wrestling's real in Japan. Reminded me of also what Roy Lusher uh, tweeted today. He quote tweeted uh, Vintage Pro Press's tweet of clips of a Vulcan Dirk Verge match from Rings and Roy quote tweeted it saying, uh, first started tape trading in 1992. My local Japanese video store told me about this promotion. Quote, not pro rest. This have kicks. Break legs. This is real. <laughs> yeah, Rings was a different style. Absolutely. Way different. Let's move to a different type of show. Speaking of OPW, there was two shows at Cork what and Hall. Speaking of OPW, we're talking about now, not OPW. No, now, excuse me. Well, damn, they all run together to me. I'm sorry. Yeah, now <laughs> is Kazuo Sakurada and the other people who didn't go to war with um, wars in the promotion with Tenru from SWS. Oriental Pro is, you know, what would become Go Gundam. Basically, it's Ryumiko's promotion. Yeah, so Oriental Pro Wrestling, which begs a question, begs a question, can pro wrestling be Oriental? Yes, because it's a thing. It's not a person. Okay. All right. Oriental Pro Wrestling, Wing, and Michinoku Pro ran Indie Summit show at Corkin Hall on the 20th. We have Ryomiyaki over Ketsuka Masaki, Miguelito Perez over The Wigger, Abe over Hirano, which we get to Hirano, and Abe, this is from The Observer, so I don't have the first name. It just uh, says Terry, he's a uh, Japanese uh, karateka. Yeah. Terry Boy and Super Dolphin over Takamichi Noku and Great Sasuke. Mince Teo and Delphin. Mm-hmm. Masiko Takasugi over Takayama. Ghetto. Then you have Takasugi, which would be Masiko Takasugi over Fujita. Who would that be. Then you got the winger and Yuki Kamura, Yuki Kanamura and Hiroshimata over Kaisuke Masazaki, Nabutaka Rai, and Hiroshi Itakura. Now we go to the 23rd. We have another show at Cork and All with just Orion Pro and Wing. 
which had Rio Miyake over Kesemiarano, Mikita Tabrez over Nobutaka Araya, Hiroshi Nakura and Masako Takasugi over The Winger and Yuko Kanamura, Gorosharumi over Kazuko Masazaki, and then a bar bar over the top elimination match. So, yes, you're doing a battle royal, but there's no ring ropes. It's barbed wire. But it's not really about a Royal Elimination match. So you had Hiroshi Takura, Kasumi Hirano, Masika Tatsugi, and Nobutaka Araya over Hiroshi Shimada, Masashi Motegi, Winger, and Yukio Kanemura. Okay. Uh, I pulled up cage match. Okay, it's not Ghetto. It's Hido. It's Hideo Takayama. Okay. Um, the karate guy is... What is Yoshiko uh, Abe. Yes. Fujita is Toyonari Fujita. And now I'm clicking on his profile. Who's, uh, oh, that's Magnitude Kishiwada. Yes. A.K.A. Magama. A.K.A. Big Boss Magama. A.K.A. Monster Zeta Mandora. Kaiju Zeta Mandora. Kaiju Zagoros. Shienryu. Toru. Turbo Muscle. Toronari Fujita. Wolf and Dragon Winger. So wait, so. A lot of names. Dragon Winger. I always forget. So Dragon Winger and Winger are two separate people, then. Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, Universal. And I forgot to put the damn date and venue. But it's Corcoran Hall. I think it's on the twenty second. Okay. We have Mongolian <laughs> Yuga over Akira Yonakawa. Buffalo Chohei and Taka Michinoku over Shiru and Terry Boy. Moon Walker over Mongolian Yuga. Los Dragones Chino over Los Moicanos. One and two. Dos Caras and Viano five over Granamana and Viano four. And, uh, those cards of Grand Hamada over Viana's four and five. And then we have Locos on the kind of Super Delphin over Kendo and Grace Sasuke in your main event. Okay, this is I'm trying to find the date. So wait, it was so I was using Taka to look it up. So it's him and Buffalo Chohei over Shiryu. It's a twenty second, I think. I'm pretty sure. Uh, I don't know. No, that doesn't look right. Okay, so wait, it's Taka and I said it. Taka and Buffalo Choe over Shiryu and Terry. Okay, so Taka and Buffalo Choi. I am not seeing this match on Gage Match. Again, you go to the wrong place. Let's go to Wrestling Data. You think uh, they're better for uh, for Mishinoka? Well, that's what that's where well, I go. Well, Universal, I guess I should say. All right. So as I go there, uh, let's see the twenty second. Oh, wait, I did. Okay, I see it. It is the 22nd. I don't know how okay. I missed it. I didn't scroll down far enough. It's the door opener. Happy New Year. 1,522 fans allegedly occurred. And yeah, <laughs> very late for Universal before Mishinoku starts and Universal kind of... I, I'm not clear. It, are Universal Lucha Libre and Full the same promotion? Or are they technically different? They're the same. They are. Basically. That's what I thought. Okay. Right. It's it's Hamada and uh, the Chinma son, basically, in charge. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's... In, they still had good stuff into 92, but they really fall off as, in terms of, like, name luchadors and stuff towards the end. Yeah. All right, Yoshiki Fujiwara's Furosa Fujiwara Gumi is definitely finished because the sponsor, Megane Super Opticals, is in the process of pulling out of the wrestling business after blowing nearly as much money as TBS has. Akira Maeda 
who's trying to get Fujiwara to join rings along with Wayne Shamrock and Bart Vale, which would be intriguing because they'll be the first pro wrestlers to join the promotion as working so hard as to not be characterized as pro wrestling. Okay. Um, this is not the end of Fujiwara Gumi. This is just the end of Fujiwara Gumi having money behind it. Yes. Fujiwara Gumi runs until like mid 96. Yeah. But, you know, already was kind of slowing down earlier that year because of the most of the remaining Fujiwara guys forming battle arts. Yes. And I feel like people don't realize, like, it not a, there wasn't, like, an official relationship, but, like, Pancras and Rings had a connection because Chris Dolman was booking foreign talent for both promotions. He booked the Dutch guys into both promotions. Which I never knew until I heard Boss Root in interviews talking about it. And how, of course, the ring, the rings guys would talk to the Pancrase guys as if their matches were complete shoots. Which, not that the Pancrase ones necessarily were complete shoots, but they were still shoots more than rings was. Yes. Like, what, what do you think, though, of the idea of, like, what they saying? That they would be the first people with any kind of pro wrestler stigma joining rings but it's like i mean that's that's more shamrock than veil but even then with shamrock they've tried to hide that he had prior pro wrestling like what is the big distinction between pwfg and ring is that pwfg has the uwf and new japan lineage i guess it's fujiwara yeah but i mean veil i feel like doesn't have pro wrestler stigma at all it's just being in PWFG. Yeah, I guess. So, I mean, that's the main thing there. Okay. All right, speaking of rings, they ran in Tokyo on the 23rd. We have Masuna Guy over Masuki Naruse in your opener. Sotokachiev over Todorov. Yoshishi Yaburo over Yoshinori Nishi. Khan over Andre Termanzi. And then we had Mega Battle Tournament. Third place match, Akira Maeda over Erman Renting. Then our winner of our Mega Battle Tournament, Chris Dolman, not the football player, over Dirt Rear or Dirt Fry or whatever you want to call him. So there you Dick, go. Dick Leon Fry. Yes. Yes. So there's Riggs. All right. Let's go to Mexico now. Let's fix the international. This AAA, their first major show, Mexico City, came one week early in a different arena than announced last week. Last week, they announced the January 30th date at the 40,000 seat bullfighting arena for their first spectacular show. But during the past week, that car was postponed until a later date, but a January 22nd date in Ignacio Juan de la Barrera was added. They didn't have the results of the car at the time, but it was a typical show rather than a blowout show where Conan Albarro teamed with the Demu and Sodom and Grande in Tineblas against Ciencaras, Pascal Hunter Smith, and Hablaco Junior Top. At least the semifinals had a good old paper. As La Perea Otobica Jr., Ildo Santo and Eddie Guerrero wrestled Espanto Jr. and Jerry Estrada. El Santo and Gordy Guerrero were the fathers of the two uh, Tecnicos and tag team in the 50s known as La Perea Atomica, the Atomic Duo. The car ran on television on U.S. this coming Sunday, but only those Dave got about the first time was with a show of 10,000 fans. Well, let's go to Dave's TV review of this. Eddie and Ildo Santo's debut was... Pereja Atomica Jr. from Mexico City on the 22nd, aired Sunday, beating Espanto Jr. and Jerry Estrada in a four and a half star match. Finishing Moonsaw Santo, come off the top rope with a Summersaw Splash, Oto Estrada. 
Then land on his feet and immediately in the same motion, Esponto with a Frankenstein or Hurricane on his own Mexico. These four are all excellent technical wrestlers. This aired on Super Bowl Sunday U.S. It was two and a half hour special, just four matches airing, so there were some long matches. Drew saw 10,000 fans and an $80,000 gate. Although the crowd was older than a usual Mexico City crowd and thus a lot less generous in its reactions, the wrestlers in every match had their working shoes on. Pretty silent with the Japanese reactions, although the tag match was so good, they got everybody going. Highlight of the main event was seeing 53-year-old Tenebulus, who was never a decent worker in his prime, doing a crossbody out the top to the floor. That and seeing two foot four Luce, the tiniest midget around, wearing a suit that makes him like he's right out of Star Wars, working spots with Anja Blanco Jr. Okay, wait, is a Luce Caimanito? Is he really that short? That's what Dave had him at, two foot four. That sounds a, li- a tad low. <laughs> kind of, yeah, it does sound kind of. I would have thought he was at least three foot. But, uh, Four results, Mayflowers, Rudy Reina, and The Rose over Fantasma de la Comparada, Gallego, and Mr. Condor. La Rosa, Lolo Gonzalez, and Reina Gallegos over La Briosa, La Monstra, and Naftali. Angel Azteco, Solar, and Super Astro, Super Astro over Hecatombe, Mariboto, and Terremoto. Eddie and Santo over Spanta Jr. and Jerry Estrada, and Conan, Solomon Grundy, Tinebos over Han Blanco Jr., and Cien Carlos, and Mascar, and Yerosmil. Conan, who in Tinebos? Solomon Grundy. Thank you. You never missed that one. I was a little shocked. I didn't miss it before. Conan said to be looking huge. They even noted on television with the story that he's training with the current Mr. Mexico, the bodybuilder, not the wrestler. Yes. Yeah. Although, did he the wrestler get the... that name because he was a bodybuilder, though, right? Yes. Although Conan was uh, getting pretty jacked here, that's for sure. Yes, uh, that's it. Dave is right that Eddie and Santo against Espanto and Estrada match is fantastic. Yes. It's a shame we didn't get more of that Eddie Santo team. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since I gotta think Pena at least already has the idea in the back of his head of where they're going. Maybe he's not sure when he's gonna do it, but I gotta think he already knows he's eventually going to Eddie turning on him but I mean they they're aligned but they're not really a consistent tag team throughout the year yeah but they had great chemistry yeah alright similar the top few going around is between the trios champions Los Fidales Sutanico Morgan and Ibis Uno against Los Intocables put off Hakimate Masacre they've handlined nearly a half dozen shows over the past week in Mexico City area alone the natural feud between the trio Stallway and Miss Uno have been out of action for two months with a foot injury. On January 17th in Arena Color Sale, the Infernalis were disqualified in a non-title match. Titles changed by DQ Mexico, and rematch is held on the 22nd, also without the titles at stake. In the same building with Pedal pitted in Satanico, and the third fall was no doubt says a title match soon. On the 17th in front of 5,000 fans, we had Olympus Olympico over Rios Vellos and El Cotardo. Lagada and the Mestizo over Gerardo Samurai Dos and El Moro. Pupi 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 Tega, Strogolita and Cromagnan over Catacolini Jr., Shogun and El Filoso. Lucebel Jr. and Cadaver de Ultra Tumba and Espresso Jr. over Agada India, Bronze Patino. And then Into Cables over Infernales by disqualification. Then we go to the 22nd, where Catacolini Jr. and Filoso over Cortado and Baby Richard, one and a half stars. 
Flippy Takers and Chocolatita and Cromandin over Plata, Bronze, and Platino, two and a half stars. Fabuloso Blondie, Mano Negra, and Titan over Second Ramirez, Lasertron, and El Brazo, two stars. And Pedro Fagamante Massacre over Satanico Pirata and MSN, two and three quarter stars. So, yeah, they're really run, working this feud here. And Finalis and Intercoblis. Yeah. Yeah, and this promotion has not really dropped off yet. That's that's to come as the year goes on. It's getting there. They lost a lot of talent. Yes, they, yes. They definitely lost a lot of talent. Yes. Uh, is the El Moro here the the father of Superboy and company, or is it different El Moro? Different, different. Okay. Monterey, Perotto Morgan, Brazil de Plata, and Lafayette were put on probation by the promotion. Elizondo for going through the motions and rushed to a 12 minute three fall main event on January 17th, Monterey. Boy, could you imagine the repercussions if our system penalized wrestlers for rushing through main events? I mean, could you imagine what would happen if that happened in Mexico 10 years later? <laughs> yeah. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Well, good on Elizondo, I guess. Very what does Watson. probation even mean, though? I know it's very Bill Watson. Was it double secret? I guess. By the way, how about that? I I know I had seen it before, but not a long time. But did you see, like, got tweeted that Bill Watts promo after the Russian flag angle? Where, oh, like, yeah. Like, 95% of it, he's not even talking about the feud. He's just talking about how angry he is that the U.S. doesn't do more war crimes. And I am not exaggerating. I mean, he... At the time, there was a sentiment that USA need just should wipe out all these people like that, you know? Mm-hmm. But, like, and explicitly, it, he's like, the U.S. needs to stop playing by the rules. Yeah. But, I mean, you're yeah. older than me, so you would have a better idea. Like, yeah. I mean, that was the mentality at the time, you know? Why, why are we allowing people, you know, people like Russia and stuff like that to... Get away with what they get away with. Let's just wipe them out. Get them over with. You know? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, Latin Lover from Monterrey, a bodybuilder who's headlined that circuit, we brought to Mexico City in February as part of a trio with Monaco, Javier Cruz, and Apollo Dantes. Does that happen, or does he go straight to AAA? I think he does work so, but yeah. Hey, law. UWA. Crash is terminated from Wing. William DeMont from New Jersey, a Road Warrior Animal clone, debuted here as a, a, a Rudo on January 17th at Otoreo in Nakapan. Crash team with Scorpio Jr. and Shua Guerrero to beat Silver King, Tejano, and Gran Hamada. Our results of this card Richard in Espantos 4 and 5 over Rocket Satana, Bat Blue, and Mando Amesco Jr. Socorado and Scorpio Sr. in Interendro over The King, Celestial, and Transformer. Signo Negro and Black Power over the Vianos 1, 4, and 5. Crash, Terminator, Scorpio Jr., Shu Guerrero over Gran Hamada, Silver King, and Tejano. And Dos Caras, team with Canadian Vampire Casanova, to be Miguelito Perez and The Killer. Hmm. And uh, I did check, uh, Latin Lover does work uh, Arena Mexico and Arena Jose a little bit. Canadian Vampire Casanova. Yes. Whose results are these? Because these are not an observer format. They are observer. I just broke them up. Oh, uh, okay. So that's why I was going. I was going to say, who else would be calling him Canadian Vampire Casanova? Um. So yeah. So uh, Latin Lover 
he works uh, the February 19th Arena Mexico show, teaming with El Bronco and Oro to go over Grand Marcus Jr., Io de Solitario, and Hakimake. Uh, February 28th, Arena Mexico, teaming with King Haku and Oro. What a trio. To beat Fabuloso Blondi, Mano Negra, and Negro Casas. And he also works, obviously this could be incomplete. I'm just looking at cage match quickly. Uh, March 7th at Arena Coliseo, Mexico City, teaming with uh, Aguila, Solitaria, and Mascara Magica to go over Grand Marcus, Blondi, and uh, Javier Cruz. Nicaragua's retaining the middleweight title being Ultimate Dragon on January 19th of Cuernavaca. Oh, I'm sure that was fine. <sighs> Let's go to Puerto Rico. And WWE wrestlers Golden Phoenix, Mark Freer, who worked Memphis, Abuda Singh, John Rittner, Los Mahoney, and Ed the Razor were sent to the AWF in Puerto Rico, which is being run by Hugo Savinovich, former longtime wrestler TV announcer for Carlos Colon, and booked by Frenchie Martin. I asked Mark Freer, best known as New Jack's partner, homeboy. Yeah, the wrestler. So this is uh, Coraluzo sending the boys to uh, Mexico. No, Puerto Rico. Or Larry Sharp. Well, whatever, whichever one. Well, we'll have, we'll have different opinions on that when we get to the next section over who is in charge of WA. So. Oh, okay. Well, this is around when the split is. Anyway, um... AWF, I mean, there's also the whole thing where, like, Gordon Scazzari claimed that, like, he got involved in this AWF and was doing some of the booking, which I don't know how much of that I buy. He was involved, I just don't know, to that, if that, to, to that degree really tracks. Interesting that uh, it's Frenchie Martin is the booker. I did not know that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's success in Puerto Rico. I just don't know yeah. like, what kind of booking track record he had. He had, you know. Yeah. I double see Nimran Arcebo on January twenty third. Sequel Salvadoreño over Exotico. Vidal Javica won a street fight over El Profe. Jose Luis Rivera over Solid Gold twenty four carat. El Bronco number uno over Solid Gold fourteen carat. Uh, Mohamed Hussein and Lou Fabiano El Vigilante went to double count Ricky Santana and Rick Gonzalez in a tag title match. And then Invader Numero Uno over Fidel Sierra by DQ in your main event. I forget. So, who's who in solid gold? Um, One's one. The, the Strata Brothers, ain't they? Ain't that what that is? Jose and... What was the other one? I can't remember. And they're basically wearing the Conquistadors outfits. Yeah. So, there's international. Oh, it's Jose and Jose Jr. That's a hard, oh, so it's father and son. Yes. Yeah, when you okay. said brothers, that threw me a little. I forgot that there was only one. So, there you go. All right, it's halftime. So, that's some great 1993 commercials. We've the halftime set of the show. Where we'll talk about our Patreon. We'll uh, plug our streaming friends. All the other stuff we do. And then we'll come back. And we'll go to the indie scene where we have a wrestling convention in Philadelphia, which is pretty infamous, featuring Karen Reiner's last uh, recorded match, and uh, all kinds of wacky stuff going on Smoky Mountain in Memphis. So, all that more after the break. When you use the U.S. West Direct Yellow Pages, wonderful things can happen. Imagine me and you, and you and me, no matter how. 
they tossed the dice It had to be The only one for me is you And you for me So happy together I can't see me Loving nobody but you For all my life To plan a small get-together Or a lifetime together This is the one that gets used U.S. West do it lets them make high-quality milk. So when you want fresh, nutritious milk, don't look any farther than your own backyard. In fact, just look for the pride mark of the Dairy Farmers of Washington. Something big is coming to Seattle Tacoma, unlike anything you've ever seen. Home Depot opens January 28th, and home improvement will never be the same. Save time, save money with Rubber Set Painting Kits. The best choice for a superior finish with all paints. Rubber Set, the painter's choice at Eagle. For one day only, this Sunday, Collector's Art returns to the Seattle area to sell out over 2,000 beautiful oil paintings at $39 or less. Giant sofa-sized oils, $39. Incredible. In addition to these paintings, hundreds of our gallery-quality oils like you see here at unbelievably low prices. Don't miss Collector's Art. This Sunday only, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. In Seattle at South Center at the Doubletree Inn South Center. In Tacoma at the Sherwood Inn. In Everett at the Everett Quality Inn. And in Bellevue at the Bellevue Red Lion Hotel. Right now, you can get Sizzler's all-you-can-eat triple shrimp combo, crunchy golden fried shrimp, tangy shrimp cocktail, and savory Cajun shrimp. Can I have more of just the fried shrimp? Yes. Can I have more shrimp cocktail? Sure. Just Cajun shrimp? Yeah. Good. I'll take all three. The all-you-can-eat triple shrimp combo. As much as you want of what you want. For a limited time only, only at Sizzler. Honda didn't have it. Neither did Toyota or Nissan. Last year, Mercury Sable was the only car in its class from any manufacturer to offer the option of dual airbags. So how do we top that this year? We made them standard. Think smart. Think safe. Think Sable. At your Lincoln Mercury dealer now. Pet Melody runs one of the most popular bakeries in town. People come from all over for everything from fresh muffins to custom-decorated cakes. And now at QFC, they're coming in for something new. Introducing Veneto's Gourmet Coffees. They're made with only the finest beans from around the world and are now available in each of our full-service bakeries. Pat and all of QFC's bakery managers deliver the quality difference, something you'll only find at your neighborhood QFC. Sunday, 
a night of passion. You just have to protect yourself. Leads to a life or death decision. I'm just talking about spending the night. And what about your parents? What? I know I did the right thing. An all new Life Goes On Sunday. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed all those great 1993 commercials as we pivoted to halftime seven to show. Where we'll begin talking about Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And yes, we've already started recording our latest show. Our look at the 25th anniversary of the Finger Poke of Doom. And <laughs> it didn't take long for us to basically rebook the entire thing and make it a whole hell of a lot better than what it was. Yeah. So there's that. And there's other things that we discussed, too, as far as, uh, you know, ratings, business, and stuff like that. We're not done recording just yet, but there are a couple of interesting things to note in this show. As we always do, we always find things that kind of goes against previous narratives. And you definitely want to be listening to this show when we get to the talk about the ratings of that night of Raw and Nitro. So, so you definitely want to pay attention to that because it might be something that you don't expect to hear. Yes. And, but, you know, as we always hammer home too, like, yeah, I made sure to include a good amount of business info and stuff in the notes because like it was a wrestling boom at that point. It was not a WWF boom. Oh, deeply. Yes. Yeah. It's a heavy wrestling boom. Yes. But. You want to listen to the patron exclusive shows, and we got a bunch of good ones coming up soon. Um, I have the notes basically done now, four months in advance, uh, <laughs> for the next few shows after this. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm gonna tell you this: um, <laughs> these next four shows after this one are gonna be something else. <laughs> well, and probably the next one or two after that too. I just haven't done the notes yet. I know, but I'm just saying. Eh, <laughs> I think the word I want to use to describe the next four months is salacious. <laughs> That's all well, I'll say right the, now. The, the, the big three part or part of it is salacious, but it ends up most of it is more like wrestling, like palace intrigue and the like. I know, but there's a lot of salaciousness in these shows, folks. Yes. So <laughs> believe me, you want to be a part of this. Can we just so, announce what they are at this point? No, 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 not just yet. Not just yet. Not just yet. All right. You know, but if we could get like 14 <laughs> more subscriptions this month, there will be uh let's just, uh, we'll, we can say this. There's a, there's a lot of a uh, sexual talk. Uh, exactly. you well yes and no um <laughs> and i just teed that up for you and you just completely missed that little uh, going with that little hint i was trying to drop but okay i got you but i didn't but anyway listen out so well i mean that's always gonna be first announced on the patreon show then yes. the, the so that's that should make you want to uh, subscribe right there so you can find out I what the next month the big cares that much about the announcement but <laughs> Wow. But yes, I, I have notes done through May, and we already have what we want to do for June, and depending on how big the notes are, potentially July, uh, already picked out. So, some good stuff yeah. coming up, and even if uh, even if you're not super interested in the, the exclusive shows, you can always uh, 
Become a patron to support Chris buying uh, his new headset from uh, e- e- all caps Eagland. <laughs> I had to get something different. So, uh, which so, also, yeah, like I mean, it especially for like one of these just random Amazon like Chinese brand throws a bunch of letters together brands. It sounds fantastic. Well, that's good to hear. So. Because I'm not, I can't hear my, I haven't heard myself yet. But anyway, yeah, I mean, good old uh, echo sound test on Skype, Chris. You've been using <laughs> Skype long enough to know you can do that. I just never have done it. Anyway, okay, no, five dollars a month. Patreon.com/slash/twinsheets gets you access to all that and everything else that we've done in our seven full years of the Patreon. We're in year eight now, so um, yeah, tons of audio up for you guys to listen to. And then more great audio to come, believe me. Dollar month gets you access to the Discord and thanks to this segment. $25 allows you to pick a show for the week, which we'll have uh, next week. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, that's ominous for Bix. But, uh, yeah, so if you want to do that, have two shows in mind just in case a show that you uh, may want us to do. It could be something that we've done already. Or it could be something that uh, is already on the calendar that somebody else has picked that week for. So uh, let us know which which show you want us to do. Follow the protocol on the Patreon website to do that. And remember, we got the 30-day rule in effect, 10-year rule in effect, Wednesday to Tuesday on the timeline, all that stuff. If you have any questions, like I said, get with us and we'll help you out. And we'll get your show on the air. $50 a month allows you to uh, send in for a segment of that show if you choose, and 100 for the whole show if you choose. That's patreon.com slash between the sheets. And real quick, before we list off the new and returning patrons, don't forget, you know, the the latest show is the Von Erich show that we did, dropped at the end of uh, December, which we're still getting a lot of positive feedback on. And, uh, I mean, should also be, like there was last week, a free preview clip at the end of uh, this show, which... Maybe I'll also drop it on its own in the feed, but it's a little bit of Carrie Von Eric telling John Clark about his time in rehab was the uh, preview. So. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. So let's see. It, so no, not the deluge we had the last couple weeks. Well, we I mean, we had a lot and we definitely thank everyone. I mean, we had like, what, 30 something, 35 total in two weeks, 36. Something like that. Yeah. So. I mean, that was awesome, but yes, you know, back down to earth, we're in the past the middle of January now. We're all, we're over halfway through the month, which is insane to think about, and uh, so it's to be expected. But anyway, who who do we have this week as our new and or returning patrons? All right, we've got an annual subscription from the Fake White Shadow. Ah, oh, Fake White Shadow, thank you. And then we also have, and I I've checked, it's definitely not that one, Mark Coleman. I wish. But anyway, we thank you, Mark Coleman. Yes, this is a, a British Mark Coleman. Aha. Uh-huh. We thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, not the hammer. <laughs> that it? Yes. Okay. Well, so we thank all you uh, new patrons, old patrons, patrons that have uh, been there from the beginning, patrons that have left to come back. We thank you all for your patronage at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix, what's going on in the world of our streaming friends at IWTV and Fight TV, Trailer Plus? TV Plus, powered by Fight. Yeah, that. Um, 
I guess with Rumble re- Weekend and stuff, should I start with Fight? Uh, what do you think? Start whatever. Whatever. No matter to me. Okay. Might as well. So, actually, yeah, where is this first one? This is not one of the GCW shows. Um, yeah, where is it? It doesn't say where this one's taking place. Um, but Revolver has a show on Thursday night at 8 Eastern featuring the uh, John Moxley versus Gringo Loco match that had to be rescheduled after Moxley's concussion last year. So that's the main event on that. Show also includes uh, Alex Shelley versus Jake Christ. Uh, what else do we have here? Oh, Steve Macklin versus Mance Warner in a first-time ever match. That's interesting. Masha Slamovich versus Jake something. And more. So that's Revolver. And what was it that... I think they... At least when they were originally advertising that match, I think it was billed as a Lucha Street Fight or something? I don't know. Anyway. So meanwhile, in Tampa, GCW's got two shows... First, on Friday at 8 Eastern, they have Look At Me 2024, which is a show that includes, uh, at least from looking at the description on Triller TV+, Blake Christian defending the GCW title against Sawyer Wreck, uh, Jacob Fatu and Zilla Fatu against the main event, Dark Sheik versus Lindsay Snow versus Maki Ito versus Allie Catch in a four-way, Leo Rush versus Jack Cartwheel, Tony Deppin versus Mansoor, and Joey Janela versus AJ Francis. Yeah, the uh, ex-WWE folk are getting out there into the various indie scenes. Yeah, and apparently Mustafa Ali is moving a lot of tickets, too. Which, with what I've heard his rate, is he better? Well, I mean, he's... Mustafa's proven his worth. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, if, if he's drawing the houses that... The people are saying he's drawing, and he's hey, obviously he's worth the money. Yes, because the indies need a needle mover, and uh, if he's that guy, then yeah. But plus, you know, it's, plus he's doing videos. He's got a character. Like he's not just work rate guy Mustafa Ali. I, I do think that the, the the theory I've seen might be correct is that he's. Basically, going to do his thing for a little bit, and then he'll be back in WWE. So, but hey, I mean, do what you got to do. You know, I mean, get out there and and, and do some different things. Uh, he's going to be doing New Japan stuff. So, yeah, I mean, go out there and do your thing. Yeah, he's going to be a junior heavyweight though in New Japan, which uh, he may need to lay off his current supplementation and workout routine if he wants to make that weight limit. Uh, yeah, he's he's in great condition. Yes. So, GCW also, since it's a Destination Weekend, has on uh, Saturday at noon, Effie's Big Gay Brunch 8. With a lineup that includes, at least from looking at what's on here, uh, Dark Sheik versus Shea Monet, Jay Vidal versus Rico Gonzalez, Bussy taking on uh, the former Maximum Male Models, Mansoor and Mace. That's uh, Mansoir and Massebe. Okay, yes, thank you. Yes, if they're MXM or Maximum Male Models or whatever, yes, then they would be Mansoir and Masse. Uh Billy Dixon versus Akira as a maid Kira. Um, what else did they know? I think they. I saw them announce Sawyer Wreck versus Lindsay Snow uh, as well. 
So that's the latest Effie's Big Gay Brunch on uh, Triller TV, powered by Fight. And also, uh, Future Stars of Wrestling has a show on Sunday, and they have no matches listed here, and I'm not going to bother looking. But that's Sunday at 8 Eastern. Or at least it's premiering it. I don't know if it's live live. But, yes, if you're not already a subscriber to uh, Triller TV+, Plus, go to tinyurl.com slash bcstriller, and we'll get a referral fee from your subscription. And you can also use that for if you're getting any uh, iPay-per-views from Triller TV. Or as Kevin Sullivan would say, Trilla. Isn't that also what, how he referred to Michael Jackson's uh, record-setting album? <laughs> Thrilla. No, I think he would say Thrilla, thrilla wouldn't he? Thrilla, Maybe, who knows? Thrilla. Who knows? Do you think he was a good father and wanted for Ben? <laughs> it's possible. Anyway, IWTV. Some interesting-looking stuff coming up on the live streams uh, this coming weekend. St. Louis Anarchy uh, has a show Friday night at 8 Eastern. That includes uh, Derek Neal defending the Gateway Heritage title against a mystery opponent. Dog collar match between Manders and Mad Dog Connolly. Uh, Aaron Williams versus the uh, repackaged Warhorse. Uh, Destinations Championship, Shaza McKenzie versus Davey Vega in your uh, wrestling couple offer match. Gary <laughs> J versus Laney Luck. And and some other matches featuring you know, more of the locals. So, fun-looking show on paper there from the folks at St. Louis Anarchy. So yeah, that looks like a pretty fun show on paper. And moving on to Saturday, guess what, Chris? An ICW No Holds Barred show. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. On a weekend with indie wrestling. Well, hey, good for them. Yes. At the uh, H2O Wrestling Center in Williamstown, New Jersey, Saturday at 8 p.m. includes uh, Hoodfoot defending the American Death Match Championship against Killdozer Matt Dremont, Cruel versus Atticus Kogar. Uh, anything else jumping out here? Not really. So Let's uh, move on to the next show. Oh! Our friends at uh, PWF Crystal Coast in uh, North Carolina on Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern with Fallout. We've got PWF title, hardcore match, Cruel defending the title against uh, Bojack, I guess exercising his rematch clause. Uh, PWF tag team titles, Out of This World defending against the Ugly Sucklings of Rob Killjoy and... Uh, White Mike, and uh, Ella Envy taking on the debuting Kaya McKenna at PWF. So, I'm sure there's more, potentially a Colby Carino match and stuff, unless he's booked elsewhere, which I don't know if he is, but that's what's listed right now. Also on Sunday, and they shouldn't overlap too much because the PWF shows are kept fairly short, um... The Carinos have that kind of Matt Griffin mentality about timing out a show. Uh, Beyond has a show, Lights, Camera, Wrestling, Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern, which includes uh, Josh Alexander versus TJ Crawford, Alec Price versus Brad Hollister, uh, Ishiban versus Matt Mikowski, Marcus Mathers versus Richard Holiday, uh, Janai Kai versus Kennedy Copeland, uh, 
Mike Santana is on the show image, but is not mentioned in the match list, at least as of yet. So I'm assuming he's on the show because I don't think he's injured or anything. So that's that. So yeah, if you're not already an IWTV subscriber, use code BTSPOD at sign up and we will get a referral fee for each month each day paid subscriber. So it's independentwrestling.tv code BTSPOD. All right. Well, today's episode of Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, you're in service provider storing your browsing data many times even selling it. But private internet access can help. Private internet access encrypts and reroutes your internet, ser- internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from, from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private internet access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, excuse me, open-source security, advanced customization settings, so it's just ranking the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mac. And if you sign up private internet access right now, you can take advantage of special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Well, we have three different things we can offer you, three options. You can go monthly at $11.95 a month. You can go yearly at $3.33 a month or $39.95 a year. Or you can take the number one deal. Three years plus four free months at $1.98 a month, $79 for the first three years, yearly thereafter, 83% off, the best damn deal in the business. Why is that? Because there's so much more inexpensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, you can take advantage of private internet access 30-day risk-free challenge. Try it after 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just return it for a full refund. So how do you get that, you ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. All right. <laughs> Here we go, Bix. Next week on Between the Sheets, we have a Patreon-requested show. And uh, <laughs> it is a doozy. I'm telling you. Um I'm trying to get to my thing where the patron is, Bix. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I can't remember. Uh, the calendar. The calendar. Sean Doherty. Sean yes. Doherty um, is uh, requested the show. And we're going to go back to 2014. And you know what that means. <laughs> yes, folks. Royal Rumble 2014. And... The night afterwards, CM Punk walks out of World Wrestling Entertainment. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that. Yes, all that, that. That section, it is the longest section <laughs> in between the sheets history. I mean, Coming it's a thirty in, page, yes, WWE section. They're twenty nine page, twenty nine pages. Yeah, so it's probably going to be broken into. What, probably two or three sections, probably a punk section, and then either a rest of WWE section or a punk, or a Rumble section and a rest of WWE section. Yeah, the Rumble, I mean, Punk on its own is like six pages. Uh, the Rumble, uh, let's see, the Rumble itself, that whole shebang is... 12 pages 
12 pages on the Rumble. And how long did you say Punk was? Six. Okay. And it, and then the rest is not is uh, nine. <laughs> I was honestly surprised that there was even that that there was six pages of punk stuff because like our my memory of everything is that it's I mean, it's not like there was much detail right away. Well, the main gist of the whole thing is that it, Dave is hitting punk's area Hawaii interview. Oh right, because that came that was that weekend. Yeah. So that's that's so, the right. There was a lot of stuff that was interesting with a few days of hindsight. Yeah. So it's a heavy, heavy, heavy WWE section. Now the rest of the show, uh, whatever we have left, we got a Ring of Honor uh, show to talk about. They had a show just for the Royal Rumble, so we'll talk about that. We got um, CMLO. They're getting ready for uh, for their next big show, Dos Leandas. Triple A taping TV during our week. Osaka Pro closing up the shop. No, that's it. Yeah, a big name in pro wrestling. Noah is training at the Performance Center. <laughs> New Japan contract. Wait, 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 uh, wait, wait, is that wait is that Kenta already or was that later? Mm-hmm, that's Kenta. Oh God, that was 2014. And then you have a uh, one of the big top foreign stars in New Japan is weighing his options. With WWE. And we have TNA in the UK. So we'll talk about them taping television over there and uh, what a tour this is. Yeah. You know, when I saw the notes, I was trying to remember. I was like, oh, God, if this is the tour with uh, the Spud EC3 hair match and the referendum on blading, then I'm just going to cancel next week's show. But because no, <laughs> that, that would have. Uh, that would have made things even longer, but no, that was until like what 2016, 2015, maybe. Yeah, it, so it, it wasn't that long thereafter, but it was after. So, so yes, this is the ten year limit right here. So he uh, he got us on this one, but yeah, so this will be a different show. I mean, there's not going to be a lot of uh, results and stuff like that. It is a streamlined show because of the WWE dominance, but. Hey, Sean wants it. He put the money down, so he's going to get it. So uh, next week on Between the Sheets, and definitely no guest. Did you try checking uh, to see if there was anything on the Wayback Machine on like a PW Insider or anything or nah? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think I got enough. (laughs) I think I got enough because the Torch had a lot of overlap, and I just – there was some things from the Torch that were interesting that I put through in here, but it's a heavy day. Well, also – the. Thinking about it more, the Mike stuff about Punk, if I remember right, got wasn't it wasn't the first week where it was clear he was the one getting all the scoops. It was more as the months went by. Yeah, so that's next week. So anyway, all right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K R I S Z E L N E R. Show proper BT She's Pod, Bix at David Bix, and uh, yeah, I mean. Uh, some things, interesting things this week. Dark Side of the Ring is coming back. Yes. Um, so we have I mean, that. No, no topic. I mean, it's not officially announced yet, but no. So we don't know any topics beyond. So Chris Adams, supposedly. Well, I was going to say, based on interviews that have been done, it seems the, the ones that we can glean, I guess, are Chris Adams and Eddie Gilbert. Yeah. Because Missy had said that they interviewed her about Eddie, right? Yeah, so that's interesting enough right there. Yeah, because, I mean, I mean, I've said this before. I think I may have even said it to the Dark Side people. 
you know, when they've asked about like doing books or anything about Eddie Gilbert, the thing I always tell them is like, it's a headache to do what you want because Missy and Doug don't want to talk about Eddie's drug use. And, or at least Doug definitely doesn't. And Missy has shown a time she didn't want to. Also, Doug doesn't want to be involved in anything Missy's in. So if they got an Eddie episode and they got Missy and Doug both agree to do interviews, I'm very curious to see how that turns out. Yeah, so it should be interesting. So, so yeah, so that's uh, good to see that that's coming back soon, sometime soon. So Yeah, well, it said March, so the announcement should be coming any day now, right? Yeah. So there's that. Um, I did put something up new on my Substack uh, about how, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, so our dear friend Corey Gibson um, did some research to get some scans of some WWF articles in the uh, trade publication amusement business. He dug into some microfilm and all that, and uh, it included their coverage of WrestleMania three. And guess what, Chris? Yeah, we've got uh, more uh, Silver Dome attendance lore. The funny thing about that was, was that I think that you had posted that on the night when all the shit was going on involving uh, Tony Khan and gender, and. <laughs> I saw a couple of people were like, only Bix would be tweeting about WrestleMania 3 when, well, when all this stuff's going Well, here's the thing. But fucking Brandon was breathing down my neck about how he wanted to do something if I wasn't writing it first. Oh, boy. I, uh, so competition. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> Goodness gracious. So, but I he, he was giving me the leeway to get it out first if I was already writing something, which I was. So... Yes, so that's what that was. But yes, uh, the guy running the Silver Dome told uh, Amusement Business that he said 93-173 was the number of people total in the building, I guess including staff and stuff. And he said 88,100 tickets sold. Now, there are also numbers in the article that come from WWF that are obviously complete nonsense about closed circuit and pay-per-view. The number they give for closed circuit, based on the other numbers they give in the same article, basically would mean that every closed circuit location sold out, which did not happen. But, yeah, so now we have more there, and we have the Silver Dome saying that, and I don't know. I mean, you know, Dave has said in recent years, Meltzer, that, like, the Silver Dome admitted it, which it doesn't seem like there's any proof they did, and he never said this before the last couple of years, so who knows, but I don't think we're ever going to know for sure. You know, and there's reason. There are reasons why, like, uh, the suites and stuff, like, would not be included on the paperwork that Dave saw, because like there are building settlements that don't always include those. Like, I have seen them. Brandon seen them. So, like, it is possible for something like that to happen. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that Dave's lying or anything about what he saw. It just means that the official paperwork may not have been fully representative of the full number of people in the building, but who knows? So anyway, that's that. I mean, anything else to talk about, about current stuff? I mean, there was, we had Tony hindering gender last week. Uh, I mean, Samoa Joe and hook had a hell of a fucking match. Yes. Which people were losing their minds over for, for, for I mean, <sighs> 
uh, people complaining about Hook kicking on the muscle buster at one and all that shit. Yeah, in a so match that was otherwise a squash. It was the way to make him look strong in the match. I mean, it's just people. I, I, I mean, it's people doing their gimmicks. I mean, I get it. It's people doing gimmicks and people just wanting to hate on AEW because they want to hate on AEW. It's, I mean, it's just, it's just what that is. And it's the same people that hate on WWE because they want to hit on WWE. It's just, it's so stupid. Yes. It's so, so stupid. Yes. But also, that's where I'll, we're at. Also, I've been getting tired of Timeless Tony, but I did love uh, her on commentary thinking that uh, late substitute announcer Ian Riccoboni was Tony Schiavone. I'll say, I'm going to say this about Tony. I mean, she's amazing at, perform, at performing this gimmick. All right? Yeah. And, I mean, she plays it extremely well. I think her best work is when she does commentary. Yes. I really do because, I mean, she's very quick with everything too. I mean, just very quick, and it's all and it's off the cuff and stuff. Yeah, I, she's, I th- she's more entertaining with the gimmick when she's more off the cuff. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, her on the uh, dynamite, but I mean, I do I, I do see where people you know people might be getting a little tired of it and stuff like that. It's understandable, but I thought she did well. And then we had the. Uh, Nicholas and Matthew Jackson promo. Yes, whose gimmick appears to be that CM Punk drove them insane. <laughs> well, no, it's tell, not uh, that. Tell me when I'm telling lies, Chris. It's not that. It's that I think their gimmick is, and, and I think it's Rob Bahari who you know said it, and I agree with him. It's oh, like, it's leaning into we need to be real VPs, yes. Yes, leaning into what people were saying about them. Yes. You know? So they're taking the criticism and using it as an angle. Which is what so, the Young Bucks have always done. Yes. Whether you like them or not, this is what they have always done. Yes. So, we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes from here. But, I mean, AEW's had some really really strong wrestling, you know, since the Continental Classic. Ratings haven't been that hot. No. They have some strong wrestling. I mean, the, um, the storytelling in the booking has gotten a little tighter in the last, you know, month or so, too. I mean, we'll just see where it all ends up. Uh, WWE, I mean, as we're recording this week, Seth Rollins hurt his knee in the gender match. Don't know how serious that will be, but boy, boy, would that suck for him if he's not able to work Mania in the proposed pump match. God almighty. Talk about <laughs> worst possible timing. To getting hurt, and and if he's not, if he's seriously injured, I mean, would do they just make the t- make the uh, rumble for the title? Hmm. I mean, I think that's what they need to do. You know, probably. But then, but then you t- and so if I mean, if you do that, you can you're taking away the WrestleMania thing. But I mean, you can still main event night. I mean, if you're main event WrestleMania, you didn't say which night. So you can main event night one and then have, you know, Roman and whoever main event night two. So, and it's something that, you know, ain't nothing about The Rock in the last, you know, week or so, week and a half. So, I mean, I'm sure something's going to happen. But the question I have with him is the timing of WrestleMania He's his heavy involvement in the now United Football League. I mean, 
that's the second week of their season. Their their season is that is that weekend. So I don't know. I I, I just I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Well, anyway, but it, let's close this out because I see what time. All right. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's get back to the rest of the show. All right. Let's get back to the U.S. now and let's go to Philadelphia, where there was a wrestling convention held over the weekend at Philly yes. with the form formerly known as the Ultimate Warrior. Formerly known as the British Bulldog, currently known as Road Warrior Animal, would be currently known as Carrie Von Eric if he can remember his name and what city he's in. Yeah. Sid Vicious, Terry Funk, Woman, and others. Kevin Sullivan no showed for reasons not having to do with the promoters or Sullivan and Road Warrior Hawk no showed as well. And uh, John McAdam was not the show either, even though Big Thought he was. <laughs> But he heard everything relevant, so he's going to have some good insight, regardless. Uh, but. I, I mean, I was at a convention uh, the summer before. It was the yes. very end of August yes, of 19... 19- yes, I. Yes, John Arezzi's con- lit convention that year. Oh, okay, right. You were at that one um, in 92, and Kerry was there, and Kerry just didn't look right. He didn't seem right. Um, it was kind of embarrassing. I felt bad for the guy. He tried to sell the robe he wore at Texas Stadium in 1984 when he uh, won the, the NWA title from Ric Flair. He tried to auction off the robe, and they were no bidders whatsoever. The, the bidding started at $900, and there was there was silence. And Terry well, uh, Bell was and not happy. Because I've seen the video, at auctioneer Eddie Gilbert kind of then tries to cover for it like, oh, well, you know, this this is this is a special item. We'll take the bids uh, privately. Nice of Eddie. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think Eddie, did he sell that jacket at that? His He sold one of his jackets to one of my friends. I have really embarrassing pictures of me posing wearing the jacket. Okay, we need to see this, but... <laughs> I'll um, get them to you. I mean, the thing, and, you know, we'll get into more about Carrie and the stories coming out of this convention, too. But, like, I mean, the, I mean, the thing, I think, was that the way we heard it was that, like, as bad as he was in New York, he was worse in Philly. I mean, I wasn't there firsthand, but I think, you know, I think it was Dave Melcher who said, you know, Carrie Von Erich, if he could remember his name and what city he's in, right, just that, was yeah, not an fair. exaggeration. I mean, Carrie... From what I understand, the whole weekend, he was completely out of it, and I mean out of it. And, I mean, he was at a bar, like, throwing darts from across the bar and people screaming and running out of the way. Uh, There's another story about him calling a nightclub and saying, hey, you better beef up security. The world-famous Kerry Von Erich is on his way, and they're like, who? What? What are you talking about? And then he gets there, and no one even recognizes him. And so Kerry just, you know, towards the end of his life, I mean, it it was sad. It was, you know, Kerry, it's not Dallas 1983 anymore. You're not 24 years old anymore. You know, you're this guy in in your mid-30s. And there are plenty of good-looking bodybuilders in the world today. And, you know, just that that era had passed him by when he was that megastar 
in that area and even outside that area. I mean, I went to the World Class Show in Lynn, Massachusetts in 1985, and the place was wild for Kerry. If you put in AWA Super Clash 85, the one from Comiskey Park, you know, Kerry comes out and you hear the girls all screaming for him. And, you know, those days were over. It was like Kerry couldn't accept it. Yeah. yeah, and you know, there's I forget if we've ever read it on the main show. There's also um, the letter Tom Robinson wrote to the Observer after Kerry died, talking about his experience with Kerry at the bar during the convention, and and Tom, Tom didn't even put the good stuff in that letter, by the way. Oh boy, but it was <laughs> like it was stuff about like you know just you know bragging about obviously made up things, and but then also like. Tom found a note Carrie had scribbled where he's basically just wallowing in his own pity and writing all this woe is me stuff just on a yeah. napkin. It just, I mean, it just adds to what we know. Carrie was in a terrible place mentally, uh, obviously. Um, and things got worse because he, I mean, he barely escaped going to prison um, over, you know, his various drug issues. The and before, you know, yeah. Yeah, and he violated his probation by uh, forging a prescription, and Kerry, I think it was very likely, had Kerry not killed himself, he would have gone to prison, and my understanding is, is, is that life in Texas prisons is not very fun. And he's Kerry Von Erich, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I mean, that's another thing, too, he's such a celebrity in Texas, that you know, at that time, the nineteen ninety three, it's not like it is now. He where he probably would have been more protected. So right. I mean, it's not like there was like a drug court or whatever back then where the priority would be getting him help. Yes, yeah, for but I'm talking about if he went to pr- actual prison. Oh, uh, you know, he could have been in there with some guys that would have wanted to test him. Yeah. Or know? not even test him. Just you know, hey, you know this. They would have targeted him just for the sake of targeting him because yeah. he was a celebrity. Exactly. Yeah. And I hate to say this, and I, I know to a lot of people this is going to come across as just a, a nice, not nice, very not very nice thing to say. But when I got the word that Carrie had died, and you know, I, I wasn't surprised. I was just like, you know, this this felt like. It was inevitable because Kerry had been doing so poorly for so long. Um, there, there was a lot of stuff in his WWF run that wasn't good. You know, he was finally no longer under his dad's protection. He got in the real world of the WWF locker room, and it didn't always go well. And he, and had, he had a lot of problems. Even a lot of problems. suicide part, I mean, you and I both witnessed him. I can never remember because I... I mean, the, what happened was, I've told the story on the show before, and we talked about it off air, you can verify this, at that Arezzi convention, so, you know, this is, you know, five months earlier, probably like four and a half months, everyone's just doing their thing in the big ballroom where the convention is, all of a sudden, there is an extremely loud thud coming from the main entrance to the room. <laughs> and everyone turns around, and it's Carrie Von Eric staggering, dusting himself off, and... I don't remember if he fell down or if he walked because and like tripped over something. I don't remember if he just walked into the door frame, but it was so loud 
the code mm-hmm. that he made by whatever happened. And, like, I mean, you gotta remember, I am not even eight years old at this point. And everyone, but the thing you hear everyone saying, I think even my dad saying was, like, everyone was just, like, sad and shocked and just, like, you hear everyone saying, like, oh, he's on drugs. And and that, you know, I, I can't say this for sure, but... I, if Kerry went through that weekend in that state, both weekends, Philadelphia and New York, it's probable it's probable that he was going through life in that state. And that's just sad. I mean, look, something we've talked about on this show before, especially it was once I uh, found the copy of the home video version of that second WBF show where they show him at the they interview him at the fitness expo. And it's that is when he was right out of rehab and still under contract. And he's like a different human being. And you see stuff like that. There are other moments where you can tell he's more straight. But still, when you see those moments where he is clearly with a clear head, you realize that a massive chunk of his public life that we saw, he was loaded. Yeah. I mean, and we're talking on camera in world class a lot of the time where he just seems disoriented. Well, you watch you watch like that very early 1982 world class stuff that's on there. I mean, the earliest stuff they got on there and their promos where he just he's just out of out of his mind. Yeah. And I mean, that's early 82 before they really are going through their major popularity boom. Yeah. And then, you know, when they. you know, they start building up all the stuff with Flair and well, it was, it was after the first Flair match when they're building up the cage match and he's recovering from knee surgery. They have him going on TV, doing these pre-tapes, obviously high, like not even necessarily abusing it, but obviously high on painkillers that he's taking after the knee surgery. Yeah. Too. Like, it's just a shame. And then, you know, like, and also just because everything we know about the guy from when he did have his shit at least a little together, you don't hear a bad word about him. Like, you always hear these stories about just what a nice guy he was. And, you know, the thing Brett said in his book, I think, was very accurate. The people kind of mistook him for an idiot because he was loaded all the time. That I mean, that's a that's a good point. I have always thought that Kerry was kind of low IQ, to be honest with you. But maybe that wasn't it. Maybe he, you know, he was just out of it all the time, which is, again, once again, it's very sad. You know, there's that story about that match in 1985. Um, I have to ask Lance Peterson next time I have him on a stick to wrestling about this, where he they, you know, it's match time and they can't find Kerry. It was the day and, his, uh, his dog had died was the was apparently what happened. Yeah. Allegedly. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, they finally find him in his car completely passed out. And, you know, they, they don't change the plan to do an hour with Ric Flair, which is kind of stupid. They, they change, okay, we're having a five-minute match well, tonight. they were booked into a corner as to the finish because there were all sorts of stipulations. Yeah. I forget exactly what, but it was it was they were booked into a corner – where the only finish really they could do was a time limit draw. All and right. It was so bad. Like they showed it like a minute of clips and then they were like, Oh yeah. Oh, he had a high fever, but he wrestled anyway. And like, mm-hmm. this, 
the thing I I don't know if he was there or had it described to him. Well, no, Melter wasn't living there anymore, so we had I guess he had it described to him. I think the the Melter description was Carrie tried to do the your opponent's on the mat, you grab his leg, you do the kind of the handstand into the knee drop on the leg, and he tried doing that and just toppled over. <sighs> I mean, I, the stories are bad, and like I said, I mean they. Like you said, uh, David, they went on TV later and apologized, basically. And, you know, they went with the story. Oh, Carrie had a 105 degree fever and the doctors begged him not to go not to wrestle. But he had to anyway. And it's just to me, you just can't do the hour draw if you can't. You know, if if they were booked into a corner, which, by the way, is why I think David Von Erich was winning the NWA title uh, because that looked like they, they booked themselves into a corner. Um, you know, they should have said, look, you know, Carrie can't wrestle tonight. We're having a sub. Sorry. And I know uh, that sucks. That's that's not ideal. But what they did certainly was less than ideal. Yeah. Well, I uh, can tell you this. You can out the steps, too, if it's not Carrie. So. Okay. Yeah. I, I can tell you this. Like, uh, I talked to Kevin Von Erich. Kevin Von Erich used to just call me and hang out uh, like, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And Kevin is sharp. And before anyone says, no, Kevin's not smart, you haven't talked to him. I have. And Kevin was a really sharp guy. I've I've had interactions with Kevin on, on Twitter and stuff. And, yeah, I mean, Kevin is a, is a sharp guy. He definitely is. Let, look at it this way, right? I'm on the phone with him. I want to say 96, 97. So it's like a 11, 12 years after the fact. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I saw you guys wrestle when you came to Lynn Mass. Where was it? And he goes, the Manning Bowl. Now, think about all the places Kevin Von Erich has wrestled. <laughs> and he knows what the venue's name in, in, in Lynn is, and I don't. In fairness, it, it, of all the venue names to remember, I would think the Manning Bowl would stand out to someone who was wrestling in that company. <laughs> Maybe. Because I wasn't David wrestling Manning. in the company, so I couldn't yeah. remember the name of the place. The David Manning Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's get back to 93. As uh, Yeah, we continue here as I get my spot back. As part of the convention, they held a joint ECW and WWA wrestling show. At the hotel, joined 670 fans for a Terry Funk versus Eddie Gilbert I Quit match, which saw Funk win a four and three quarter star match. After the match, Gilbert claimed he didn't quit and then attacked co promoter Dennis Corluzzo, saying he'd been ripped off and lied to by so many promoters as he had his foot over Corluzzo's, Corluzzo's throat. Funniest story from the car was they asked Carrie to fill in for Kevin Sullivan against Salvatore Belomo. Carrie was supposed to wear a mask as woman's secret weapon. Carrie went to the ring wearing the mask, but had a, a ring jacket with Carrie on the back. As silly as that sounds, he was stopped backstage before he got out, and someone told him that his name was on the ring jacket. And he's supposed to be a mask guy, so take the jacket off. Von Eric took the jacket off, walked about 10 yards, seemingly forgot, put the jacket back on, then went through the entranceway to the crowd and worked about a 60 second match. That Another. encompasses Carrie Von Eric in 1993. <laughs> that, that's the ultimate Carrie Von Eric story. Yeah. Um, finish the Another and stuff here, and then I'm going to want to get into, because, and we did not talk about this on the Todd is God Patreon shows, but I want to read what Todd Gordon wrote in his book about this show. Okay. Another highlight was unification match between ECW champion The Sandman, or probably still maybe Mr. Sandman here, and WWE champ Sp- The Spider, Glenn Roof. 
I think he had switched to just Sandman by this point, even though he was still doing the surfer gimmick. And, and Glenn Roof, future headbanger. Co-promoters of the show, Todd Gordon and Des Corluzzo was in their respective corners. They did a finish when the promoters got into it, and the wrestlers from each promotion brawled with the other side after the non-decision. All right, results of the show. From Battle of the Belts is what this show was named. Ray Odyssey over Chris Evans. 670 fans attended this show, by the way. Uh, ECW versus WWE Tag Titles. The Super Destroyers beat the Lords of Darkness. Barry Hardy and Dwayne Gill under mask. Te- uh, Texas Border Update Fist Match. Johnny Hotbody beat Tony Stetson. Davy Boy Smith over the Superstar. Mass Superstar, yeah. I think, in theory. Yeah, not Bill Eaton. Carrie Von Eric over Sal Balomo. Sandman WQ with Spider in the Tata vs. Tata match. And then Terry Funk over Eddie Gilbert in the Texas Def I Quit match. Johnny Nobody, that one of the worst people <laughs> I've ever been around. Johnny nobody. <laughs> <laughs> that guy was a jerk. <laughs> he just faded away right as ECW was starting to become a thing. And uh, yeah, never heard from again, basically. Yeah, it outgrew Johnny Nobody. <laughs> All right, Bix, what did, what did Todd have to say about this? Well, uh, read this, this last deal. part before I. Uh, oh, okay. Well, Larry Sharp, uh, who was still Corluso's business partner in WWE, wasn't involved with the car because he had his piece of the show bought out. And as it would turn out, this is right around when Larry and Dennis have their split. Oh, I'm so sh- I'm shocked. Yeah, yeah I, I loved Dennis to death. I really did. But I mean, he, he you know, if, if one guy's having a falling out with everybody, you, you know who the problem is. <laughs> and like I said, I loved Dennis to death, but you know, you know the deal with him. But yes, Larry keeps the WWA and Dennis start, you know, becomes an NWA member and starts running under the NWA banner. So yes, now we go to Todd is God by Todd Gordon and uh, Sean Oliver. And so he's talking about scheduling the initial TV taping and stuff. And then we get this. Around this time, I got a call from Dennis Corluzzo, who was a local indie promoter out of South Jersey. He was running a big card out of excuse me, he was running a big card as part of a wrestling convention at a hotel in Philadelphia, which violated our gentleman's agreement to stay out of each other's territories. <laughs> I'd stay in Philly, and Dennis would keep to Jersey. But since he was part of the convention here in Philly, he offered me a percentage of the take and also allowed ECW to have a match in which we could feature some of our talent. We booked his champion, Spider, against our guy, Sandman. Now, real quick, because I forgot to mention it, we haven't talked about who, why this convention is in Philly proper and who's promoting it, which we should. Uh, go ahead. Wrestling Flyer publisher and uh, Teenage Whiz kid, John Clark. And I Phil- the- Philadelphia newscasting legend, John Clark, now. Yes. Yes. I checked the issues of Wrestling Flyer leading up to the convention, and you will never guess what happened. He uh, pulled a Wade Keller covering pro wrestling focus in the torch and just kind of danced around the fact that he was promoting the convention. <laughs> Amazing. Which, yeah, I think people know this more for, if from the Patreon shows, I think, than on the main shows. And I'm curious what John thinks of this, by the way. You look at the torches circa, like, 93 when Wade had the radio show. And he has this bizarre habit of always calling it pro wrestling focus on KFAN without saying it's his radio show. 
I, you know what? This is something I'm unaware of. I've, I've never, I've subscribed, or back then I subscribed to the Torch on and off, but I, I did not hear the radio show. But that's kind of weird that he kind of separ- separated the two. I guess I can see reasons why he might want to do that. Yeah, well, and also, like the, uh, well, he would use like the other host's name. He was the, yeah, George the other Shire. host. Yeah, George Shire. Yeah. And also, this is around, at least where we are now, is around the launch of the Real Wrestling Hotline, and probably, I don't know if the Bruce Mitchell column about it has happened yet, but there are probably also some people who are wanting, in doing wrestling newsletters, who want to hide their associations with promoting, lest they get called out in the torch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Because Bruce wrote this whole column about, like, is it really ethical for Dave to be in business, you know, doing the hotline alongside people who are providing shows and blah, blah, you know, like, you know, you know, like, cause I think what, I think initially Cornette and Heyman were both on it. Right. And Heyman was, I may, I, maybe it was later in the year. Cause he had announced WWN, I think by then, but anyway, still it's, it's, it's a pattern we see at this time. So anyway, back, back to Todd God. Dennis had WCW heel, that's a weird thing to call him in 1993, Kevin Sullivan in town for both his convention and the card that night. At some point before the card, Sullivan inexplicably said the cops were after him and he had to bail. <laughs> Maybe they were from the future and got sent <laughs> after him by internet conspiracy theorists. <laughs> he was gone and Dennis now needed a replacement for him. Fortunately, there were a handful of stars still hanging around at the convention. I wanted to help Dennis out on his trip into the city of brotherly love, so I approached Kerry Von Erich, the talented though troubled star of Dallas's world-class championship wrestling, and a member of the equally troubled Von Erich wrestling dynasty. He agreed to fill in for Sullivan. A word about Kerry. He was a super Adonis type. Looked right and moved equally as well in the ring. He could grapple. He could also fly high. He was great. When he was sober. This was near the end for Kerry, and there were reports of him falling asleep face-first in plates of food at restaurants, in full view of fans. From what I'd heard, Kerry was always a little slow on the uptake anyway. Add that to any chemicals he might have been taking, and you've got a recipe for a scene worthy of the Marx Brothers. I told Kerry we were going to make his appearance in the ring a surprise, so I wanted him to come out in a mask, known as a hood to a wrestler. Okay, he said. Then, wait, why am I wearing a hood? It's a surprise, Carrie. Nancy will bring you to the ring instead of Kevin. Pull off your hood, and the crowd will pop. Yeah, so we should note that, by the way. Kevin's wife stayed while he's on the run from the cops. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. Carrie wandered off, wearing a blank stare while struggling to digest the concept. The show was ready to start, and Carrie was there at the appointed time. So far, so good. Hey, man, Carrie said as he approached me backstage. Why am I wearing a hood? Maybe he'd forgotten. It was an hour or so since I'd explained it, after all. So I told him he was the surprise guest that night, and he'd come out in the mask, keeping the fans guessing until he ripped it off and revealed himself. Oh, and off he went. The show began, and I got the mask he'd be using for his match. I brought it to him, went over the match with him, and told him I'd see him out there. He stopped me. Why do you want me in the hood? (laughs) I explained it again. I walked away wondering... If I should just put on the damn mask myself and work the match, but this body isn't made for television unless it's on Cartoon Network. I just cross my fingers. The time arrived for Kerry's match, and I watched my my masked mystery wrestler step through the curtain 
wearing a ring jacket with a glittery carry emblazoned on the back. I dropped my head into my hands. Maybe he'd realize it before he got to the ring and slip out of the jacket. Only the fans seated on the aisle would have seen it. I picked up my head in time to see him prancing around in the center of the ring wearing a fucking mask with his name stitched onto his jacket. That was that. I didn't even bother to explain to him what he'd done wrong. He wouldn't have gotten it. He was too far gone, and then... Sadly, he, you know, he talks about how he... I mean, he says a few days later, but it was a month later that he took his life. Uh, Corluzo came up to me after the show and thanked me for helping out, which I was more than happy to do. Any show that does well in our area was a big rub for business. Besides, I did have a piece of the show due to his promoting it in my territory. I'd be nuts to have wanted it to fail. Just one thing, Corluzo said. If my partner Larry Sharp calls you, tell him we had 3,500 people here tonight. Dennis was messing up his zeros with that figure, and I didn't understand his motivation for lying to his own business partner. But there he was, asking me for asking me to lie for him on our first deal together. Talk about a red flag. I told him that was between him and Larry, and I wanted nothing to do with it. It is said the universe has some balance to it. At the same event that featured the Carrie Von Eric episode, I'd meet Eddie Gilbert. Yeah, and the rest is history on <laughs> that one. <laughs> yes, so uh, and the rest there's... is on the Patreon show about the Todd book. So, uh, Eddie, Eddie was another guy who great guy, loved him to death, but you know he was by by 1993. I mean, there things were just going wrong, and ECW Todd brought him in as, as Booker. And Eddie, I thought Eddie did a horrible job. And it, you know, you can watch it on Peacock, the old '93 ECW shows. I mean, Eddie, as far as you know, getting all the camera time, he was worse than Dusty Rhodes when Dusty Rhodes was the Midnight Rider. <laughs> he was trying. He he had this, the King of Philadelphia. He was wanting to be Jerry Lawler. Well, yeah. Also, I mean, speaking of people being obviously intoxicated on TV, yeah, yeah. Just sad, just sad things all together there. Yeah. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, if, folks, if you've never seen the Carrie Von Eric Belomo deal, it is on YouTube. Yes. And I'm assuming, uh, that John lost his ass on the convention because it, uh, there is not so, another yeah. Legends of Wrestling convention. But, but here's my thing, um, John. Carrie Von Eric has a pretty distinct. John Clark, physique. not John McCaff. John, John McAdam. Carrie Von Eric has a pretty distinctive physique as far as putting a mask on. I think the fans that were there would have known that that was Carrie because he's wearing he's wearing the tassel boots. <laughs> and he's in Philadelphia. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I, I I never got that whole thing. Like, you know, no one like one person is not going to figure out not isn't going to figure out Carrie Von Eric. Exactly. So Kind of a doomed concept to begin with, but oh well. All right, let's go to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Ah, it's and John's uh, favorite promotion in 1993. And I'm not saying <laughs> that ironically, it was. No, it, it definitely was. I mean, yeah. I've talked about it before. I would get Smoky Mountain Wrestling tapes uh, in the mail every four weeks, and I couldn't wait for them to arrive. And once they arrived, I'd be, I'd be like, okay, I'll, I'll watch one show today and I'll save the other shows for, you know, tomorrow through the week. And then I'm like, okay, I want to watch one more show. I want to see what happens. And inevitably, I would watch all four shows the day I got the tape. I mean, it's safe to say that the two best American wrestling promotions in 1993 were Smoky Mountain and Memphis. 
USWA. I, I actually think Smoky Mountain was way better than Memphis. Memphis you, was I, good, but Smoky two, Mountain the two, was the way two best. The two All best. Right. I could see that. One and two. But now, Smoke, Chris, yeah, Smoky Mountain in 93 is amazing. Chris, were you getting Smoky in Atlanta yet? Um, I, I, Pettisino's, the station Pettisino was on was not on my local tele, was not oh, my local this cable. was when he was on a Channel 14. Channel 14. My brother had it when he lived in Griffin. It was on their local cable. But I, so I really didn't get to see it at the time on, in real time. So, so when did yeah. you first see Smokey? Um, 94. When my brother started, rec- my other brother started oh, recording off, of, uh, off a satellite dish, America. America, yeah, Channel America, America One, whatever it was, yeah. That's how I started seeing it. That's how I started seeing uh, Smoky Mountain, ECW, Memphis, USWA, and uh, that uh, Deep South on Mississippi all aired on consecutive nights. So he yes. record all that stuff. So yes, and I was uh, shut out. You know, just. Praying, uh, hearing all the New York hotline rumors about uh, maybe Smokey will replace Global on ESPN. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, back to Smokey here. And uh, Jim Cornette talking with the torch. He's still very friendly with them. Well, for he said another year after this, basically. Yeah. Jim said there's not a working agreement between Smokey Mountain and WCW, despite the recent publicity that WCW has given the Rock and Roll Express. I said I would never work with those fucking people, and I meant it, Cornette said on January 17th from his home in Morrisville, Tennessee. Now there's someone new there, Bill Watts. I at least have one person I could have a civil conversation with. I guess if they're nice to us, we'll be nice to them. But there's no working agreement or anything. Cornette said that WCW wanted to use the R&R, and he's not stopping any of his time for working for other groups. WCW asked for video footage, and he gave it to them. Now it's worth noting, Tennessee... That's what it said. Morrisville, Tennessee. <laughs> and Morristown. Yeah, yes, go ahead. Go ahead, John. I, I think it's worth noting that uh, by January 1983, Watts had been back or Watts had been with WCW since the summer of 1980, uh, 1992. So it, he's not exactly a new guy at this point. No, hell no. Watts has been there for seven months. Yeah. yeah seven or seven months at this time. But yeah, I mean, it, it was odd when they started showing rock and roll express Smoky mountain footage on WCW television, I thought that was just the craziest shit ever because when the WCW show footage from another promotion, never, yeah. not like that. Outside like, of Japan. Right. Yeah. But that, they, they don't count. I was like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, this is another American rest promotion and it's rock and roll express, you know, which I knew I read the magazines and knew they were back together, but it's like, Holy shit. What's going on here? Yeah. And then and then it's a week after our week is when they have the center stage tapings where Cornette and the body show up. Right. And John, I mean, you at the time, knowing all the stuff that's going on, being around the scene, I mean, that had to be pretty crazy to see Cornette back involved with WCW. It really was crazy to see Jim Cornette back on WTBS. I mean – I was at a not really a convention. Dennis uh, promoted a show for the for uh, benefit for Tom Robinson at the end of 1990, and I you know I get there and I see Brian Hildebrand, and Brian's like, "Hey, Jim Cornette and Bobby uh, uh, Jim Cornette and Stan Lane quit WCW." And as, as soon as you hear that, you're like, "Look, you know they had a falling out. He'll be back in a few days," and. 
forgive my language, but I Ole Anderson, uh, Jim Cornette gave him a new name. It's goddamn fucking Ole. And that's, he must have <laughs> referred to him as goddamn fucking Ole a hundred times minimum that weekend. He was pissed. And yeah, he wound up never going back and um, until Watts came in. But oh, Bix, you had mentioned that there was a rumor that that Smoky Mountain was going to replace Global on ESPN. I have always had the theory, I still have the theory, that the idea behind Smoky Mountain, the big goal, the, the ultimate let's try to do this goal of Smoky Mountain Wrestling was to get on WTBS. And Cornette could pitch, and this is just my theory now, Cornette would pitch them, look, you guys can get out of the wrestling business, you can stop losing money on this, we can provide two hours of wrestling for you, for for WTBS. And in 94, I kind of presented this theory to Brian Hildebrand. And Brian was giving me this shut up look, like stop talking about this. So I kind of think wow. it, there's some some truth to it that, you know, that that they would have liked that to have happened. And obviously the wrestling, you know, the Monday Night War started and that was dead in the water once that happened. Well, I mean, but it makes r- sense if you think about it. Well, here's a couple reasons why that makes sense. One is that when. Jim finally got Smokey started. At that time, he was basically convinced WCW would be going out of business within a year or two. Many of us were. Yeah. You know, there's the whole thing in, uh, it. what is it? It was after Flair got fired or quit or whatever. In 91, I think it was when, it, oh no, or it was some bad house. Whatever it was. In 91 was the thing where he, he and Stan Lane sent the wreath, the black wreath to Jim yep. Hurd with the card, congratulations on the death of your wrestling promotion or whatever the hell it was. Um, which also has the side story to it saying to Jim and her being like, ah, and putting it on Jim Ross's desk and saying it was for him. (laughs) Um, so there's that, but also remember what was the original idea for Smokey? The original idea for Smokey was not to be, you know, Knoxville, Johnson City, and Spot Towns, the way it was. It was to also be in all of the Crockett Towns to get yep. into, you know, the ones that would make sense on a loop. Roanoke, uh, you know, I guess both Charlestons. Uh, well, their their first TV was taped in Greenville. Yeah, you know, it, into different parts of North Carolina and stuff. The problem was, even with Sandy Scott working for him, the game had changed so much in TV that everyone wanted him to pay, and it was just not feasible in those markets based on the budget he could work on. So the Smokey we ended up seeing was dramatically downsized from the original idea. Uh, I mean, it probably also didn't help that South Atlantic, with more money, had already tried and failed you know, in ninety. Yeah, but South Atlantic was so bad. It was, but they had a lot of money behind them, and also, you know, bad Ricky Steamboat. You know, Ricky Steamboat sometimes looking like he didn't care, who not dyeing his hair and growing a goatee, but Ricky Steamboat. Uh, you know, but still, you're right. South Atlantic was not particularly good, but they had a lot of money behind them at the beginning. You know, much yeah, you know, much more than Rick Rubin was putting into Smokey. So. 
But, well, to be clear, like, I mean, boy, you had mentioned... Know, but you get what I'm saying, though. Like, if he was... He's also trying to run all these other towns that were Crockett Towns. So, I, it makes sense that you would think, well, if I'm pushing this Crockett replacement, maybe that would appeal to TBS. Okay, I could see that. Um, but, yeah, and that makes... You know, uh, one thing that changed in television, and this changed at some point during the Reagan era, is that, you know, you could buy... Uh, an infomercial time and wrestling promoters were faced with, you know, OK, I can run this tape uh, where they sent a check for seven hundred dollars for us to air this at, you know, whatever time or I can put on a wrestling show. Well, you know what the TV station is going to do. It's it's an easy decision. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It was the now all of us all of a sudden, even though there were other there were wrestling shows buying TV time before the law changed about infomercials being allowed. But it wasn't often. It was mainly WWF. Like, a lot of people don't realize this. I think it was in some of the stuff that came out in uh, Tim Hornbaker's Death of the Territories. Like, they were paying for WOR long before the expansion, for example. That was not a bartered time slot or anything. Like, No, they... And, and you're right. I, I'd heard that a long time ago that, you know, WOR uh, was being paid for at the same time. You know, that show got over a million viewers per week. And that's not just New York. It's, you know, with WOR being a superstation. Right. And, you know, also, like, granted, there's also other things that have changed historically with, you know, Internet and everything. But, like, you know, if. All these, like, weird little, you know, glo you know, barely a networks like Channel America, you know, now those actually have real distribution and lots of people can see them because you have all these digital sub-channels. So, you know, I, I do wonder, would that have, like, if you had something like that, then could that have made more of a dent? Probably not. But still, it's like it is a big change that would have benefited a bunch of, you know, smaller wrestling promotions in that era because, you know, Channel America and then America One were always constantly running wrestling. Um, but anyway, as uh, what was I going to say? Oh, and then just doubling back before we move on. In fairness to 1993 Cornette, like there was no official deal with WCW yet at this point when he says there's no working agreement. No, there wasn't. But it, I mean, that it. it it was going to happen if Watts stays. Well, it officially did happen. Watts got it on paper and they got paid. It just, they didn't follow through on it once Watts was well, out. That, that, well, yeah. But Cornette got paid, well, Smokey, I should say, because he was putting the money in the company. Uh, Smokey got paid as if it went through. But anyway, yeah. let, let, let's continue now as we go to the Observer. Yes. So television this past weekend... Include the clip of Kevin Sullivan, Brian Lee, uh, from a house show in Barberville, Kentucky, where Sullivan used a spike to bloody Lee up. They interviewed Brian in the dressing room, where he vowed, we're still in chairs everywhere, found for revenge. Bob Armstrong said he got a letter from Sullivan's attorney saying they felt it was Armstrong's responsibility that Smoky Mountain Wrestling pay for Sullivan's psychiatric care. Armstrong said they wouldn't pay a penny for it. That was a great well, angle. We're about to see it, so let's uh, watch oh. this, shall we? <laughs> and we're talking about the master Kevin Sullivan and Brian Lee, and it looks like this thing is just not going to die between Lee and Sullivan. What an ensemble Dutch is wearing. <laughs> 
Yes. I don't know yes, what you is. call that jacket or whatever the hell he's wearing, but it, that's it is his fantastic. stud stable. That's his stud stable robe. That's right. Yep, he wore that when he would team with the stud stable. Yeah, because it do- it does look similar to the robes that Robert you know, and Jimmy wore. Yeah, that's what I was about yeah. to say. Robert and Jimmy wore, huh? Just different yep. color. Yeah, it's going to continue until I don't know what. It's going to end in catastrophe for somebody. Well, Brian Lee has uh, sort of got in the back of his mind. Here's the man to try to put him out of wrestling, and now he's going to try to make amends when he can. Let's go back, Dutch. Let fans look at this. Let's take a look at some tape in a match that occurred in Barberville, and let's show it, show it to you right now. Wrestling fans, Earl Lawrence here with you at Barberville, Kentucky, Knox Central High School. Chaos has... Earl Lawrence? <laughs> I guess a, a Kentucky radio guy? I have no idea. Broken out as the master Kevin Sullivan, prime time Brian Lee have been battling inside the I mean, he sounds like Les Thatcher to me. I was gonna say he sounds like Les Thatcher and Chip Kessler had a baby. <laughs> sounds like Les Thatcher to me. He definitely has a lot of Uncle Les in him. Yeah. Ah. The shits. Yes. <laughs> we'll talk more about Uncle Les off the air. <laughs> Coliseum outside the parking lot, the bleachers, you name it. They've been there. Now prime time. Throws the head of Sullivan into the table. Now some fists to the head. He picks him up, throws him back up into the so ring. Ryan back up into the ring. He continues to work on Sullivan. Sullivan now goes down to the mat. Fine time, Brian Lee. Picks down, picks him back up. Got a hair of the head. Irish whip across the ring. Slingshot off the turnbuckles. Oh my gosh, what a clothesline. And Brian... What a clothesline to call that way, too. <laughs> Just a Tom McGee level clothesline. From uh, primetime Brian Lee there. <laughs> Definitely wasn't a Road Warrior clothesline that or Stan Hansen. Pathetic. Like, I know John will have a lot to say about top babyface Brian Lee, but let's continue before <laughs> we get there. Primetime Brian Lee is ready to go, ladies and gentlemen. Listen at this crowd in Barberville. Takes back up Sullivan. Continues to work on the head area. Fist to the head. And now Sullivan slingshot across the ring. Irish will. Another big elbow to Brian Lee. Backed up into the turnbuckle. Is Sullivan. he blown up? Brian What's Lee going on? Like, it's Brian Lee. I don't remember And now the same guy. thing, but uh, a reverse into the turnbuckle. Just a leave of her clothesline, Brian Lee. Brian Lee. Oh, my goodness. What is this, wrestling fans? He, Brian Lee picked up from Mr. Unknown. Mark Curtis is down. He shows him levels. Mark Curtis. What is this? One of the followers of Kevin Sullivan. What's this? Some sort of foreign object. Sullivan. That's a steel spike. That's a steel spike. He's working on the head area. Primetime Brian Lee. My goodness. We saw it a few weeks back on Smoky Mountain Wrestling when we thought that Primetime Brian Lee's career could be over yeah, the master Kevin Sullivan. Continues to work on Primetime Brian Lee. The steel spike. Yeah, it's right been fascinating that Smoky Mark picked Curtis up still that. Out on the mat. And who is, again, this mysterious guy laying here, apparently some sort of follower to Kevin Sullivan's cult. A man, an evil genius, and what is this? And now he he goes over, smacks him, and and right now Kevin Sullivan continues working on the prime has been cut open. It's either from his right eye or the bridge of the nose. And this mysterious disciple still wanders around the ring. Kevin Sullivan viciously pounds the spike into the forehead of prime time Brian Lee. And here we have the disciple getting his two cents worth in on the matter. Sullivan still working. My goodness. Ladies and gentlemen, right now, watch this. Someone coming in. 
Sandy Scott, general manager of Smoky Mountain Wrestling, has entered the ring, and he says, Sullivan, if you do not exit, you will be suspended lifetime from Smoky Mountain Wrestling. So Sullivan, doing the very wise thing, he leaves. And now Sandy Scott over here helping back up Brian Lee, checking on it. What a vicious attack by Kevin Sullivan and one of his followers. And I'm sure Brian Lee is not going to take this lying down. Revenge will be his. I'm sick and tired of every time I face you, you bust my head with something. I guarantee you one thing, when I see you again, you're gonna be the one to bleed. I'm tired of tasting my own blood. You drew first blood, I'll draw last. He's lit like a 2007 ROH show. And with us now, Commissioner Bob Armstrong at Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Last week we had chaos again between the master Kevin Sullivan, primetime Brian Lee, Commissioner, what in the world are we going to do to bring this thing to a head? Well, the more I see of the problem between Brian Lee and Kevin Sullivan, the more I'm reminded of an old Western movie that says, this town ain't big enough for both of them. Just like that, the Smoky Mountain area is not big enough for both of them. Somebody's going to get hurt bad, and somebody's going to get hurt permanently. Brian Lee can attest to that already. But one thing I'm going to do is say proudly right now that I'm behind Brian Lee, and I'm going to do my dead-level best to find somebody to help him get rid of Kevin Sullivan. And Kevin Sullivan, this is for you. I don't care how many letters you or your lawyers write me, we at Smoky Mountain Wrestling are not going to pay for your psychiatric evaluation or your psychiatric therapy, and that's a fact. Live with it, Jack. Those words from Smoky Mountain Commissioner Bob Armstrong fans. We'll be back now. Don't go away. We'll have more action right after this. Wrestling fans, Smoky Mountain Wrestling uh, is coming to Jellicoe, Tennessee. Brian Lee. Top baby Jellico, isn't that the guy who signs got banned from uh <laughs> never mind no. brian lee top baby face john uh not a great fit i yeah i thought brian lee did really well in smoky mountain wrestling i enjoyed his run there i just think as a baby face you're right he's not the best fit because he's a really big guy and you know baby faces tend not to be huge but i want to talk about the big red x <laughs> yes First of all, and this is true, Baron Von Raschke, when he was in the WWF in uh, 1977, uh, they did the Big Red X with him. And I I was, what, 11, 12 years old. I tried to look around the Big Red X. That's how <laughs> smart I have always been. That's a true story, by the way. Number two, I think the Big Red X is great. It's a great television weapon in wrestling, or at least it was, because whatever is going on behind that Big Red X – it can't be as bad as what you're imagining it is. Yes. So yeah. I, I I always thought it was underutilized in wrestling because your your imagination runs wild. Oh my God, what's going on that's so horrible that I can't see it? Well, the thing with the big red X is, and the way it has advantages over mosaicing or blurring someone who's bleeding, you can still see the colors and stuff on mosaicing or blurring. If the wrestler didn't get as much color as you're hoping, that doesn't really work. The big red X it leaves it all to your imagination, the perfect example. And, you know, we played both, you know, and watched both when we covered that last year, is Brutus Beefcake Ron Bass in 88 in WWF. Now, John, have you ever seen the uh, unedited version? Uh, no, I have not. Okay, I uploaded it to YouTube years ago. You can see it if you want. That angle as it aired on TV with the big red X 
it made you seem like he completely, excuse me, he, it made you think he completely butchered Brutus Beefcake's face with that spur. You know, it was tremendously well executed with the Big Red X. You watch the version that aired in Canada without the Big Red X, Beefcake barely got any color. That's great. <laughs> uh, more love for the Big Red X and, and its effectiveness. I don't it just uh, that's something though, that wouldn't work today. No, it wouldn't. But that's why I said you know, back in the day. Taking pictures and posting them on social media. Wait, wait, wait you know, when you know why that is, you know, one reason why that is, though, it's like there's no imagination anymore. Mm. Kids don't have imaginations anymore. They just don't. Matter of fact. Yeah, the only wrestling. I can barely talk now. The only time wrestling fans have imagination is when they buy non nude OnlyFans photos. <laughs> I don't know why I can't talk suddenly. But... All right. So, yeah, so there's that. All right. So, um, next we get uh, Ron Wright. Ron Wright said his heart's been giving him problems because Reno Riggins won't give him an answer about letting him manage him. Oh, no. Riggins. Riggins had a beat the champ title match with Tracy Smothers. Wright wheeled himself to the ringside and kept telling Reno to keep the use of heel tactics. But Riggins kept resting clean and finally Smothers pinned him. After the match, Smothers brought Riggins over to the interview area and said that he made a good showing for himself and was doing a good job of improving, but then he told him to avoid Wright at all costs. All right, well, let's watch the amazing Ron Wright and, uh, his promo at the beginning, and then Tracy and Reno after the match. Yes, let's see what happens with Tracy Smothers versus Bizarro Tracy Smothers. <laughs> All right, fans, and with us right now here is the Dirty White Boy and his manager, of course, the legendary Ron Wright. Dirty White Boy, last week you came up short. You didn't get the $1,000 in the TV championship match. Tracy Smothers, let me tell you something, punk. You owe me $1,000, plain and simple. Oh, by the way, for the record, Ron Wright is 54 here. <laughs> How old are you now, John? I am 58. I turn 60 next year, and I can tell you I look a whole lot better than Ron Wright does. <laughs> I loved Ron Wright in this gimmick. The the old man in the wheelchair who's absolutely despicable. Just loved it. Well, yeah. Let's go back to the promo. Well, no, now that I think about it, Tracy, you owe me about $10,000 because I would have went all the way to the top. There'd been nobody beat me for 10 straight weeks, so you cost me 10 grand. You want to come out here, humiliate, and try to embarrass the heavyweight champion? Well, punk, before I'm through with you, <laughs> you won't be a professional wrestler long because there's only one man and one man only that rules the Smoky Mountain area, and you're looking at him. That's right. What, have you had any word this week from Reno Riggins, Mr. Wright? Well, let me tell you, I'm so disgusted with Riggins. A man my caliber give him an opportunity of a lifetime, lay a gold mine out in the front of him, and he's not giving me an answer yet. He's just about to pop another artery, making me have to double up and cripple up on my heart medicine to keep me under control where I can even come out here. But I tell you... <laughs> He's up there in the ring. He better get busy and get his mind made up, Mr. Cottle, because he's needing a lot of help around here. I'll tell you that. Well, he's going to be going for that $1,000 in our television match. What do you think about that, White? But wouldn't it be rather ironic if he were to win the $1,000 that you didn't win last week? You think you're real, real cute, don't you? The $1,000 belonged to me. And, Tracy, I'm taking it out of your tail. 
All right, fans, there it is from the dirty white boy and his manager, Mr. Ron Wright. And we're about ready with action. Let's go to the ring. All right. Okay. Well, let's look. Yeah. I, I do have a question for John, actually, before we go to the other part with the match. All right. Had you seen USA Wrestling, or was this your first time seeing Ron Wright this run? I had seen a little bit of USA Wrestling in um, in the 1988 version. So, yeah, yeah I had yeah, seen yeah. that. And I had also seen um, some of Ron Wright's, like, early 70s stuff from Knoxville. Like, a couple of, of matches when he was, you know, still wrestling, obviously. But still, this is the first time you are seeing him in his promos on a regular basis in any. Correct. And I thought he was fantastic. The whole thing with, you know, he's acting like an old woman in this wheelchair complaining about his heart medicine. He's got a shawl across his lap. I thought it was fantastic. And I think the angle where he got up out of the wheelchair to help Dirty White Boy against Tracy Smothers, I mean, the place went silent because they built it up correctly. If You know, I've made the joke before that during the Monday Night Wars, they would have had him get out of the wheelchair the first week he was on television. And no, they waited like a year to do it, and it was so effective. It was one of my favorite angles ever. Yep. Well, now let's see what happens with uh, Tracy and Reno. All right, fans, and with us right now, still our television champion, another $1,000 richer, too. Oh, man. Tracy's mother. What an outstanding wrestling match that was, Tracy. Thanks a lot, Bob. I'll tell you what, you know, just before our match, I heard that dirty white boy out here running his mouth, hollering and screaming about what he's going to do to me. Well, I proved to all these people right here last week and the millions of people on TV that I can get the job done. White boy, you want some of me? You ain't got to go very far, man. I'm a southern-born, southern-bred thoroughbred, so bring it on any time. Well, you know, I'm a thousand dollars richer. I'm real happy about that. Man, they don't get no easier. Let me tell you something. That young man right there, Reno Riggins, yeah. is a tremendous athlete. I face every top spot. Reno, come on over here, if you will, please. Yeah, it was what a, a, a whale of a good wrestling match. A good wrestler. And not only that, it was an outstanding wrestling match, and I think on the part of both of you, there was a tremendous amount of sportsmanship involved in that match. Mr. Cottle, Reno, you've got a tremendous amount of talent, and you doggone sure don't need that Ron Wright out here. You don't need that at all. I've been on that side of the fence, and that's the wrong road, Reno. You've got a tremendous amount of talent. And let me tell you this, that match could have gone either way. You are headed, I mean, brother, you're big star bound. I'm going to tell you that you're one of the well, finest scientific wrestlers I've ever ever wrestled. And I've wrestled everybody. Have you made up your mind about that, about Ron Wright, Reno? Are you still pondering that? Well, uh, I'd rather not touch on that right now, but I would like to uh, thank Tracy Smothers for coming out here and saying all the nice things he has said about me. And uh, I'd like to thank all these fans out here for backing me. And, uh, you know, I, I just I just really wouldn't like to say anything about this situation right now, Bob. All right, again, congratulations to you, Reno. Tremendous match, tremendous match, and a great win for you too, Tracy. By the way, you get another shot at it, another $1,000 right. next week. Four more weeks. That, that's another $1,000. Four more weeks, and I can get that $5,000. I'm ready to go. Southern born, southern bred, American by birth, and southern by the grace of God. Thank you very much. All right, fans. We'll be back. We'll have more right after this. Smoky Mountain Wrestling is now offering official merchandise by mail. You can have the excitement of Smoky Mountain. Seeing a Brian Hildebrand. I like how Reno Riggins did the same type of gimmick two consecutive years in the two territories, in Memphis 92 and then Smoky in 93. 
And then he kind of, I mean, he never really went anywhere in either Smoky Mountain or Memphis. So, if, I mean, if he's not going to get pushed there, he's certainly not going to get pushed in uh, WWF or WCW. What a crowd for that promo. I mean, they're loud. They're making it. It was great. Well, Smoky was hot, man. I mean, it was they were just on fire that year. And, uh, yeah, they were they were rolling. I mean, it definitely helps when you have that kind of reaction on television. Oh, God. Yes. And, and you know, and it, you don't have to have the biggest house to have that. I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, even a small house, can, if they make the right noise, I mean, they can be impressive. You and know, right, so, doing a lot of, you know, high school and middle school gyms for TV and those have good acoustics. Mm hmm. Yeah. Boy, that's what Smokey Manny was doing for TV was those. And it was so different to compare ECW to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. It's like ECW, you know, it was almost all guys in there, you know, late teens, 20s, early 30s, and, you know, doing what those guys do. And, you know, Smoky Mountain was mostly, you know, kids and families. And older people and stuff like that. Yeah, it was yeah. a more and they cheer well- for the baby faces. It was a Southern promotion. Yes, exactly. All right, let's continue on now as we talk about um, the Heavenly Bison Stud Stable. They're in a recap video of their feud. After the recap, Bob Armstrong announced that the bodies had received enough title shots for the Rock and Roll Express. And now, so next week on TV, it'll be the Rock and Rolls defending against the Stud Stable. Jim Cornette then went crazy and threatened to call his mother's attorneys. Cornette challenged the Stud Stable for a match right then, and they brawled for about two minutes till TV time ran out. Matches up with the studs, they will arrive late. Bodies getting a title match and then winning with Bobby Eaton interferes. Let's go to the clip. Is this Bobby's debut? Uh, yeah, I think so. If it's not, it's I'm, right there. I'm pretty sure it was. There's with us now Smoky Mountain Commissioner Bob Armstrong. Commissioner Armstrong, uh, we, we told all the fans that next week we'd have a title match right here for our Smoky Mountain Tag Team Championship. We didn't know who the competitors were going to be. Have you chosen the team yet, the number one contenders that are going to vie for that championship? Yes, I have. I have chosen the uh, stud stable. will meet Rock and Roll Express here next week for the tag team titles. We've told the fans they'd have a title match right here on TV. The tag team titles will go on the line. Rock and Roll Express against the stud stable, and that will happen on TV right here next week. And, brother, it ought to be a good one. So you decided against the heavenly bodies then and Jim Cornette. They've had their chance. I figure Stud Stables hadn't had a chance yet. Why not give them a chance to go for the tag team? Hey, 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 what is this? What is this? What are you talking about? Stud Stable getting a shot at the tag team title? We're the number one contenders, and we ought to have the shot at the belt. Especially on TV where all these idiots can see it. Listen, you've had your chance. The Stud Stables have, haven't had a chance yet. I'm giving them a chance right here. They, don't need a, they haven't had a chance to cure cancer or do heart surgery either because they ain't qualified. They're not qualified to be the tag team champions. We are. We've been that four times. The Stud Stable got no business. Oh, look at this. Look at this. Dutch Mantel, I have always, always liked you. But I tell you something, and you listen real good because I got my boy standing here. You tell that stud stable, they don't need to be coming around the heavenly bodies anymore. I'm calling my mama's attorneys. We're going to see about this tag team title situation. And you tell the stud, yeah, there's no excuse for you. Let me tell you something, Cornette. You You want to call somebody? Here's a quarter. Call anybody you want to. Let's get me out of here. 
You tell the stud stable they better stay out of our business from now on. You know what? I never liked that stinking Dutch man. Tell he ought to <laughs> quarter. He ought to have a haircut and a shave. Let me tell you, I'm. I'm I knew, oh, that was, I knew that was going to come. Yeah, and I saw that smile on your face, too, Carl. No, Everybody, no, no, no. Everybody, including you, is on their side. That stupid Bob Armstrong is out here. We've been the champions. We had the belt. Those stuntsmen have never had any belt in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. They don't deserve a I know what they've had. I know what they've had. They've had about four or five quarts of liquor down their gullet. That's why. Oh, and wait a minute. Here comes Dutch. Dutch with the studs. Hey, if you wanted me to tell them, here they are. I think congratulations is in order. Let's yeah. have it. <laughs> hey, why don't you congratulate this? You guys don't deserve a shot. We do. Hey, boy, and wait a minute, fans. We got something going on. There's nothing about number one. I tell you nothing. You want a ring? Oh, and they're going to go to the ring right now. Let's see who the better team is. Well, there they go. All right, we'll see right now. And Dutch is going to go. We got Dutch in one corner, we got Jim Cornette in the other. We got the stud stable and the heavenly bodies. All four in the ring as chaos has broken out right now. The bad blood has really spilled all over these four just in recent weeks. It was certainly brought to a head by the announcement just a few moments ago that the stud stable would be rock and roll right here next week for the Smoky Mountain Tag Team Championship. Golden, he was going to take the head right off of Dr. Tom Pritchard, and Pritchard ducked right on him, but caught the big foot. Stan Lane, Jimmy Golden are going at it over in the corner, and it's Lane that meets the turnbuckle. Fuller with Pritchard right out of the ropes. Elf down on the floor, and Cornette runs for cover. Pritchard slammed into the ring, railing around the ring, now to the table, the bell table at ringside, and at the moment, it looks like the stud stable is getting the better of the heavenly bodies. Pritchard goes down from a tremendous right hand from Robert Fuller, but here comes Stan Lane to get Fuller from behind. Golden walking over to enter into the action, holding the side of his head. He had been clobbered. No semblance of order at all, and even Dutch Bantel and Jim Cornette are squaring off at each other. Fans, we gotta go. We gotta leave it right here. We're out of time. See you next week for that championship match so long for now. So, I, I mean, that's a, that's a good angle to do because the the bodies had put the stranglehold on the title belts and stud stables the other heel team, so they weren't getting shots. So, of course, Bob Marshall's like, hey, these guys deserve a shot too. You know, and then you get one of those rare heel versus heel matchups at the time in this feud. So a, a, a good little you know difference in what they were normally doing. No Bobby Eaton on TV here, though. Yeah, that's the week after. Oh, okay. That's not in our week. 
It doesn't air. That was a a great great feud where it was the it was the stud stable which was uh, Robert Fuller, uh, Jimmy Golden, and Dutch Mantell joining them briefly. Then you have the Heavenly Bodies, Stan Lane, Tom Pritchard, and Bobby Eaton briefly joining them, and then the Rock and Roll Express bringing Arn Anderson, and those three factions are going at each other. I mean, it's on YouTube. It's just phenomenal television. Yep leading to the blue bluegrass brawl and uh the blow-off match and uh that blow-off match was something yeah yeah that, just great stuff seeing wcw guys like arn and bobby in this mix here in smoky mountain yeah it, it didn't last but and you know wcw lent them out for you know some kind of consideration and you know they weren't doing really doing anything else and it, it was great i mean Jim Cornette used to say, you know, people would ask him, why isn't Bobby Eaton coming into Smoky Mountain full time? And Jim Cornette's like, Bobby Eaton's job is every week walk to his mailbox and collect a check for $2,000. That's why he's not coming to Smoky Mountain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, when him and Stan quit, Bobby said he would join them. And then Jim and Stan were like, you have a family, you know. You get along with these people, okay? Just wait your contract out. Yeah, Bobby's wife, uh, my understanding, was sick, and he had, you know, they didn't have insurance, and she had medical bills, so they understood why why he he really had no choice but to hang around. Yeah, and he, I mean, hey, he was there in WCW for a long, long time, so he got paid pretty well. Yeah, he did for, for basically almost another decade after that. Yeah. All right, so uh, all that's setting up uh, what's to come. Johnson City uh, on the 17th, front 570 fans. Night Stalker of Reno Riggins, two and a half stars. Tim Horner over Paul Ondorf. One and a half stars, excuse me. Tim Horner over Paul Ondorf, dud. Dirty White Boy and Trace Smothers went to a 30 minute draw. Star, a half a star. I mean, quarter of a star. Quarter star, yeah. Yeah. Then we had the match determined who gets title shot later in the card. Heavenly Bodies over Dutch and Jimmy Golden by DQ, two and a half stars. Kevin Sullivan over Brian Lee, two stars. And Rock and Rolls over Heavenly Bodies for the tag titles, three and a quarter stars. Who is this capital W work rate fan sending in these star ratings? <laughs> I don't know. In Johnson City. Now, uh, Tim Whitehead. Yeah, well, that makes yeah, a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, that that's, a that's a guess, but I, it's a guess I put money on. Well, Tim Whitehead's yeah. from the Tri Cities, and yeah, and he's yeah. a big Japanese tape guy. So, yeah. Hey, I used to get my SMW fan, uh, tapes from him. Big shout out to Tim. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. The next night, they tape TV in Newton, North Carolina, and the Heavenly Bodies regained the tag titles on the Rock and Roll Express, and what was said to be a four star match. See, this is the match we're, we're talking about now with Bobby. The match originally was supposed to be Rock and Rolls against the Stud Stable. However, Fuller and Golden hadn't arrived by match time, so Jim Cornette went to Sandy Scott and asked if his team get the title match, and Sandy agreed. A few minutes into the match, Fuller and Golden came out in street clothes, yelling at Bob Cottle that this was their title match. Dave's not sure how the com- commentary was done, but he suspects the mangle was done, where it be found out that Cornette was responsible for them not getting to the building on time. Fuller and Golden tried to hit the ring, but were restrained by Smoky Mountain officials, and the match continued. About 12 minutes in, referee Mark Curtis took a major league bump to the floor. I remember that bump. It was a crazy bump. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Rock and Rolls then got three visionary falls with no ref on the bodies. At this point, Bobby Eaton, who hadn't been seen this fucking mountain rings, hit the ring and hit the Alabama jam on Morton and put Pritchard on top for the pit. 
At this point, Fuller and Golden in the ring. There's a three-way brawl with the studs, bodies in Eaton and Rock and Roll Express all fighting everybody. So, yeah. So here's Bobby making his debut. And, uh, yeah, this thing is getting rocking and rolling, no pun intended, at this point in time. Uh, some other highlights of the taping was Ron Wright asking Rena Riggins to make his decision. And Rena said he talked to a lot of the wrestlers and decided to go it alone. After the title win, there was an interview with Cornette, Lane, Pritchard, and Eaton where they already were teasing signs of Tup and Pritchard. Don't expect any major changes unless they can get Eaton to agree to stay past April because they need a tag team for the territory once Eaton leaves. And that was a deal that Bobby and Tom had friction because they both wanted to be Stan Lane's partner. <laughs> Which totally makes sense if you think about it. Yes. Right, then brought out Robbie Eagle and said in five minutes he can teach him enough to beat Reno Riggins. They had a match with Riggins won. After match, White Boy slapped Riggins set up a match the following week. Sullivan, a nice stalker, tapped Brian Lee after a squash, and Tim Horner made a save using a block of wood. Even though they're few in the bodies, Fuller and Golden are working as still as heels, beating the Batten Twins. Dutch pulled Paul Lee's name out of the Beat the Champ Challenger hat for Tracy Smothers, but Dirty White Boy came out and said that Lee has the flu. What a great typo here. Lee was the flu. Well, Paul Lee is pretty sick at times. He is kind of the flu of uh, <laughs> Chattanooga area professional wrestling. <laughs> yes. And then he'd be replaced by Paul Ornroff, who was the one who was really sick. Smothers agreed to the change. White boys attempted an affair's backfire to Smothers pit Ordorf. Ordorf went nuts, attacked one of the refs, gave him a pile driver, and interrupted a stretcher job. Head referee Mark Curtis then suspended Orndorf and warned him if he didn't calm down, his program at WCW would be changed from work with Katniss Jack to work with Eric Watts. So I guess that's how Orndorf calmed down, Dave said. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, well, speaking of smoking at WCW, here's Paul Orndorf, who is on WCW television getting a push, still doing shots with Smoky Mountain. Because he's not signed yet. Yeah. Um, okay, I was wondering about that. Yeah, he was just he was there, but he wasn't under, under a full contract. Yeah. But he's a pushed regular. Yes. WCW. Yes. Yeah. We, the clash has already happened. <laughs> he was in the TV title tournament. He's yeah. already got. He's in. He's got the feud with Cactus. Yeah. Some I always wondered about Orndorff. I mean, he lived either in Atlanta or right around Atlanta. He lived in Fayette, Fayette County, which that's about 30 minutes south southwest uh, of Atlanta. Okay, so he's right there. He owns his bowling alley, and you'd think, okay, you know, bring him in for shots, and they did. But you know, it. it I mean, he was gone. He came in in 1990. He didn't last there, and he's back in uh, the beginning of '93. But you'd you'd think, you know, Paul Orndorff. If you're a wrestling fan, you're going to know who he is. And I thought he was a kind of a wasted opportunity for WCW. Well, you know, uh, that first run, he was. Because he was like miscast as one of the dudes with attitudes and all that stuff. But then he comes in here, he's been in Smokey, kind of like revitalized the heel. And he comes in here and he, and, and WCW at that time, I mean, he was, that's probably one of his best runs is that early WCW run where he's uh, in single, big singles feuds and stuff. And then, of course, he gets t- teamed up with Paul Roma. It's pretty wonderful. And they have some success. But yeah, it's not like it was. When he first came in, no, absolutely not. But yeah, no, Paul, definitely not. I would see Paul at Shannon Mall in uh, Union City, Georgia, which is right outside Fayette County, and uh, he'd be in there just, just shopping, hanging around. You know, you know, he was a he was a very popular local business figure. He's I, Paul I Orndorff. He's Paul Orndorff too. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. You know, that's why. 
you know, in when they brought him in in 1990, you know, to this day, I'm taken aback that they didn't do more with him. He's Paul Orndorff. Exactly. Yeah, that's Ole. Booker's named Ole, John. <laughs> <laughs> I get that one. Yes. And only, right. only people, only someone booking that only someone named Ole could possibly understand. <laughs> exactly. All right, so let's continue on. Um, so we've got the at the supposed interview saying the biggest win of his career and why boy challenged him for a TV title next week. After five consecutive weeks maintaining the title, the TV champ gets five grand. And the following week, two new wrestlers start determining new champions. So white boy matches will be the fifth week where the money will be at stake. White boy wrestled Riggins, which ended with Riggins destroying the good match. And Smothers throwing in a towel for him. After the match, white boy hit Riggins with a low blow. Sullivan wrestled Bart Batten, and then when Stalker interfered, Sullivan pulled out the spike. Batten did a major juice job in, until Lee came in. They doubled up on Lee until Horner made a save with a 10-pound dumbbell. After Rock and Roll squash victory, Cornette came out and challenged them. Eaton, Lane, and Pritchett in the ring and were beating them three-on-two until Fuller and Golden hit the ring with chairs and ran bodies and Eaton off. Eaton took great bumps here. Then with the bodies and Eaton gone, Fuller and Golden destroyed the Rock and Roll, so they just saved. With the chairs, left them laying, the segment ended. Jim Cornette would talk into the torch again. He said the TV tapings was the most fun he's had wrestling in years, both on camera and behind the scenes. Well, you know what? That makes sense because things are heating up and unlike a lot of other points in Smokey, it's heating up with all the original ideas on the booking. Like this is a run where he's not that heavy on the recycled Memphis and Mid-South angles. And he's got Bobby Eaton there. Yes. I mean, he's doing what he's what he's wanted to do his entire life. He's booking a pro wrestling promotion. Yeah, and it's and he, working. Yeah, and he's got Eaton and Lane together again with Doctor Tom as, in tow as well. If you and the Rock and Rolls, yeah, I mean, dream come true for Jim Cornette, and good for him. And, and like I said, it was great television. It's all on YouTube. I recommend you know if you have the time, check it out. It's great stuff. Absolutely, and I'm sure he has it in his head too. If Bobby can stay, then you can have, you know, Bobby and Stan turn on Tom. Tom turns babyface and can heat up again as a babyface in this area where he's had success in the past as a babyface. And you get to play up the whole story of how, you you know, he was originally going to be Condry's replacement and all that. So, like, you can see why he's excited because he probably – that's probably something he's wanted to do ever since the bodies got together. Yeah, I mean, and you're right. Tom Pritchard, you know, has been successful as a babyface prior in that area. And, you know, Tom Pritchard was really good. He was really good in, in both roles. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Um, Cornell Night Stalker. I thought he was the most horrible wrestler in WCW. Now he's got a good attitude, improved tremendously in six months. In a year or so, he's going to be one of the bigger stars in wrestling. He'll be brought around as long as he doesn't go to Japan before he learned how to work the right way first. <laughs> Interesting. Now, that's Brian there. Adams, right? Yeah. Uh, Brian Clark. Brian Clark, excuse me. Adam Bob. Yes. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. He had a really good look. And at this point, I was incorrectly predicting that he was going to be a huge star in pro wrestling. It just didn't happen for him. Well, I mean, all of a sudden, he's actually working a territory, you know, and it's smoky, which doesn't have a, the the most active schedule, but still he's working full-time in a territory and, like, 
around all these veterans and people who are probably actually willing to help him. And all of a sudden, this guy who, you know, a year and a half earlier looked like, or less even, looked like the worst wrestler in the world. He's improving dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, he, Cornette's right. I mean, you know, sometimes in the 80s and 90s, you know, they put out these bodybuilders who had the right look, who just weren't ready yet. And that's what Brian Clark was. He wasn't ready yet. And, you know, when the when I heard that the WWF was bringing him in and they were going to put him with uh, Scotty the Body or whatever he was calling himself in the WWF, I was like, OK, this is going to be huge. And then I saw it. And I remember the night I saw it on Raw, I was like, this isn't going to get over. And it did. Johnny Polo. Johnny Polo, that's right. The Adam Bomb gimmick was a little too goofy, and he's someone who probably would have had more success as a single star if his physical prime came at a little bit different time. Earlier, yes. Even a little later, too, I think, because he goes to WWF right as he's really improving, and it's... You know, in the middle of peak, like, new generation gimmicky stuff. And he's there with Undertaker and Bigelow, so he can't do all the athletic stuff he's been picking up. Because he doesn't want to, he's, you know, being told not to steal their thunder. And, you know, he was primed for potentially a good run in WCW. But the first time all the plans changed with the Blood Runs Cold stuff, because of the NWO getting hot. And then... When they take him off TV and bring him back, he's getting over organically with the win streak, and then Nash squashes him, and that's it. And then Nash squashes him, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's way, yeah, basically. That's a chronic. I mean, what a surprise. Wow, a guy's getting hot, and he suddenly gets booked to fail in WCW. Who would have thunk? And then he, like, he never showed the in-ring promise ever again after that. It was like, I almost wonder if he was demoralized by the Nash thing. Because... He might have been. Like he go like when he was wrath, he was still pretty good in the ring, especially for a guy of that size. When he comes back as part of Chronic, he's terrible. You, you know? know what? WCW always had a problem in the nineties. Uh, they always had a bad morale problem, and. When a guy would come in and he, you know, be excited, he wanted to, you know, do the right things and be a company guy. Eventually, he joined the the crowd of, hey, I'm here to, you know, I'm here to travel and pick up my check, and that's it. And that's, you know, that's what he turned into. Which is, you know, just like a lot of guys. This is what yeah. I do for work. Exactly. All right. Um, I even Vladimir Kolo for the tapings, but didn't work. Well, no big loss. Uh, Dave wouldn't be surprised to see Steve Armstrong mention show up here, but it doesn't look like it'll happen to me in the future. He did. S93 went along. Despite being ill with bronchial pneumonia and having a 102-degree fever, Paul Lohendorf finished out his commitments and put over Hornet to house shows and Smothers Clean at TV. In Johnson City, Orton was so or, Orton. Orndorf was so ill they could only go 90 seconds. Well, God bless him. Yeah, I mean, that's the wrestling business. You know, you, you make the towns, and even if you're that sick. Exactly. All right, next is a promotion that didn't last long. Lasted about you, three months, basically. I think, what was it, 12 weeks of original TV and a 13th week that was best of a rerun, something like that? Yeah. So this is Austin Idol's promotion. He uh, put USA together wrestling. Yes. USA Wrestling, and it was 
based out of Dothan, Alabama. At the and TV they just, studio there with like one or two house shows at the Farm Center. So they were mainly in the, in the, in that central southern Alabama area. And there's no news in the newsletters, but I mean, we got the TV for our, for our week, so I figured let's play some of it. So the big angle at the time here is that Jim Cornette in Smoky Mountain Wrestling it has a uh, bounty hunter out for the bullet. Yes, Bob Armstrong is working as the bullet, shocking, and uh, Austin House Territory. So we got the Smoky Mountain crossover in, this, in both directions. So Jim Cornette has Mr. Tennessee, who he sent in to uh, feud with uh, the bullet. So let's watch this, shall we? Let's, let's see the bullet and yes, Mr. I, Tennessee. Now I'm guessing, and we'll see if we can figure out after, I'm guessing John does not know who Mr. Tennessee is under the mask, right? I do not. Okay, okay well, I'm curious if you're able to guess after this. You you might not right, be I'll able to. Let's do this right now. You have a purpose here in USA Wrestling that you want to uh, convince everyone of. So, um, at the request of Mr. Tennessee, we'll show you why he's in the USA Wrestling area and what he has up his sleeve. And we'll hear the comments of Jim Cornette. Wrestling fans, I'm Bob Cole, along with Jim Cornette and the Heavenly Bodies. And we've got some exciting news for all you wrestling fans. USA Wrestling is expanding all the way from California, across the Gulf Coast, into Alabama, all through that area. And, of course, you're going to be seeing outstanding stars. From California, across to the Gulf Coast, into Alabama, all through that area. That area from Alabama to California. Always hated when promotions did stuff like that. Uh, Like, boy, Tennessee knows global. It's like, I was going to say, that was the worst. Just admit that it's a new promotion. Don't try to make it make us think that you know you, you've already been established. Like the densest mark in the world is going to see through that. Right. Yes. It's like it's one thing when like on the first episode of Southeastern when the Alabama territory becomes Southeastern when Fuller takes over and they call it the biggest. What was it? They call it the. They say it in a way where it's tr- at least nominally true that it is the largest or the, it, the the largest wrestling promotion in the U.S., which, like, in terms of covering physical territory, it was probably one of. Like, that is not the biggest stretch. Here, where all of a sudden you're saying USA Wrestling is covering from California to Alabama, and you're yeah. doing this TV show in a studio in Dothan. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Cornette, I know you got special interest in one person in USA Wrestling. Well, that's exactly right. You know, they got a guy down here who calls himself the Bullet, wears a sock over his face, trying to hide his identity. Everybody knows it's Bob Armstrong. And everybody knows that the people there in Alabama, all over the Gulf Coast, they love Bob Armstrong. But, of course, you know, the people down there, you know you know what the favorite dinner is of somebody? The favorite dinner of somebody from Alabama, Stan? That, Jim? <laughs> that's whatever was too slow crossing the highway yesterday. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Bob Armstrong. As you can see, we're in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And we have had a situation here over the past year where Bob Armstrong is the commissioner of Smoky Mountain Wrestling. He doesn't wrestle here. He's the commissioner. But now in USA Wrestling, the bullet is wrestling. Sounds to me like there's something fishy going on. And Bob Armstrong, you and I, we don't actually see eye to eye very often. So I'll tell you what. I've got a guy named Mr. Tennessee. He's got a mask just like you do, bullet. And I'm going to send him down there to USA Wrestling just to take care of a little unfinished business between me and our dear commissioner. And th- now there we have the comments of Jim Cornette. Cut it off. Strange. 
That's right. Whoa, whoa, what's he doing out here? Listen, that's two weeks in a row I've had to sit and listen to you tell everybody what you're going to do to the bullet. I don't think Jimmy Cornette's mother's got enough money for you to take that mask off. And instead of watching my monitor and listening to what you're going to do, why don't we go to the ring right now and see what you can do? That's all right. We're not on line with this Cornette. They'll have obviously bullets. Well, I don't know if they got that much money. A lot of people try to take this I've mask never off. Seen it done well, I'm going to give him a shot. I've never seen it done never? before. And he's on his way to the ring, the bullet. Uh, Mr. Tennessee goes after the bullet with those smashes as he comes into the ring, chops to the throat area. Now, I don't even uh, know if that referee needs to be in there for this, because if the bullet says do it, hey, this thing could be the best street ball. High back body drop. High back body drop, and there's a, whoa! There's that chop, vicious chop from the bullet. Mr. Tennessee out on the floor. And uh, here comes Mike Mitchell. He's, he's holding Mr. Tennessee back. I, Mr. Tennessee trying to get the ring right now. The bullet says, bring it on. Take this mask off, would you? Don't think it can be done. Really don't think it can be done, not on this date. But anyway, we need to go to a commercial break. Anything takes place in between now and then, we'll bring it to you. Stay with us on USA Wrestling. USA Wrestling continues. Don't you dare go away. Step away from us after the break. No. All right, so John, uh, Mr. Tennessee, Larry Santo. Oh, I wouldn't. I would not have guessed correctly. Yep, Larry Santo. I Larry. thought that was Ron Slinker. <laughs> Ron Slinker. <laughs> I did. That these are terrible graphics, even by 1993 standards. This is not a well-produced program at all. No, not really. No. Is that no? Uh, the Iron Sheik. Iron yes, Sheik and Zukov. Zurkov. Oh, Zurkov here, of course. Yeah, because it's Alabama. He's back to being Zurkov. All right, so Charlie Platt has a personality profile, which it's a southeastern-type territory, so we have to have the personality profile. And he has it with Austin Idol. And this is a version of Austin Idol that you have probably very rarely, if ever, have heard because he's using his real voice. Let's go to the interview. One of the best ways you could raise funds for your club or civic organization or school is through USA Wrestling. Oh, wow. If you'd like information on how to have USA Wrestling in your area as a fundraiser, we invite you to call the USA Wrestling Hotline, area code 904-434-7973 for information on having USA Wrestling as a fundraiser in your area. You know, one of the most interesting things in all my years of professional wrestling is the fact that there's so many personalities in pro wrestling. One that comes to mind that stands out among all is a universal heartthrob, Austin Idol. We're going to be talking with Austin Day about many things. First of all, what a great comeback last week after a, a, a devastating car injury and an automobile accident some two years ago. It's great to have you back, and you're in rare form. Was he legit recovering from a car accident during that period? I had far, not heard that. As far as I know, he had been re- he was wrestling. I mean. He had wrestled. He wrestled in Memphis. I mean, he had, he was pretty busy. Uh, let's see. I'm looking because I don't remember what like he. 
any like big run after like well 90 90 92 he did not wrestle after february so maybe that's what it was okay yeah yep no that's february 92 so maybe there was something there and he's wearing a very John McAdam-esque uh, striped shirt there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I had a bunch of those in the early 90s. All right, let's listen to Austin. Well, my, Dennis McCord, basically here. Thank you, Charlie. Um, you know, it, it, it was very exciting when I was first contacted by the promoters here at USA Wrestling. I've got to tell you. And it really stimulated me when because it was itself. something that I could relate to and it was something different. I mean, when they said that they're, they're going to go back to studio wrestling, that really got my attention. And then, of course, when they mentioned the cities that they were going to wrestle in primarily uh, over here on the East Coast uh, with Birmingham and Montgomery and Mobile and uh, Dothan, then certainly it... Uh, it was very emotional for me. It really was because I'd made so many friends and all through the state of Alabama. And to me, Alabama has always represented, uh, sports-wise at least, uh, that they'll settle for nothing less than the best. So uh, there, there was just a, a tremendous package there that was offered, and I'm just really pleased to be part of it. And I'm certainly pleased to have gotten through last week and, and feeling pretty good about it. Here's a guy that's wrestled in, in so many foreign countries and all over the United States, and, and I know for a fact he, he thinks of this area uh, as home. That's a universal heartthrob, Austin Idol. You know, we're talking about different personalities. Hey, how about the Iron Sheik? What about the challenge? <clears throat> you know, the challenge that he put out there, uh, you know, I, I saw that. And to, to, you know, of course, we train a little bit differently in this country in the weight rooms and whatnot. But to, to swing those clubs at 75 pounds apiece behind his neck, uh, behind his back like that, it's, uh, it's a pretty incredible feat. I, and I, I don't know that anybody's going to be able to... to uh, uh, accept that challenge and, and in fact uh, to do it. In case anyone missed last week's premiere episode of USA Wrestling, let's go back one week and take a look at what the Iron Sheik did in the ring in the studio with the, the big clubs and the challenge. Well, there you go. I mean, I guess this is his way of uh, warming up or getting himself psyched up, Charlie, but uh, you know, you can take a look at any athlete uh, and you can tell by intensity. He's pounding himself on the chest there and Mike Jackson uh, told me about those clubs and I asked him, I said, Mike, those really weigh 75 pounds. And he said, Austin, you know, I'm a little guy, but believe me, he says, I could barely pick the thing up off the mat. But to swing those like he's swinging, I mean, uh, you think Noah and Ryan would be doing the commercials for Advil? I mean, I'll tell you what, that seems to me that could just tear a rotator cuff. And any athlete would know to do that, that's a very unusual, unique, and an odd lift. And uh, honestly, uh, you know, I don't know that anybody can really do that. Unique he is, former WWF World Heavyweight Champion, the Iron Sheik. One other thing I want to go over with you, I, we've had scores of phone calls and letters about the return of, of, of professional wrestling to studio and uh, the USA Wrestling and what's going to be happening in the future. A lot of the response was geared to you, first of all, welcoming you back after the accident from some two years ago, and, and it's good to have you back, but this FedEx came, and I, I, I want to say that I had two phone calls related to this, and the two people that called were not the same we're not the same people, but they asked, was there any way I could present this to you on the show today? It's a FedEx uh, address to Austin Idol, and uh, the sender is uh, TF, and the company is Collections. Collections? Well, I, I don't know. 
Uh, but anyway, maybe it's a, a welcome back from somebody, whatever. But they, they wanted me to present that to you on the show today, if at all possible. And since you were scheduled for the personality profile segment of the show, I thought I would hand it to you and let's see what. Sure. Is this a, is this a joke? Well, that's, that's the FedEx that came in. Well, it says, Austin Idol, you owe me. It's time to pay up. TF. Is this a, Do you this, know who this... It, just, it sounds like... Is this a, a prank, Charlie? Is this a joke? On, you, well, are you playing a joke with me, Charlie? No, that, that... Well, does it look like a joke? No, it's legitimate in terms of the Federal Express. Well, whatever, I guess... Uh, it's probably just a crackpot out Inside there. Inside joke with you or whatever. Time. You know, maybe it's none of our business, but I, I just did what I was asked to do. Austin Idol, you owe me. It's time to pay up TF. I, yeah. I would say it's just a prank or something. Well, sort. we'll forget about that, but hey, great to have you in USA Wrestling and always great talking with you. My pleasure, Charlie. God bless you. Universal heartthrob, Austin Idol. I wonder who TF was going to be. <laughs> well, it's never mentioned again for the rest of the TV and Terry Funk never comes in. Okay. <laughs> Let me ask you guys a, a question. Have you ever tried the Iron Sheik like club challenge with anything? No. 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 I'm like the only psycho who was obsessed with doing this. Let me tell you, it's really hard. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's <laughs> an awkward motion even without the heavy weight. I mean, Exa I, yeah. I was doing it like two liters of soda, and it's really hard. What's the thing that back was it? Uh, what, what was it with Backlund and Sheik Bix? Was it Dark Side of the Ring or the Backlund and Sheik were together or something like that? Where Backlund tried to do it, it was some some documentary that Sheik Backlund was at his house and Backlund and Sheik were at his house or something together, and Backlund was trying to do it, and Backlund was talking about how tough it was doing it. Bob Backlund, who was a very strong man, Bob who, Backlund is freakishly strong. Who said it was uh, it's one of the hardest things he ever did. Was uh was trying to do the Sheik Persian clubs, and the Sheik's going in there just doing it like willy nilly, <laughs> you know. It was on something. I I want to say it was Dark Side. I don't know. I only was Dark Side. Um, I mean, it they was, haven't done um, the Sheiky episode, and I don't think it was uh, uh, Tales from the Territories. So most wanted treasures. Okay, that's what it was. Uh, okay, I. There's a whole thing on Facebook on the WWE on A and E Facebook. So it was on A and E. It was on the A and E thing. But yeah, um, so crazy, crazy. But anyway, that's a little taste of USA wrestling. Now let's go to the USWA. Oh, real quick, I just want to add. You know, they mentioned correctly that Iron Sheik's a former WWF champion. Um, Junkyard Dog, when he makes his entrance uh, in his debut in USA, is also for some reason billed as a former WWF champion. Wow. <laughs> All right, uh, Memphis, Memphis of Coliseum on the 18th. Master of Terror 1 over Scott Campione. Danny Davis over Jeff Gaylord. Jerry Law and Jeff Jarrett retaining the USWA tag titles, beating the Bruise Brothers, Ron and Don Harris, by disqualification. Moon Dustbot and Danny Davis beat Brian Christopher and Mike Miller. Miss Texas and Sapphire, more on that in a minute, over Lauren Davenport and Leslie Bellinger. Jeff Jarrett beat Mike Samples, Burt Prentice, and Mr. Clyde in a handicap match. And the Bruisers beat Brian and Bruisers, and then we had Bruisers, Brian Christopher, and Mike Miller over Tony Danucci, oh, Jerry Lawler, Jeff Jarrett, and Moondog Spot. Now, not much in the way of news other than the USWA tag titles was vacated since Moondog Spike was gone. He'd been injured. They started 18 tournament on television. Um, because 
well, why does it say that the Lawler and Jarrett are champions in that 18 match? Oh, well, I don't know. They start 18 tournament on the 23rd with the Bruce Brothers, likely winners, beating Scott Campion and Tony Danucci, Munoz by Dan Davis or Richie B. Fine and Jeff Gaylord, Lawler and Jarrett over the Masters of Terror, Ken Wayne and Ken Raper. You mean Ken Pedophile and Ken Raper? Yes. Oh! <laughs> Brian Christopher and Mike Miller with Doug Gilbert and Tony Danucci, subbing for Eddie Gilbert, who they announced was in Philadelphia. Which, in atypical wrestling fashion, he really was. The semis and finals would have taken place on the 25th at the Coliseum. Yeah, so they gave an excuse on why Eddie was there, and it was legit, John. A, a, a novelty in wrestling. Very much a novelty, and especially, you know, I mean, why make something up if it's really that simple? Yeah, he has a booking in Philadelphia. Yeah. It makes him seem like a bigger deal. Yeah. Well, and he, he actually was there. Double book. He shouldn't have been double booked, though. But yeah. but he actually was there. <laughs> so there you go. All right, Lawler did an interview, which happened during a match, so we're not going to play it, where he seemed to be building towards an eventual showdown with Brian Christopher with no acknowledgement yet of their relationship. And that, relationship? and that would happen for years. So it's uh, yeah. I think it's like late 94 when they have their first singles match. Yeah. And supposedly everyone in Memphis from day one knew that Brian Christopher was Jerry Lawler's son. Well, just look at him. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so obvious. <laughs> I would say He's, it's even more obvious with Kevin than it was with Brian, but yes. Yeah, Kevin, I think you could get away with because he wasn't a wrestler and whatever. But, I mean, Brian is the on eyes. TV. And, you know. eyes. It's the eyes. Yeah, he, true. Ha- he has his di- dad's eyes, the, just the way they're shaped. All right, so Honky Tonk Man showed up on TV. So let's go to Honky, shall we, and see how this plays out. Oh, uh, we were just <laughs> talking about the uh, the tournament coming up. Uh, Monday night at Mid-South Coliseum, the uh, tag team tournament. That's the Honky Tonk Man coming out here. Honky Tonk Man. It sure is. I, you know, I noticed when you were doing out of town that he was going to be in uh, yeah, one of the cities town, around yeah. here. Honky Tonk Man. Honky Tonk Man. Nice to meet you, Dave. Good to see you. you on TV and, and well, seeing everything that's going on. Honky Tonk Man, I haven't met you. I've seen you on TV. My name is Corey Mack. Corey, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I want to say hello to all of my friends and all of my fans that's been waiting for the Honky Tonk Man. You know, Dave, I, I, I've watched the show on several occasions. The Honky Tonk Man lives around here. Honky, I've heard that. Honky Land USA. It's a big theme park. <laughs> open all day long to the public just for my friends and all of my fans. But the, the one thing that I wanted to clear up, I've been on the phone on several occasions I've spoken with the USWA promoter uh, Eddie Marlin and, and for some unknown reason the honky talk man either Eddie Marlin either I can't communicate with him or this old decrepit Eddie Marlin maybe Alzheimer's has set in on him and he can't hear straight but the reason I'm here now is to meet him face to face you see I make a statement the honky talk man if there's something wrong I step up to the plate and I say something's wrong I'm not afraid to say what I feel now, for some reason, I can't get the kind of matches that I deserve because I am the greatest of all time, Dave. And when you introduce me, you say I'm the great. Let me interfere here. I've talked to you on the phone several times as right. I may be old, but I'm not hard hearing. Evidently, you're hard hearing. You may be a big star all over the world. No, I'm not a big star. I'm the greatest of all time. Okay, that's your opinion. But in the USWA, I'm the star. I booked the matches. You may go call all the other promoters and say, I want this match, this match, and this match. And they bow to you and get it. But here, you work your way up. You don't I, no, start no, no. just 
Picking your matches. See, see, there's the problem we have right there. There's a communication breakdown with you, Eddie Marlin. Now, I don't know. I said, no, it's you. It's maybe it's the Alzheimer's that's set in. When I tell you that I want and I deserve championship matches and I want to wrestle the best talent the USWA has to offer, that's what I expect. And that's what the greatest of all time. I sing, I dance, I wrestle, and oh, yeah, I play the guitar, too. But I see right now that I cannot communicate with you in any way. That's because you don't listen. I told you I would book you in matches. But you're not going to come in here and demand a title match with this and that and other. You will have your matches that I book you in, and when you work your way up, you will get a title match, and not until. Well, that's real good. That's just what I want to hear, this open-door policy right. that the USWA is supposed to have. But when the honky-tonk man says, I want to wrestle somebody, I'll wrestle anybody, anytime, the open-door policy seems to close with people like little Jeff Jarrett, the fair-haired young man. That's right, little Jeff Jarrett. He dodges and ducks all his matches. He hides behind your coattail and his mama's coattail because I say this. He gets championship matches anytime he wants them. All he's got to do is say, come on, Eddie, I want a championship match. He gets it. I don't. That's because every match I sign him in, he gets in there and puts out 100%. He don't pick his matches. Yeah, he don't pick them. You pick them for him, and you give him the kosher little matches. Did you just say kosher little matches? I don't yeah. think I know this young man. Now, honky dog man, I was going to sit back there and listen to you run your mouth, but I already heard just enough. You out here and say that I duck and I dodge everybody and I still get the title shots? Well, no, pal, I'm, I'm obviously you had... Oh, just wait just a second. Obviously, you don't watch the TV good enough because just a few short weeks ago, I was a Southern heavyweight title holder until four or five guys had to jump me, and that's how Brian Christopher's the champion. What I'm saying is you're protected. I'm saying that people like you in the USWA hide behind Eddie Marlin's coattail, and I ask for championship matches, and what are you doing out here anyway? You don't have a belt. You're not a champion. Why are you even talking to me? Well, I, 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 don't recall, I don't recall ever formally meeting this young man, by the way. Well... This young oh, man come is, on, yeah, Honky Talk. Yeah. yeah, you know who I am, Honky Talk. Yeah, you think you come out here and you want to say you're a big star, and you can call all the promoters up and get any title shots you want. Well, who have you beat recently? No, where are you rated in any ratings? You ain't nowhere, Honky Talk. Well, you got to work your way up. Now, if you want a title shot, you go to Eddie Marlin and you go through the right avenues. But if you want to wrestle some, somebody, why don't you wrestle me right here today? And if you beat me, I guarantee you, you will be a title contender, because I sure am. The simple reason I'm not going to do that, and I don't want to do it, is because I want championship matches of championship caliber people. And you, it's like I said, I don't know you. In fact, I've only heard of you. I've heard of you through people like Eddie Marley, somebody you hide behind because you get the kind of matches you want. Well, I now, guess look. you've heard of Jerry Lawler, hadn't you? Well, me and him held the tag titles for several months. I guess you've heard of Brian Christopher, maybe not. Right. Well, I just held I just held the title before he did. What, Eddie? Wait just a second. You say that I protect this young sure, man? you do. He just challenged you to a match. I will sign that match. I wasn't going to start well, you that high right up, now. but I will sign that <laughs> match if you want to get in the ring hey, with Jeff Jarrett. First of all, since I don't know anything about him other than the fact of what you do Learned for him, I don't take a challenge from somebody who doesn't have a championship belt. It's not championship caliber well, material. Now, if it's Brian Christopher, he's got a belt. If it's Jerry Lawler, fine. These people have the championship belt. Hey, the belt looks good around my waist. I need it. I want it. And I've got to have it. What titles have you held recently? If you want a championship match. Let him answer that. Well, what titles have you held recently? The greatest of all time. That's all that matters. I don't know anything about this punk. As far as I'm concerned, Case 
clothes. I get what I want, Eddie Marner. Without you. I don't need a match with this punk. He's get, he's not gonna make a name off of me. That's just how it is. Well, the offer was yeah. on the table there, and uh, wouldn't take it. He he knows who you are. Yeah, he certainly does. And if he wants to find out who I am, I just want to make one last offer. Honky talk man, I put my name on the dotted line. Why don't you put yours? There's a word from Jeff Jarrett. Well, we didn't. He, did, he turned the match down is what he did and walked out of here, the honky-tonk man. Let's take another break. I apologize. We'll be back with the tournament. Stay with us. It is see, it's interesting seeing Jeff Jarrett with honky-tonk man, considering what gimmick Jeff Jarrett's going to have in just a few months. <laughs> I, Jeff Jarrett, you know, I, I like Jeff Jarrett. But he has got to be the most overpushed wrestler of all time. Even here, I mean, he's out there, you know, he, how do I put this? He's all blown up, obviously. And he's got those ridiculous court jester trunks. And <laughs> I just don't, I just don't see, you know, I remember watching USWA in the early 90s and thinking, you know, these guys can't possibly think that this is going to be Jerry Lawler's replacement. And obviously he wasn't because Memphis went bye bye. I mean, Jeff, Jeff, the stigma on Jeff is if Jeff had a different last name, how different would his career have been? What do you mean? What, what, what would his career have been? Might he have been an accountant or something? Certainly not a pro wrestler. <laughs> I mean, that's the one thing that, 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 that the stigma on Jeff is, you know, among, you know, the people that aren't as high on him as others is, you know, is he one of those guys that just was at the beginning successful because of who his father was? But he was always talented, though. He was a good worker. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jeff Jeff was a hell of a hand, but I could see where John's coming from in the, how he was pushed compared. To, I mean, just look at the difference how he's pushed in Memphis compared to how he's pushed in Dallas. You know, where, I mean, he's not, it's still a Jarrett promotion, but it's not the home promotion. And he was, I mean, he was a top guy in Dallas, but he wasn't the top guy in Dallas. You know, he was an over, he was an over pushed, I guess, so to speak. Well, you no, know, we didn't get this. Faded jeans. <laughs> oh. Broad shoulders. That's a poster. To receive your Jeff Jarrett poster, send four ninety five. <laughs> That's right, only four ninety five plus a dollar shipping and handling to CWA Jarrett Poster, PO Box three nine six, Paulsboro, New Jersey oh eight oh six six. Yeah, that didn't endear him to uh, male fans. <laughs> and they absolutely should have known. Hey, don't run this. I don't care how much your money you're making off of it. It's going to set Jeff Jarrett back, and it did. Well, here's yeah. the thing. Of all the bookers and promoters in the business, the one who should have known best was Jerry Jarrett. Jerry oh, Jarrett. Nepotism the, is what it is. Yeah, because but Jerry Jarrett is the one who knew how to book that type of baby face. He knew you had to put the to book the fabs as these ruggedly handsome tough guys who, yeah, the girls love him, but they get in there with the moon dogs and the sheep herders and they're having these bloody brawls and going toe to toe and blah blah blah. You go to don't go too far in one direction. 
you know, if you go too far in this direction, you get the Jeff Jarrett poster, you get Vince McMahon and Doc Hendricks sounding like they want to have sex with Shawn Michaels, you know, like. <laughs> well, Vince did. <laughs> you get the Rock and Roll Express putting out music when they can't make music. Boogie woogie dance hall. <laughs> in a totally different direction, our last clip. Features Miss Texas and Sapphire. Now, if you remember, Burt Prentice had brought Sapphire into Memphis to say that she used to be married to Miss Texas when Miss Texas was a man named Bubba Johnson. And we, I remember we, this. That was funny. Yeah, we've talked. We've done that week before on the show and played that promo, and yeah, it was pretty wild. Well, things have changed since then, and Sapphire and Miss Texas are a. Uh, a unit here, so to speak. Well, even so the first week, I mean, Sapphire comes out and is like, well, wait a second. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's go to Sapphire Miss Texas and what a visual this is. Well, with the big tournament, I don't know all the matches that are coming up this week, but I know one of them. It's going to be Sapphire, Sapphire Miss Texas like going Brown. against Burt Prentice and Leslie Ballinger. That's right. That's right. And first, I'd like to thank Mr. Eddie Marler for letting me come here and be a part of the show. And the main thing I want to thank him for is to give me a chance to pick this bone with Mr. Prentice. You know, he brought me here, had me to embarrass myself in front of all my friends, trying to say I was married to a woman. That's not true. I'll tell you one thing. Now, he may be a funny man. I don't know about that. But I'm going to show him, baby, I am not a funny woman. You know what I mean? Okay, well, I think we hear you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, girlfriend. Hold on. I deserve the first shot at Buffalo Butt, okay? All right. I've been trying to get him in the ring one-on-one. Bert Prentice, when I get you in the ring, I'm going to kick your fat butt all around the ring. And lastly, you stick your nose in my business. I'm going to beat you like I own you. Now, wait a minute. Prentice has just climbed into the ring. <laughs> what Prentice what are you doing? He said, no, come on. No, 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 no. The match is, don't, no, no, no. Miss Texas, Sapphire, be careful. Uh, no, Miss Texas Chris goes right after him. She gets up Prentice over there and goes to work on first Prentice. Look out, Mike Sample. Samples has got Sapphire from behind, and Leslie Bellinger jumps into the ring and grabs Miss Texas. Yeah, she's got Miss Texas holding her over there. Holding on to Miss Texas. Look at Prentice. Takes a strap off his pants in there and lashing Miss Texas. <laughs> Boy, I didn't even think Bert Prentice wore a belt. He comes in there, takes it off, and lashing away on Miss Texas in there. <laughs> Prentice, while Leslie Ballinger holds on to her, Mike Samples has got Sapphire down here. This is ridiculous, let me tell you. Ridiculous, Miss ridiculous. I mean, he's going hard on the Lanceisms too, just yelling out the name and then not saying anything. Yeah, it's Prentice. <laughs> fine, fine Saturday morning programming, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, well, that too. And like, I mean, the thing is, because I know John doesn't listen every week or anything, like, the thing we've picked up with Corey Macklin is that when, if Lance is there with him, Corey uses his normal voice. If Lance is not there, and it's just Corey and Dave or Corey and Michael St. John or whoever. Corey's trying to do di- trying to do Lance. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, he goes with what, he, you know, 
what he grew up with. You know, you see that in sports announcing at times where some of these guys, young guys in sports announcing will mimic their mentors. Yes. You know? So, Corey, you got the Prentice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or the Over here. Oh, come on now, guys. <laughs> you know, that's one of my favorites. I, I don't even remember Sapphire in Memphis. I mean, there she is, but I don't remember it. And Ballinger heading out of here. Samples runs over and gets some of it. Oh! <laughs> Samples yelling, no, no, not yeah. me, not me. Hey, yeah. but that leaves yeah, like Prentice over here. You forgot about Prentice. He's trying to get out. Yeah, look out for Prentice. Jeff <laughs> Jarrett grabs him. Oh, boy. Yeah, he, he is him, though. Escaped. He's yeah, out he of here. He ran a 100-yard dash and got out of here, Prentice. This is not going to work. No, no, no. You don't play that. Come on, you don't play this. But Prentice... I'm going to have this belt with me. You better get off. You better get ready for a good old-fashioned buck chicken. That's right. We got something All right. Sapphire and Miss Texas uh, holding their own pretty well there, let me tell you, especially when they got a little help from Jeff to kind of even things up there. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more USWA action. Stay with us. The funny thing is, is that Burt Prentice and Sapphire go back to the early 70s. Fan clubs. Fan clubs. Because she was a big time part of, part of that community, and so was Burt. Like, I would look at old uh, 70s magazines, like the Jim Melby mags, and there and there's both of them in there. You know, with Tanae and Dave and some of those other big names from the past. You know, I did not know that about Miss Texas. Well, no, Sapphire. About Sapphire. Oh, Sapphire, excuse me. I, I didn't yeah. know that about Sapphire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was big time in that community. Yes. Um, now, John McAdam may not remember now that Sapphire was in Memphis, but uh, I pulled up johnmcadam.com on the old Wayback Machine. <laughs> yes. Bert Prentice appears on TV with Sapphire. Remember Dusty Rhodes' old valet in the WWF? Prentice had been claiming that Miss Texas was really a man named Bubba Johnson, but looked like a woman after a sex change operation, parenthesis, exclamation point, close parenthesis, and brought out <laughs> Sapphire to claim Bubba as her husband. Sapphire objects to this trick and punches out the puffy Prentice. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember writing that, but there it is. I don't remember her on TV, but there it is as well. Yes, the only thing uh, on this compilation from our week is uh, Honky Tonk Man shows up on TV looking for title matches. Jeff Jarrett objects, and they argue. So that's they, all you which, wrote. Yeah, that's what happened. That's what happened. <laughs> all right, supposedly the trading agreement with WF will pick up steam in the upcoming weeks while Lawler defending all against Kurt Henning, Randy Savage, and Lex Luger. But she does. Yep. And that's the beginning of that whole thing, which leads to Vince. Vic Memphis. Did Henning make Memphis? I don't remember that either. Yes, Okay, I remember Savage and Luger. Yep, Henning was was like one of the first ones. Okay. Yeah, he was early in the game. Okay, so I'm curious, by the way, um, how big of a seller was like the WWF guys in Memphis stuff back in the day when it was fresh? And then I guess a little later on when you were selling tapes. 
It, well, I mean, it, it was popular. I do remember that. It was popular, and, and it was pretty cool to watch. I mean, you know, Lex Luger in this environment that, you know, you'd think he wouldn't fit into, but, you know, they made it work. Oh, the Luger stuff is great. Yeah, he totally <laughs> acclimated to the studio. I mean, a lot of guys did. Doink the Clown did his best work in Memphis. No questions asked. And, of course, Brett and Owen. You know, when they when they started their thing was great. And, and then well. the whole Vince McMahon thing. Oh, that yeah. Oh, God. The the precursor of what was to come. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. All uh, right. Uh, and Chris was right, by the way. Kurt is the first one on uh, February 1st. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, towards note, the final Jerry Lawler show aired on January 17th as WF commitments apparently cut into his time. Interesting. I did not know that was the reason. Yep. Uh, well, that may have been the alleged reason. I mean, no one comes out and says, well, no one watches my show anymore and it's getting canceled, <laughs> which I'm not I'm not even saying that happened. I'm just saying, you know, that might not be it. The Jerry Lawler show was something else. I mean, he'd be out there, you know, with whatever wife he was with at the time, like picking NFL the whole time, games. I think. But yeah, well, th- th- this time, though, uh, his co-host was uh, Jennifer. Ah, uh, yes, Jennifer. Well, they were never married if they were a no. thing. But. Yeah. No, I remember him and the ill-named Paula Lawler were yes. out there, like, on Sunday, you know, picking NFL games. Okay, I think the Raiders are going to win this week. It was a kind of a crazy show. And, supposed, and supposedly she was pretty good at picking. That was I don't remember too. either way. Yeah. That's funny, though. Yeah, supposedly she was really good at picking football games. So... Hey, whatever. All right. Well, uh, let's so, go. Let's uh, go. So, unfortunately, the Jerry Lawler show was not able to quite make it to 10 years. No. All right. Well, let's go to the Metroplex. And it's 1993. So that means Bix's favorite promotion, Big D. Big D is continuing to run Sunday night shows in Dallas. We heard the promotion is no longer in existence about a month back. Anyway, main event on January 17th was John Tatum and Bobby Duncan Jr. against Gary Young and Wobble Irwin. Freddie Fargo returned to the Rocket Palace and was at ringside. I wonder why the newsletter report is leading with that. <laughs> well, I wonder Fargo who sent this in. <laughs> Fargo eventually convinced Tatum to turn on Duncan, so they're battering him until Hawk made the save. John Hawk. Uh, Tatum then took Fargo as his manager. Fargo told Duncan and Hawk that he had they had the butt heads with an Iraqi sympathizer and a ball headed old fart. In reference to Skandar Apar and Gary Hart, at that tin can they work at every Friday night. In reference to the Sportatorium, but they never had to contend with a New Yorker before. Tatum and Irwin versus Duncan and Hawk headlines the coming Sunday show. Current title holders in Big D are Wobber Irwin as your heavyweight champion, Jimmy James as your light heavyweight champion, and Action Jackson and Terry Sims as your tag champions. Results of the 17th show Ray Evans over Chad Alamont, Terry Sims over Rob Price by DQ, Mascara de Fuego over Super Aries. Two, two, three fall, or two on three, excuse me. Iceman and Action Jackson over Ian and Axel Rotten and the Animal, Todd Hecht. Uh, Lumberjack Strap match, Chris Adams and Big D beat Billy Joe Travis and Jimmy James. And Gary Young, Wobble Irwin, went double DQ with Tatum and Duncan Jr. Yeah. Now, glo- Global. Oh, okay. We're going to go through all this before we discuss. Yeah. According to a mention in Phil Mushnick's sports column in the New York Post, the Global Taste will be. Will be replaced next month by a sports trivia game show that's currently being taped in Las Vegas. Mushnick not the global show in his January 18 column. Well, this was Smokey's chance. <laughs> and this is, I, I think they have a little bit 
on ESPN after this, but this is basically the end. Well, they got ESPN too. Well, yes, later on. Yes, and the, but the, this is also the era where they start airing basically the same episode of Legends of Professional Wrestling every day. Yeah. The, the one that they made fun of in the Shadonamaki post, because it was always the same episode with the same intro from Doyle King. <laughs> yeah. Even though the Ebony Experience fire Sebastian every week, he was still in their corner on January 20th. It caused the DQ against the Ian Nazarotten. Killed Tim Brooks and Terry Sims had a false anywhere match on the car, which ended when Brooks pinned Sims on the hot dog concession stand in the front lobby. And Maniac Mike Davis is now Crazy Mike Davis. 2,000 fans heavily papered at oh, the sports really? room on the 22nd. Axel Rotten over Mark Burns. Calvin Knapp over Bullman Downs by DQ. Bill Irwin as a Super Destroyer over Chaz Taylor. Alistair Plug Porto over Dino Hernandez. The Rottens over the Ebony Experience by DQ. Dino Hernandez. Dino Hernandez. That's right. In Dallas. False In Dallas. False Cut Anywhere. Killer Timbrus over Terry Sims. Angel of Death over Ross Reed. Big John Hawk Bradshaw. Layfield and Bobby Duncan Jr. over Ian and Axel Rotten, Rob Price over Crazy Mike Davis by Canada, and Chris Adams double count out with Black Bart. And uh, Iceman King Parsons, his 13 year old son, working as Iceman King Parsons Jr., debuting on January 20th in Mesquite for MCW, beating the animal Todd Hecht and in front of 114 fans. Are we assuming saw the- this is a Mesquite Championship Wrestling? Maybe. American Ninja over The Crusher. Big John Hawkett, James Beard, referee over Ray Evans and Dave McAllister. Ebony Prince over Bobby Duncan Jr. Uh, Alice the Pug over Calvin Knapp by DQ. Rob Price, Jimmy James Amel won a handicap match over Iceman and Action Jackson and Iceman Jr. over The Animal. And then in Mission, Texas for the USWF on January 18th, and Coco the, Ramirez. The, I, was th- I saw USWF. I was thinking the Steve Nelson one, but this is not. Coco Ramirez over Butcher Murphy, GQ Knight over Tony Knight, Scott Pusky over Mr. Wrestling 3 by disqualification, John Hawk over Rob Price, Bobby Duncan Jr. went to a double countout with Jason the 13th. Amazing. The Blackhearts over Chaz and Todd Taylor, and Dynamite Dixon over Carrie Von Herrett by countout. Now, this is not in the Metroplex, but Metroplex talent on this show, at least. But good lord. Border town, but okay. So what do we have here? Uh, let I guess let's work backwards. Uh, Carrie worked. I mean, also, why are you running a border town with that da- all Dallas guys? Well, and and Scott Putsky, but still, why are you running all these North Texas guys in Dallas in Mission instead of doing a lucha show or something? That's weird. Um, yeah. I had no idea that American Ninja Lee Campbell wrestled at all after TWF closed. Yeah. Because he was the promoter or whatever. Um, You know, 2000 heavily papered, which, you know, again, Gray Pearson controlled the concessions at the Swartatorium. It, you know, it's not the ridiculous endeavor it was made to look like in the newsletters at the time. Like this, he was not losing money hand over fist. In some cases, he was actually making money. It was to get people in the building and then, you know, make money off of parking and concessions. Uh, I did not remember Sebastian still being around in 1993. Yeah, it was January 93. Still, like, it it had ceased being the out-of-work Dallas area actors promotion. Oh, no, it hadn't. By this point, hadn't it? Oh, it had not. Oh, no, all those guys are still there. 
Joe Castellini. Jay Gaston B. Means, Joe Castellini, okay, Sebastian. Oh, yes. I mean, Jack, Jackie Goldman is later, but he's the only one there when that happens. Um, so that and then, of course, Big D, the only promotion that has a top baby face with the same name as the promotion. <laughs> and and I, know to be I like a mascot. A... I mean, he's not super triple <laughs> He's not Captain New Japan. He's just Big D. And he's also yeah. the promoter, of course. Of course. All I know is I have a new dream match, Dino Hernandez against the guy who called himself Mark Von Erich. <laughs> I was unaware there was a Dino Hernandez out there. Yeah, this global this global era is something else. No air on ESPN. It's David Webb is Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> that, woo. And what D- a so Dino Hernandez, group. Mark Von Erich, we need a tournament. Don DiBiase, Dave, Dave Patera, Mysterio. Dave Mysterio. <laughs> uh, who else? I'm forgetting some uh, some people. That's <laughs> a few. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of fake valiants over the years too. Yeah, so. I mean, well, they're all fake valiants, but well, yeah, I know. Um, what just? I yeah, mean, it's just this, crazy, crazy time. I'll say this now that the the different promotions are on better terms with each other. It it's interesting to see how much work the Metroplex guys were able to get even in this very like cold market. Yeah. Yeah. They were able to work fairly often. Well, well, I mean, you would hope so. It's a major city. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Herb Abrams, yes, Herb Abrams canceled his January 20th show in Beverly Hills, California, which was to be his first new television taping. Okay. I might have missed this when we did the Patreon shows because I don't know if I re- we mentioned <laughs> this because it was so removed from everything else. Um, I'm pulling up ProWrestlingHistory.com to refresh my memory on where this falls in the timeline. But John, what I don't know if I mean you've ever talked about Herb Abrams. What were your thoughts on Herb Abrams and UWF? I mean, it was pretty obvious from the get go that Herb was. I don't know. He was a bit of a nut. I mean, we had a couple of startups. Uh, Pedicino was starting up, and that I had some hopes for, which were quickly extinguished. I mean, Abrams from the beginning was kind of a disaster. I mean, he goes out and he says that Blackjack Mulligan's going to be his booker and that Bruiser Brody's going to work for him. <laughs> you know, just nutty stuff. And it's like, you know, well, I mean, he had quite an Brody opportunity. obviously was dead. Mulligan was in federal prison. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I should have pointed that out. And, you know, he ha- really had a tremendous opportunity. His his television was well produced. He was on Sports Channel America, and he just kind of couldn't get out of his own way. Yeah. And a lot of drugs. Well, a yes. whole lot of drugs. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Herb Abrams was in a loud argument with a prostitute over payment right outside my hotel room. <laughs> uh, what year was that? 91? But those two were getting into it. This <laughs> I was, was enjoying it. When this was a taping, he ran around the 91 Arezzi convention? Uh, yes, that, okay. was, that was it. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so this would be July 20th, 1991, presumably? That sounds about right. Oh, no, that was in Fort Lauderdale, so no, it wouldn't be that. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's, I think actually, it was wait like a second. Mi- no, he wasn't running in New York by that time of year. He was only running Florida, so... I think it was August 91. Okay, maybe we don't have results for that then. But 
I, I'm not sure if he had a show. I, maybe he was just around. I don't know. That he was just hanging, he hanging around. He had a table at the convention. Yeah. 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 I was trying uh, to impress Dave and, Dave and Wade. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I, if I remember right, that's the Arezzi convention that Rock and Robin was at with both the UWF and WWF women's belts. Okay. Um, okay. So pulling up Jason Campbell. Robin's cute, by the way. She's a lot cuter than she was on TV. Usually it's the other way around. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Usually when you see well any star in person, they don't look like they did on television. I mean, there are That's... some people that are just not as photogenic as you'd think, regardless of how they look in real life. Yeah. You know, exactly. Precious was another one, way hotter in real life than on TV. Yeah. See, right, someone I would say is very conventionally attractive, though, but. I, still, yeah. it can be different. Um, I was just going to say with Herb, so just to get an idea of where we are at this point, he had run two TV tapings in June and August in the Carolinas. Uh, oh, no, excuse me. He had one, one taping in June. He may have run a show in August that may have been canceled, and then he doesn't run again until his July 24th, 93 taping in Minot, North Dakota. Okay. And then he does former AWA stomping grounds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so he, yeah, he has two shows left after this in the next, you know, two years. All right. Well, let's close out this section with Championship Wrestling USA out of Portland. Lou Andrews over Buddy Wayne. This on the twenty third. Max Steele over John Rambo. Mike Winter over Diamond Timothy Flowers. Colonel De Beers t- won the TV title over Bar Sawyer. Jesse Barr, no contest ability, two Eagles. Larry Oliver, C.W. Bershima, Michelle Starr, and Al Madrill. So, uh, yeah, definitely not Don Owens, Portland Wrestling. No, and I, I I mean, even in 93, I was like, why are these guys even trying anymore? Obviously, you know, you've been on the ground for a long time and you're not getting up. They're just doing what they could to get paid, I guess, as long as people were coming. And they were. They're just trying to. You know, but it wasn't the same. It was definitely just not the same. Well, and you're always this... fighting with the commission. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. By this point, they had, I mean, the wrestlers had long since given up on trying to make a living off of wrestling in the territory, though, for the most part. Like, yeah. Yeah. It was it like, become something to do. Yeah. By like 89, <laughs> even though 89, they had kind of heated up a little. Like 89, they, most of the guys already had jobs outside of wrestling. Um, but it was just, they kept going. I mean, I mean, there are exceptions. I, like, my understanding is Buddy Wayne pretty much always made a living as a wrestler. Like, I don't think he ever really had another job. Um, so there are some exceptions, you know. And, and there I was, are people who were promoting and stuff, too, like Tim Flowers. But go ahead. No, I was in Chicago at a convention in 1989, and Buddy Roberts was working for Chicago Championship Wrestling and he was part of a faction known as the Chicago Freebirds. And it, the whole thing was a disaster. And we're all looking at each other like, you know, pro wrestling exists. So a guy like Buddy Rob, Roberts doesn't have, a, have to have a real job. Exactly. I mean, that's basically what it is. Yes. Yeah, well, OK, so here's to add to that. So that was the 89 UAWF convention. And I'm trying to remember the exact story. So who was it? Who was it that was originally going to put on the big wrestling show for the convention that week? Was it going to be? It was going to be AWA with Dale Gagner as the go-between, right? That's correct. 
And then because of Dale Gagner's issues with the AWA or something that falls through and uh, John Gallagher ends up having to kind of make do by making a last second deal with Windy City and the Chicago Championship guys. And he's trying to salvage the convention. And I remember the story. I think he wrote that John wrote this himself at some point in wrestling form or maybe he came up later. I don't remember exactly. Um, he's trying to salvage what he can just by figuring out, okay, who's in Chicago? And he's like, oh, Buddy Roberts is in Chicago. And Buddy's trying to strong-harm him into, like, paying more than he should at the time. Oh, John, of course. And John is basically like, Buddy, I don't think he outright says you're living in your car, but he basically says, Buddy, you will get a table, you will be able to sell gimmicks, are you going to come or not? And he was there, like you said. I I was telling John at the time, I was like, you know, I know he had the, the falling out with Gagner over whatever. And I'm like, John, don't even bother having a wrestling show. We're, we're here to hang out. We don't care. But we wound up having one anyway, and we had a really good time. And that's all that mattered in the end. Exactly. All right, let's close that with World Championship Wrestling, and we start with the torch. Jim Ross and his Ross support on WCW Hotline on January 23rd said the announcement of that uh, Ric Flair coming here might be a little premature, to be quite honest with you, but when there's smoke, there's fire. Huh? Now, Arn a- Anderson was on Ross's radio show the week earlier on D- WSB Radio, the blowtorch of the South, and came across a total babyface. Ross hinted about a resurfacing of the horsemen with Rick, Arn, Barry, and Sid. Speaking of... Sid got his release from Titan Sports on January 22nd, which makes Dave think he'll be here before too much longer. Either way, he's now a free agent and free to take independent dates as well. No, Sid Udy got his release, Sid, Chris. Sid Udy, yes, you Sid Udy, yes. You gotta read the Udy if a newsletter uses the Udy. <laughs> yes. Which, All right, John. Like, well, okay. More fallout I, from 1992. I mean, <laughs> you know... Sid leaves because the uh, he didn't want to comply with the steroid testing. He's not Sid without the look. So, uh, I mean, just more fallout from, you know, I mean, 1992 was such a bad year in wrestling. Well, think about it like this, okay? What if they did? What if they decided to think, well, Rick's back. Arn's here. Barry's here. Sid's going to be coming back. We never broke these guys up as the horsemen. Let's bring about together again. How do you think that would have worked out? I think it would have worked out okay had they made them baby faces. But um, honestly, I think by 1993, hell, by 1989, the whole horseman thing, it was time to put it to rest. It had been done to death. I know this is kind of a controversial opinion, but it had been done to death. They, you know, you have the horseman as the centerpiece of the promotion, and it just didn't work. And here's another thing people are going to hate to hear. The way Eric Bischoff used the horseman was the right way to use the horseman in the mid-90s. Just, you know, they're not at the top of the card anymore. So you have your horsemen, but they're not dominating everything. And the thing is, you know, in some people's mind, and I can go along with this, is there really a four horseman if there's no Tully Blanchard? Uh, the four, yes, the four horse can, can be done without Tully Blanchard. Matter of fact, I think it could have been done without Ric Flair, believe it or not. I think what they should have done in 87 was turn Flair babyface and have Ric Flair against the four horsemen be well, the main feud. Well, you, well I've, I've spouted this theory many, many times. 
after Starcade 87 or whatever, they should have split it up and have Ric Flair and Arn against Tully and Lex. So you have, you know, Flair, and then you, you can bring Ole back. They have the Andersons against Tully Blanchard Enterprises. You know, because Tully Blanchard Enterprises was always kind of this separate type of entity inside the Horsemen. So, you know, you do a Tully Blanchard Enterprises deal with Tully and Lex and JJ and maybe one more person added. Maybe a Barry Wyndham against Flair, Ole and Arn. You know, that would have been so, something like that would have been refreshing, you know, than the same old, same old that that we got. Yeah, I mean, it's same old, same old is right. In my opinion, the, the, the thing to do would have been Ric Flair versus the rest of the four horsemen and have Barry or someone like that turn on Ric Flair. You know, in 89, there was some sort of a plan in place, which never got off the ground, to make the four horsemen uh, Dusty Rhodes' group. It was going to be Dusty Rhodes, Butch Reed, Bob Orton Jr., I think Barry, and Barry Windham, yeah. Yeah. And they were going to be like a cowboy outfit. And I was just like, please don't do this. Oh, my God. And, you know, of course, everything was, um, you know, just so liquid in early 1989 that, you know, what what you had were definitely going to do yesterday is out the window today. Yeah, it's a good thing that that didn't happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Dusty was I mean, Dusty's last NWA show was uh, 35 years ago, two days ago. And, you know, everyone knew, like, as soon as he got fired as Booker, he was gone. And this was an idea that was thrown out there after he was the Booker. So, yeah, after he was done as Booker, I'm sorry. Yeah. All right. David Boy Smith signed a contract with WCW this week, according to the torch, which of earlier reports were accurate, probably includes European bonuses. Smith announced his move to the press in England. And there's thought that WF may retain the rights to the British Bulldog name, however. Well, they don't. But he's really, but he's definitely Davy Boy Smith way more in WCW than he was in WWF. Yes, they they prioritized Davy Boy Smith over the British Bulldog more in WCW. But I'm, I'm curious if the, how much they mentioned. Like I'm going by memory. I'm trying to pull something up. Let's see. I mean, was he the British Bulldog at all in his second run? When in WWF? In WCW in '98. In '98. Not really. No. I don't remember them ever calling him British Bulldog in the late 90s in WCW. I don't think they called him that a lot in, 80, in 93 either. I think it was more Davy Boy Smith. I actually remember specifically reading somewhere that they wanted to get away from the British Bulldog name because, you know, that's Davy when he was in a tag team and he's kind of grown out of that. They wanted him to be, you know, Davy Boy Smith, uh, the single guy. Well, they were pushing him in main events against Vader, you know? Yeah, I just pulled up a Saturday night match from May, and he's definitely the British Bulldog, J.B. Boy Smith. And he's okay. got a robe that says Bulldog and stuff. He does, but they don't. You know how WWF always did it with, with Kerry, where it was Texas Tornado, Texas Tornado, Texas Tornado. You know, it was, and he kind of got in tired WWF, of that. WWF, he was primarily, he'd primarily be referred to as Bulldog, and WCW would primarily be referred to as Davey. Yes. Basically. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. yeah. Um, doubling back real quick, John, because I did want to ask you this. Uh, why did the newsletter writers take such glee in referring to Sid Udi by his last name? Is his actual last name? I 
I think it was because I, I don't know. I'm not sure if they took glee in it. Um, I think it's because he used so many different personas. He was Sid Vicious one day. He was Sid Justice the next day. Then he was Psycho Sid. It's like, okay, you know, this is one way to use to keep it all under one umbrella. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have a different theory. Uh, okay. Involving what it rhymes with, but ah. <laughs> Sid I mean, duty. it's early. It's early ninety sheets. I mean, it's, yeah. Well, that level mature, of maturity was there at times. So. At times it was. I can't deny that. Since Harley Race and Vader are using a heavy strap as a gimmick on television, and Race gave Wyndham the strap he's on Sting on a TV match, Dave's guess is the White Castle affair is something along the lines of a strap match. And it was a strap match. <laughs> boy, was it! <laughs> that was a hell of a strap match. One, one of the best ones I've ever seen. Uh, one of the few bright spots of WCW in that era. Oh, Sting Invaders feud. All their matches, man. They, they, that's the whole feud was just fantastic. Yeah, and you got to give Sting credit. You know, Sting, I feel like in 2024, just doesn't give enough get enough credit for how good he was in his prime. Oh, especially, you know, coming back from the injury, especially. Yes. You know, because before the injury, he, there was so much he could do that he couldn't do as well after the injury. And he changed and adapted to it and became more of a smarter wrestler, you know, and, if you come back. And against Vader, like, he's rising to the occasion so much and doing so much different stuff he didn't do against anyone. Like, you can tell, like, he just relishes those opportunities in a way he doesn't with other guys. You know, Sting sometimes gets uh, slagged on for being a guy who just collected a paycheck. And yes, it's what he did for a living. So that was important to him. But I I, I, I think he gets a wrongful uh, reputation as being a guy who just showed up. Like, I think he was way better than that. Like I said, I give the guy a lot more credit than some people do. It's the association with Luger. Probably that- because Luger was the epitome of that. Or he turned into the he epitome. He turned into that. that, yeah. He turned into that, yeah. But, yeah, great stuff. Tim Willett, who had been promoting WF events in the Southwest, was hired to head up the TV syndication department. What? Why? <laughs> well, that's Those what it says. different jobs. It's WCW. <laughs> well, are you surprised that they would do something like that? I'm not. <laughs> Turn a broadcast in, everybody. Also, just interesting timing given what happens to Jim Ross in a few weeks. Uh, yes. That he yes, ends up being taken off TV as an announcer and uh, moved into selling syndication. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. All right. Well, let's go to our clips. We have an update on the U.S. title situation as uh, Dustin Rhodes and Rick Rude are having their feud. So uh, let's go to that, shall we? And see how this is going. Well, the U.S. title situation at this point in January is that Rude vacated due to the injury. Yeah, well, there's been nothing later in the year. You're thinking later in the year when it gets vacated or whatever, or held up again. I think Dustin's involved in this, though. So let's go. No, Dustin is involved in this. If it's the tournament deal, then it's Dustin winning the title, probably or whatever. But this is coming out of Rude's injury, and then they do the. There was the tournament that was originally shot as a contender tournament and then turned into the new tournament for the new champion, which is why they don't give Dustin the belt on TV when he wins it. And then, but, no, but Wyndham, no, Wyndham was who interfered in the match with Steamboat, though. I don't, Root's, Root's not back yet. So, 
let's see what this clip actually is since I don't know from what you're saying. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to WCW Saturday Night. I'm here with Cowboy Bill Watts, the Vice President of Wrestling Operations for World Championship Wrestling. And Bill, this United States uh, Heavyweight Championship situation certainly reached its peak last week. Dustin Rhodes won the title, but he didn't receive a belt. Well, that's right. Rick Rude is not wanting to give the belt up. He's very upset about being stripped of the title. However, he is he may have the belt, but he is not the champion. Dustin Rhodes is the champion. Will eventually get the belt back from Rick Rude. And the only way he's going to get to keep it is if he comes back and wins it. We gave him 60 days that he didn't defend the title. It's unfortunate that he's injured. Without a doubt, I believe the injury. I've talked to his doctor, but he's not supposed to be back to March 1st. Dustin Rhodes is the U.S. champion. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Dustin Rhodes certainly was upset the way he won the championship here last week. Let's go back one week and show you exactly how he became the U.S. champion. Mike Atkins. In one of his last appearances, right? Yeah. Because he's gone within the next month or so, isn't he? This is so awkward to have to come into it. I don't know where this is. Dustin Rhodes was very upset when he saw the involvement of Barry Windham and he, he wanted to go console his former partner Ricky Steamboat. Well, I understand he's concerned, but after all, you got to realize it's not his fault. It's something he had no control over, and he's still the champion. He didn't see what happened to Rick Steamboat, and we're just like the National Football League. We don't, we don't play a videotape replay and change a decision. Dustin Rhodes is champion, and there's no shadow on the title because it wasn't anything of his doing. So, I mean, I can understand how he feels. He wanted to give Ricky Steamboat another bout. We're going to do that. The main event tonight will be Ricky Steamboat versus Dustin Rhodes for the U.S. title. One fall or television time remaining. But we got a great series, a whole lot of new talent. Let's hook them up. All right, Bill, thanks very much. We look forward to that uh, rematch a little bit later in the program. But right now, let's go back up to our ring announcer, Tony Gillum. All right. As we hear Beanie Vegas' music. Um... That is the worst piped-in uh, crowd noise <laughs> I have ever heard. That is the worst. Yeah, WCW was worse than WWF when they did it. I mean, WWF, it never really stood out. If you listened for it, you would find it. it this is going on. You're like, okay, why are these people oh. making all of this noise? Right, look WCW at that. was always just so out of sync. Yes, look uh, at that wonderful mullet on Chad Bird there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> 
for those unaware, mullets were completely out by January 1993. <laughs> completely. Not in the oh, South, man. brother. Not in the South, John. <laughs> All right. <laughs> mullets lasted a few years into the 2000s down here, brother. And some people still wear them today. <laughs> They're still out. <laughs> yes, they are. When you get in the rural areas, sometimes you'll still see uh, some moulets out there. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's, I mean, we're at the end of Bill Watts' run here, basically. He's, he's going to be very end. Got about three I, weeks. Maybe yeah. Less. The thing about Bill Watts is, was of all the people that did the role in WCW that he was doing on camera, he was still the best. He was still really good on camera. I cannot disagree with you there. I, I can't. I totally agree with you there. He was yeah. excellent in that role as you know. I am the 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 Jack Tunney of WCW, except I'm way better. I'm the authority. You know, I am the law. And uh, yeah, he he was still great up until the end. Absolutely. All right. Well, we talked about it earlier in Smoky Mountain. So let's watch how the Rock and Roll Express was being portrayed on WCW Saturday Night here. Welcome back, everyone, to WCW Saturday Night. We've been keeping you updated on the Rock and Roll Express. As you know, they will be a part of Super Brawl 3, exclusively on pay-per-view on Sunday, February 21st. Larry, they're going to take on the Wrecking Crew, and Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson will be right here next week in person to scout their opponent, the Wrecking Crew, who we're going to see in a few moments. This is a great combination. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting matchup, too. You know, the Wrecking Crew, if they should defeat... A Rock and Roll Express, which is almost becoming a legendary team in the sport, would be a real big feather in their caps. The Rock, the Rock and Roll Express, the current Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champions, made some comments earlier this week. Here they are. You know, it's been a bumpy track for the Rock and Roll Express, but you can see we're back together and we've got the gold. You know, it seems like the more things change, the more the things stay the same. You see, I'm not the same man I used to be when I wrestled for WCW. But one thing that does remain the same, the team that we took these belts from is managed by Jimmy Cornette. And I'd like to say hi to all the nice fans out there over the Superstation that have seen us in some of our greatest victories. And that's another thing to be a pleasure, to be the first wrestling champions from another promotion to ever appear on Super Brawl pay-per-view, February the 21st, baby, because rock and roll is here to stay. Things are the same. We're still the champions, and we'll see you at Super Brawl, February the 21st. Wrestling fans, the following tag team event it is set for one fall. Uh, Detroit, Michigan, weighing in a total combined weight of 550 pounds. Rage and Fury, the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, there they are. Wrecking. Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> well, like to take a How about that? <laughs> full comes full circle. <laughs> this Mr. Tennessee. Um, and of course the wrecking crew being Mark Laurinaitis and the blade Al Green. But uh God, I just I, like I said I, you know, earlier, I remember at the time just when they started showing Smoky Mountain footage on TBS, I'm like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> and they never would see that. Another promotion on television, on the, their television. 
Yeah, it was definitely different. And I'll tell you, I have never been wrong about any more wrong about anything when I heard that Jim Cornette was going to push heavily push the Rock and Roll Express in 1992. And I'm like, you know, they're acid washed. They're finished. They, you know, they're a good in ring team, but you can't push them. And put it this way, I'd never been to East Tennessee before. I'd never been to West West Virginia before. I mean, they again, it's the place, man. It's the, yeah. the, the, the you know, where they were at, and they were still looked at as these massive stars, you know, in that part of the country. They were, and they got over like crazy, and God bless them. I mean, you know, they got another, you know, three, four years out of their career, and, you know, they, they were great. They were an excellent tag team in Smoky Mountain. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, just crazy seeing Smoky Mountain on WCW television. Mm. Yeah, it, it was. All right. Staying, we talked about him a while ago. At the time on WCW Saturday Night, they had like a segment called Up Close, where they were interview uh, wrestlers in an empty center stage theater. So let's go to Up Close with Sting. Was that your hostess? No, that's personality profile. Same thing. All right, I'm very happy to be sitting beside the man they call the franchise. Wait, Ian Riccoboni was around then? <laughs> Shane Douglas? <laughs> Look at that hair. Sting's hair is so perfect in this era. And Tony Schiavone's hair is so imperfect. My goodness, <laughs> he looks like a second grader. <laughs> Tony Schiavone has so many different hairstyles in WCW. In that era, something else. Uh, when he dyed it blonde, that was fantastic. <laughs> yes. We love you, Tony. Oh, yeah. All right, go ahead, Bix. He's in World Championship Wrestling, certainly the most dramatic figure in all of sports, former World Heavyweight Champion Sting. Sting, thanks a lot for your time. As we, as we take a look back of last year, 1992, a lot of great moments, a lot of great matches I know for you. But first of all, I want to touch on maybe a memory that's not too pleasant for you, but certainly was a big night, the Great American Bash. Pay-per-view, Sting and Big Van Vader for the WCW World Heavyweight title. You came in as World Heavyweight Champion going up against a man at 450 pounds. It was a tremendous night. Pay-per-view audience all over the world watched it. One of the best matches of 1992. As you take a look back at that night, what are some of your thoughts? If I had to say it in one word, I'd say physical. Definitely physical. 450 pounds. Van Vader, the biggest, strongest man I've ever been in the ring against. And to this day, I don't think there's anyone that has ever equaled him. Maybe nobody ever will. And I went into that match with a certain strategy. And that strategy was take this 250-pound body and uh, try and outlast him and try and get him uh, huffing and puffing at 450 pounds. And once I got him to that point, maybe take advantage of him. But, you know, in the heat of the battle, I made a mistake, maybe because I was huffing and puffing. Right. Maybe I mis mistook his wind. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's got a big back, had him up against a turnbuckle, sweaty in the heat of the battle, and I overshot him on a finished crash and literally slid off his back collided head first with the steel turnbuckle and I think that was a turning point and I think that uh, he took advantage of that he hooked me up and gave me that power bomb and, and uh, I could never describe the way that felt but I can tell you this I don't care who you are you're the six million dollar man no human being on the face of this earth is ever going to kick out of that move well he's injured uh, quite a few wrestlers with that power bomb as well now we That's take right. you to Starcade. certainly one of the biggest nights of your entire career at the beginning of Starcade on December 28th you received the Battle Bowl ring from winning Battle Bowl the year before. You went on to participate in a Lethal Lottery tag match 
You went on, of course, to participate in Battle Bowl as well, but you also had the King of Cable, first ever King of Cable Championship against the same guy, Big Van Vader. And what a tremendous night that was. I want to ask you, comparing that to the Great American Bash, did you have any different strategy? You'd already wrestled him in the Great American Bash for the world title. Had you changed your strategy in December at Starcade? No, actually no. I went in with the same exact strategy. Try to wear this guy out. And uh, basically, I think that's exactly what I did, especially at one point there where he had me locked up in the corner, and I, all I could do was put my hands up like this while he was swinging those big clubs of his back and forth, and I could hear him beating. I could hear him huffing and puffing. And I kept literally, literally asking him to come on and keep firing, and uh, he did. And, and uh, I think it worked for me because uh, that, that was a turning point. I, I felt his wind start to go, and I felt it was my time to, to make my move and pounce, and that's exactly what I did, and it paid off for me. Well, certainly it gives you a lot of momentum going into 1993. The new year is upon us, and everyone is talking about Super Brawl 3 on pay-per-view on Sunday, February 21st. And I know Super Brawl has a special meaning for you because last year you became World Heavyweight Champion of Super Brawl, and I know you'll never forget that. But, right. but let's talk about the Super Brawl that's upon us. There's been an invitation from Big Van Vader. We know it's going to be you and Vader one-on-one -on -one at Super Brawl. He has handed out an invitation for you to come to the White Castle of Fear. What do you know about the White Castle of Fear? Tony, I don't know anything about the White Castle of Fear. And I didn't know anything about spin the wheel, make the deal. I walked right down into the Devil's Den with Jake the Snake into his little world there. And I played his little game. It didn't pay off too good for Jake the Snake, though. So now the second time around, Big Van Vader, he wants to invite me to the White Castle of Fear, whatever it is. I don't care what it is. Let me tell you something, Vader. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm just glad to have the opportunity to get back in the ring with you, the world heavyweight champion. Maybe one of these days I'll regain that title again. I don't ever, ever run away from an invitation, and I don't ever, ever run away from a challenge, even if it comes from you. So I'll see you, my friend, at Super Brawl, and I'll see you at the White Castle of Fear because I like a party, and also, I never walk away from anything. Sting on WCW Up Close. Ladies and gentlemen, this match is set for one fall. There you go. I always like those segments. You've got two hours of TV to fill just on this program alone every single week and i think that's that's a good five minute segment every week absolutely i mean you don't have to have i mean that's at the place of what maybe two squash matches basically i mean so i mean it's good to have stuff like that to get the talent over in a different way yeah you know, in, a, in a different environment yeah nobody in the building they're able to you know, be kind of, you know, I won't say soft-spoken, but not to get there and yell and scream and holler and all this other stuff. But, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed always those segments like that. Absolutely. And they gave him something to talk about. He wasn't just out there to be out there. He, he, they, they had a specific purpose. I thought, I think it's an excellent segment. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing I noticed watching it, too, is, you know, Chris and I have talked about a good bit lately about how we realized Sting was a better promo or a more effective promo before he got more polished at it. That when he was all that nervous energy, it made him so endearing that it worked. I would say the exception to that is when he's just kind of being soft-spoken and being Steve. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But when he's being say. like, ah, Sting, 
his older stuff is better, I think, because he's not as polished. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember as the, you know, as 89 turned into 90, 90 turned into 91, Sting came across as a bit forced sometimes. They, yeah, that enthusiasm was not genuine, but I liked what he did there because it came across as him being a genuine guy. Yeah, absolutely. All right, the funniest thing on the TV show Saturday night was when the announcers went off on Vinnie Vegas being a lefty, and then he proceeded to do every single move in his match right-handed. <laughs> Because the whole thing they're talking about, that's the whole Jesse the Body arm wrestling thing. The Jesse the Body strongest arm uh, invitational. Yes, yes. With the improved television quality for both WF and WCW these past few weeks, the TV ratings have shown noticeable increases. They were the highest in about 10 months last weekend. The second edition of Monday Night Raw did a 2.8 rating. While WCW Saturday Night with Dustin and Steamboat and all the hot matches underneath it at 2.6. It should be noted the same week last year was also one of the highest rated weekends of the year. So the old primetime did a 3.2. Saturday night did a 2.9. So they're still behind the standards of one year ago. The other shows of the weekend weren't nearly as impressive. Dave guess if we were to draw a conclusion from this is that fans are beginning to come back to one show per week. But by and large, the secondary shows are being ignored by the fans that have come back. All America did a 1.9. And event did a 1.7. Although it went head-to-head with the San Francisco 49ers-Dallas Cowboys NFC Championship game, which did a 33 rating, the highest-rated NFC Championship game in history. Power Hour did a 1.4. Clash Replay did a 1.4, which that number surprised Dave because it aired on Saturday night. It was heavily plugged by a Saturday show that had a good rating, and word of mouth should have helped the show since it was better than most of late. And WF Mania in its second week did a .9. Yeah, that... Cowboys 49ers that's the first NFC championship game they had in the 90s and uh yeah that was a big event because the Cowboys hadn't been in that environment in a decade and they're going against you know the 49ers which at this point in time is Steve Young's team and uh yeah you had you had all the great stories in in that game so yeah it was going to be extremely tough for any show to compete against them head-to-head John no, I mean they're the Dallas Cowboys are called America's team for a reason. I mean, you know, they're and they're finally back in the big time with Jimmy Johnson. So yeah, that's that's tough to go up against. Absolutely. Strong rating there in nineteen ninety three. All right, well, paid attendance in terms of numbers was up this past week. A few things need to be taken into account. The Anderson South Carolina show on January nineteenth saw all seats at four dollars and fifty cents. St. Louis on the twenty second died. Billy on the 23rd had $1 kid ticket price, although the house was roughly the same as Christmas week weekend. And Baltimore had a $2 kid price. So even though they had 4000 paid, which was one of the largest paid crowds of last year, of the last year, the gate was only $23,000, which is below par for what WCW had been WCW's hottest city. Well, let's look at some results and attendances on these shows, and it's not good. Altoona, Pennsylvania, at the Chaffa Mosque on January 18th, in front of 1,000 fans. Johnny Bad over Sky Flamingo, Dud. Aaron Watts over Barbarian, one star. Two Cold Scorpio over Chris Benoit. Well, went to a 20 minute draw, excuse me, with Chris Benoit. Four stars. Barry Wyndham over Dustin Rhodes, two stars. Sting over Cat, that's two stars. Vader retained WCW over Ron Simmons, four stars. And then Steve Oten and Shane Douglas over the, uh, future Hollywood Blondes, Brian Pillman and Steve Austin by DQ, four stars. 
Okay, so a show with a thousand people in Altoona, Pennsylvania gets three four-star matches. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) It's all in the eye of the beholder there, John. (laughs) I I have encountered people who made up their minds about how good a match was before the match even started based on the reputation of the guy. That happens today. That's what we have going on here. That still happens today. Yeah, it (laughs) sure does. Absolutely. It happens today. Uh, St. Louis on the 22nd drew 550 fans. Where? It had to be the kill. <clears throat> Five hundred and fifty fans. How many, Bad, how many what does the Jafamas hold in Altoona? Uh more than a thousand fans, I tell you that. Uh Jimmy Better, Sky Flamingo, Eric Watts over Crispin Watt, Scorp over Barbarian, Winham over Dustin, Sting over Vader in a non title match, and then Steve Oat and Douglas over Pillman and Austin in the main event. And then Philly on the twenty third, two thousand. Wrecking Crew over the Dream Team. Huh? <laughs> then you got Barbarian over Jimmy Bad, Chris Moore over Scorpio, Dustin Rose over Ben Wyndham, No DQ, Steamboat Douglas over Pillman and Austin, and then Sting a Cactus won a street fight over Vader and Paul Orndorff. Dream Team was Dino Hernandez and Mark Von Erich. <laughs> 2000's got to be very disappointing, even though they had peaked. I mean, Philly was a big time, you know, NWA slash WCW city. Yeah, we talked about that last week where uh, they were head to head, you know, in 1987 during our week. And I mean, WF was at Spectrum, Crockett was at Civic Center, and they both drew, you know, really good, you know, considering they were going head to head, drew really good attendances against each other. Yeah, I, I mean, I went to the Civic Center early 89, and they, they drew like 1,300. I was stunned, but it goes to show you, you know, where the promotion was, but then I went uh, again in the summer, and the place was full. Oh, uh, well, yeah, absolutely. All right, Worldwide taped on the 19th in Anderson, South Carolina, which saw Curtis Thompson return under his real name, Sansa Gimmick, as a heel. No more Firebreaker Chip. Oh, I have no memory obviously. of this happening. Well, it really, I mean, it was just... TV squashes, basically. Hmm. Tom Zink and Johnny Gunn are basically being squashed out on television now. Did you purposely put the Curtis Thompson, Tom Zink, and Johnny Gunn stories together? <laughs> no, it's how it went. How it was went in order. Oh, and it's okay. and it's noted. And, it, and it's speaking of those two, the lack of communication or short term planning is unbelievable. As they spend all this money to do well produced music videos on people like Zink, Gunn, and Scorpio, and then use them to put people over on television. Oh, we're throwing Scorpio in with the YouTube favorite Tiny Vance. Pants Brigade, huh? Well, because Scorpio had Scorpio had that video at the January Clash. No, I'm kidding about this all being in a row, but yes. And, and then Zink and Gunn had that video on the November Clash. And yes. yes. <laughs> to the uh, Turner version of uh, Legs by ZZ Top. That was bad. <laughs> that was bad. I mean, you know, I remember seeing that in, I think it was 92. 92. And just being like, this is evidence that Bill Watts, you know, time has passed him by. Yeah, this is him doing his, like, Fantastics, you know, Rock and Roll Express-type videos for Zinc and Gun, and it just fell flat. It, it wow. really did. You know, pop culture changes, and I get that. I am older. I am no longer in touch with pop culture. But I was in 1992, and I was just like, you know, this is mid-'80s. People are laughing at this. It didn't work because Tom Zink had been there three years already. You know, mm-hmm. and what are you going to do to heat him up? You're not. You're just not. I could you're admit give Make me the booker. I, w- I will make you a million dollars with Tom Zink. Tom Zink was hilarious off-camera. 
just let him be a heel, let him be himself, and he would have been fantastic. Well, that would that no. would have been the way. That would have been the way to turn him heel. That would have been the way to maybe do something with him. But as a babyface, being the same type of guy, you know, after three years, it yeah. just it wasn't going to work. And he showed a little of it in the build for the Pillman match the year before. Yeah, he. I mean, Zeke as a heel on camera would have been great. I mean, I liked Tom. I've been around Tom a few times, and if I were the booker, I'd be like, Tom, I want you to turn heel, and he'd be like, all right, what do you want me to do? Just be yourself, Tom. Exactly. And, yeah, like, he was a funny guy. He just, you know, just turned a lot of people off, and I would, I think he would have made money like that. Yeah. I'm just curious why they never did that, you know? Because they, they don't know what they're doing. That's why. And, well, this is through multiple administrations. Uh, True. You know, I mean, he went through Flair, went through Ole, went through Dusty, Bill Watts, I mean, Dusty, you know, Hurd and Dusty, all these different administrations, and it's still basically the same guy every time. So, yeah. You know why they don't they don't understand wrestling fans? They really don't. And and Watts, you would think, would, but he he missed the bulk on Zank as well. I mean, you see this guy. He's a former Mr. Minnesota bodybuilder. He's got GQ looks, and you're like, wow, yeah, everyone's going to hate him for that. Yeah. So let, let them hate him. Yeah. Exactly. Pillman and Austin was a non-title match from Steve and Douglas at the Anderson taping. Pillman lost later in 10 seconds to Bagwell when Douglas distracted him. But after the match, Austin and Pillman left Bagwell and Douglas laying. Robbie V passed his trial, and they believe he was offered a one-year deal. Rob Van Dam, and that doesn't happen. Well, he he's around. but, but he, he never signed a contract. I, I would guess that's the case. Yeah, uh, he never signed a yes. deal. Yes. Well... His tryout, I guess, was Battle of the Under... Well, no. He was... I guess it was... Yeah, I guess it was Battle of the Underdogs, right? Yeah. Which was an interesting concept from Bill Watts. Yeah. Or the Underdog Challenge, or whatever they called it. Well, Watts did that Mid-South. There were... I mean, not a challenge, right there, but there would be TV episodes, and John Cena, where, like, the last match of the show would be, like, two undercard guys against each other to fill out the, the, the show. And here's the difference with that, though. In the territory, the undercard guys generally on house shows, the prelim guys, were your TV job guys. So they had some credibility because fans who go to the arenas have seen them have actual matches. Yeah. I I think what Watts did, I I think without giving it a name like he did in Mid-South, it totally makes sense. Like, yeah, you'll have guys who are not in the top ten matched up against each other, and you have that dynamic of, okay, who's going to win? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, Bob Eaton's new contract offered him by WCW has an April 1st starting date, which is when he he comes back from Lee Smoking. Like he's saying this. By by January nineteen ninety three, he probably didn't have a lot of value. But there's there's and why everyone to hear this, there's real value in being someone who everyone likes. We like Bobby. He we can give him a role, give him a job. And Bobby was always a solid hand. You knew you were gonna get good matches out of him. You could put him against young guys and they would get get over, you know, even more. I mean, Bobby had a lot of value as a utility player. Excellent point. That's right. If people like you and if you are reliable, then chances are they're going to keep you around. I mean, there's something to be said for just locker room cohesiveness to have yes. a Bobby eaten around. 
especially Bobby Eaton specifically with his giant bag of stuff that he lended or gave away to everyone. Yeah. WCW has hired Booth Allen Management Consultants out of New York to try and figure out a way to turn around the financial fortunes of this company. Okay. This had come up previously. I don't remember what context. Our conclusion was that this was actually referring to Booth Allen Hamilton, right? I guess. Which is the... the government contractor with the security clearance that Edward Snowden worked for. I guess (laughs) they also did stuff like this. But that's weird. <laughs> right? Um, it is Booz Allen. Yeah. Um, they, they had different things. I mean, they provide uh, consulting. Uh, what is it? Consulting. In, they're consulting in management and technology. Their stated core business is to provide consulting analysis and engineering services to public and private sector organizations and nonprofits. So... And they'll also help the government spy on you. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. But, yeah, so that's them. Not Booth well, Allen, but yeah. Booth Allen. Also, Chris, remember who uh, worked for Booth Allen Hamilton before going to Turner? Was it Steve Heyer? Yep. Yeah. Steve Heyer, who may technically be the person responsible for killing WCW. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, as we figured that out later, yes. So... Being friends with uh, Brad Siegel, yeah. All right, let's close out with a bang. Pro Wrestling Torch, special Torch feature, dangerously on being fired, says he was wrongly fired and plans to sue TBS. Yes. What a shock. The (laughs) end of their relationship ends in a lawsuit with Paulie and (laughs) WCW. I I can't believe it to this day. (laughs) All right, so this is coming from... Paulie's appearance on the January 17th episode of Pro Wrestling Focus on Sports Radio 1130K Fan in Twin Cities, hosted by Torch Editor Wade Keller and co-hosted by George Shire. All right. I won't do the voice, but I want to. Can I please read the Heyman quotes, at least with the inflection? Because I feel like we really need the verve of Paul Heyman, at least. Uh, I enjoy that. Yeah, you read the intros for each of them, and then I will uh, read the quotes. I'll do it in like a question form, too. How do you believe your reputation has been affected by being fired from WCW? I think my reputation has been severely damaged. That was always the threat that's been held over my head by the entire organization that came in to replace Kip Fry. It's always said to me, you don't want this blemish on your record. Don't forget, you're a young guy. Some people would call your record into question. One more time and people are... Oh, excuse me. He's still in the quote, in the subquote. One more time, and people are going to say he's a chronic problem. That was always, not even theoretically, held over my head. The actual threat was held over my head several times. <laughs> what was your relationship with Bill Watts like? It was okay in the beginning. I was just being optimistic and unrealistic because right off the bat, I was told, "You make too much money to be a manager." <laughs> It was a source of joking at first, and I just kind of laughed it off, thinking they had a strained sense of humor, but it's okay. About a month into it, I get a phone call, and all of a sudden, it is discovered by his administration, the deal I had with Kip Fry. You're making this? Yeah, that's what it says in writing. You have this benefit? Yes, it says this in writing. I'm surprised you don't know that already. 
Well, you can't make this. Well, I already am making this. Well, we're going to have to change this. Well, April 1st, 1994, you can change anything you want. No, we're going to have to change this now. I had just signed my contract. There were other avenues that I could have gone down at the time that might not have been available after I said no. And all of a sudden I'm being told, you can't make this. I was told at one point in time directly that I did not yield to this, excuse me, that if I did not yield to this pressure, what a fucking haven line. <laughs> Other avenues, of course, and then I was told at one point in time directly that if I did not yield to this pressure, that I would find myself phased out into an insignificant, insignificant role, then off TV. And, and eventually out of WCW, which is exactly what happened. What was your emotional state after you were fired? Well, I'm not sitting here in a corner listening to Judy Garland records. <laughs> I've been going through this for six months or so, so I would have been a fool to not, not to realize when I've been told directly. First of all, I've been under investigation for five months, and it kind of gives you the hint that sooner or later someone is going to come up with an allegation, whether it was right or wrong. I was told several times, one way or another, it is going to have to come to a head sooner or later because I would not renegotiate my contract. I have no problem with a guy who wants to make pay cuts. Budget cuts are a part of business, and I was fully aware of the circumstances that if business had not completely turned around as of April 1994 that I would be taking a severe pay cut, as I'm sure everyone else would be taking. What was the most disappointing part of your stay in WCW? It's really the entire past six months that came to a head on Friday. When you look back at the situation, yeah, creatively, it's a terrible blow when you worked all this time to build something up, the Dangerous Alliance, and it's just dismantled! in front of your very eyes. But then again, the Dangerous Alliance is something we've had just six months to work on. And my career is something just as a manager I've been doing for six years. And there were a lot of years before that getting into the business. Six years of day-to-day hard work and to see it thrown on the ground and spit on. That is really the worst blow. But everything leading up to it was pretty hard to deal with as well. <laughs> all right uh what is are there anything to wcw's allegations against you nothing not <laughs> one iota not one smidgen of truth it is 100 percent false they know it's false see that's the one thing they know it's false what about your planned lawsuit against wcw I plan to clear my name in this, because I don't think I have any option but to do so. You can't have this thing hanging over your head, because it's so damaging to your professional reputation and standing. This is not something I can let float around. It's not true. There's no truth to it. Yes, that's what that's not, it's not true means. Uh, <laughs> even my, my career is not in wrestling. I cannot have something like this on my record. I'm going to have to fight it, and if that requires having to sue, then they leave me no alternative but to do that. I don't want to sue Turner Broadcasting. I was there for four years. 
I made a very good living. I don't have hard feelings about the company. I'm not some bitter ex-employee. I'm not a bitter former worker. I'm just somebody who doesn't want this on his record because it's not true. If it was true, I'd have to take it on the chin, but it's not. What are your future career options? Oh, God, I forgot about this part. The WWF right now is really the only place in the business I can work. There's so few windows of opportunity for someone in this industry to apply their trade. Right now, the only two places you can make a living in the United States are WCW or the WWF. After this, I don't know if the WWF would pick up the phone if I called right now. I don't know. I haven't attempted to yet. Obviously, that is something I am going to have to consider, and consider quickly, if I am going to move on in my career. I feel I have made the name for myself and carved out my own niche. I feel I have an audience that has gotten into the weekly antics of Paul E. Dangerously. <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, wrestling is a place where, you know, especially this era, actually this era is coming to an end where, let's face it, you're working with carnies. You're working with people who manipulate the public in order to get them to purchase wrestling tickets, and that's how they make their living. Wait, 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 what does that no have to do kidding. with Paul Heyman? <laughs> no kidding. I mean, WCW was the the subject, uh, the target of so many lawsuits like this, and, you know... I'm not even saying Paulie was wrong. I'm not saying he was right either, but I mean, I was just, you know, WCW, it was so ripe for the lawsuits of guys like Paul Heyman, uh, people like Missy Hyatt, etc. And a lot of it's because they knew that WCW would settle. But a lot of it is yeah. also that they had shit on the, maybe Paul recorded stuff. Missy, on Paul's advice, recorded stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, Missy on one of those tabloid shows crying as if her dog just got hit by a car over a picture that was hanging in someone's office. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm certain that if that picture was hanging, she had a, a case, but, you know, she knew how to put it into overdrive. Yeah. And, and, and uh, I should say for context, she later did say that her primary motive was getting her merch money and stuff and that one it would be not i'm not saying it was right but i'm saying the sexual but she said she the sexual harassment stuff got added after she told her lawyer about it but it was not her primary motive initially but i mean it's still clearly some of it happened um i mean even bishop you know even bischoff does not dispute that the photo of missy with her boob coming out of her top at starcade was up at the office right and that is you know you cannot have that in a professional environment but no. I mean, what I'm saying is Missy knew how to play it up. I saw her on, I think it was on, on an internal affair, and she just knew how to crank it up. Current affair? Current affair, yeah. A current affair, thank you. Yes, yeah. I, I think post Mori Povich by this point, though. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. it was. Um, this Heyman interview, though, I mean, it, it's it's not super Heyman-y. Um, oh, no, 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 no. We did the two parts on Paul Heyman's 1993 on the Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. The one that is just the pure undistilled Heyman is the uh, John Clark interview in the middle of the night, uh, you know, a week or two later. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a lot. Yeah. I mean, like, John explicitly wrote in the description, like, that this took place between, like, what was it, like, 2 a.m. and, like, 3.59 or something on a Wednesday yeah, morning. To a high to a high school kid. Yes. God. But, I mean, Heyman has some legit beefs about this firing. Absolutely yes. he did. Well, as we get into on the Patreon show, like, you have Meltzer. So, so for those who don't know, they claimed that, okay, so he was able to get his travel reimbursed as part of his contract. And they claimed that, I guess, with the idea, thinking he was staying with friends, that he claimed false reimbursements on days he didn't actually use the hotel, with Paul claiming that he had checked in with an alias as a, you know, television star of sorts, and that it wasn't uncommon and the thing is like you had Meltzer going to the hotel manager who backed Paul up and stuff Mm -hmm. so it seems like this may be the rare situation where Paul was actually in the right and wasn't actually grifting anyone and it's it's no secret that Bill Watts came in there in 92 and, and told guys he flat out wanted them to take reduced contracts well and Paul it wasn't just that he felt Paul was overpaid paul was an employee yeah big difference yeah, yeah. and you know you you just can't do that it, it's like Heyman was saying okay you can do anything you want after my contract expires but you're, you're fulfilling my contract and they made it clear to a bunch of people that hey you know we're going to cut into your value we, you know they had brian pillman wrestling in the opener because he wouldn't take a pay cut yeah, now, can they do that? I, I don't know. Can you be sued for that? You, you can try. That this whole deal here is one of the biggest issues that Watts had adapting from running Mid South Wrestling to being the head of a corporately owned promotion. One of many. You know you what know? the weirdest part about that is, though. What? Bill Watts was the first person to consistently give out guaranteed contracts. Yeah, but. They weren't long-term deals like this, so to speak, and it it wasn't managers that was making big, big money either. Uh, wasn't there someone that was? They got they got paid good, but well, I'm talking on the Watts in Mid South. I mean, I'm talking about the U- UWF where he started signing everyone to. to yeah, to but that's about Mid South Watts and everything. But UWF Watts, you know, a lot of that's Cam Mantel picks. Oh, because he's, he's more than he's, the booker. He's also he's the, the business. Yeah. He's the office manager. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a different world. And it's not a corporate It's not a corporate either, still. It's still UWF owned by Bill Watts with Kim Mantel running business. It's not Turner Broadcasting, you know? Mm. Big difference. I mean, yeah, yeah, Watts could do whatever he wanted in Mid-South Wrestling, and that's just not the way it was going to be at WTBS. Not to get off the subject, but Vince Russo would talk about how when he was hired as Booker in WCW in 2000, uh, he was like, he was saying, you know, yeah, I they told me specifically I get to do whatever I want. And I just laughed. I'm like, if they told you that, you are a fool to believe it. And I don't think they ever told you that. <laughs> Because even I knew better. It's it's you know that it, everything goes through multiple filters in that company. Yeah. Well, anyway, that is the end of our show this week. John, been always a pleasure to have you on. So go ahead and plug away on your podcast. Anything else you uh, 
want to talk about? Well, I, I want to thank you guys for having me on. It, it, I always have fun. I haven't done it in a while, and I, I definitely enjoyed it. If you enjoyed me on this show, God bless you. Uh, and if you want to hear more, check out the Stick to Wrestling podcast. It's on every week. Um, we we do about we usually do sixty minutes a week, but of late we've been running overtime because we've been taking a deep look into the WWF of nineteen eighty four. Uh, but we talk about other things. Uh, this week we have a show coming out featuring Bob Smith from Pro Wrestling Illustrated. He tells us um, about you know, everything about the magazines, how they go from the office to the newsstand, how you know they how how what ideas were used to come up with the stories, etc. So uh, as if you know me, you know, know I grew up on those magazines, you know, the same way I grew up on, you know, meat and potatoes. So it was a great conversation, and I hope you check it out. Now, what is that your show or um, some another one? Is it somebody? What's, who's doing the top 100 of the 70s? That is Bob's. I'm surprised you know about this. Bob Smith is planning to do a top 100 of the 70s on his podcast, and he has invited me and Steve Generelli to join him on that. And that's something I've been doing homework on over the past few days. Now, is this matches or wrestlers? Top 100 wrestlers. And okay. we are scheduled to record that a week from tomorrow. I'm not sure when it is coming out. That's an interesting thing because, you know, maybe when we've done these lists like this, you know, it's mainly 80s, 90s, you know, in that era, whatever, or all time in general. Um, I don't remember a whole lot of people doing lists of just the 70s of something and like that. So. podcast is uh, the Outdated Wrestling Hour. The Outdated hey. Wrestling Hour. Thank there you. you and yeah, I have been going on eBay and looking at the covers of old wrestling magazines. So I don't forget anyone. I've been looking at results and uh, I've got a tentative list put forward and, you know, that should be out. I, I, just, I think that's going to come out within the next couple of weeks. Is Don All Diamond right. going to make your top hundred of the same? <laughs> he, he he would have, but he came out a little. He came out a little bit too late. I think he started in 78. He just missed. He was like 101. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, Mil Mascaras uh, would be on your list. I did tierings. I did. Here's how I did it. Tier one guys who absolutely could be wrestler of the decade. Then guys who belong, who, who should be in the top five. Next tier guys who should be in the top ten. Next tier top twenty five. Next tier need to be on the list. Next tier should be on the list. Next tier could be on the list. Because, I mean, you think of 70s wrestling and, you know, quite into the magazines, you know, Mil Mascaras, Bruno, Backlund, Dusty, you know, that, that core group would just seem like to be, you know, the guys from the 70s. If you're, if you're looking from just a magazine standpoint, not to mention the NWA champions of that era. But, but yeah, it'd be definitely interesting to hear, you know, who else fleshes out you guys' list. Because there there were a lot of great wrestlers in the 70s that they didn't really work in the 80s that much that people just, you know, forget about. Like a Spiros Arion, you know. John Tolis. Like John Tolis, Victor Rivera, you know, guys Fred like Fred Blassie's that. a wrestler. Fred Blassie's a wrestler, yeah. I mean, there, there are plenty of guys that just did, didn't really work in the 80s at all or very little, but their their peak work was in the 70s. 
Yeah, and the guys, I, I didn't want to overcompensate, but I also didn't want to ignore guys whose careers were peaked or, or peaking uh, before I was a fan. So I, I didn't want to, you know, ignore guys from, you know, 1970 through 1975. Exactly, yeah. So interesting so, stuff. I'll, I'll check that one out. Yeah, I've been looking at championship histories, uh, results, all kinds of crazy stuff. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. I will I will finish with right now it is what? January eighteenth, nineteen uh, two thousand nineteen, two thousand twenty four. In my opinion, Mil Moscaros is the most underrated wrestler of all time. He's way better than people give him credit for now. That people took oh, are, have taken too much stock in what superstar Billy Graham had to say about him. Just watch his Japan matches. Thank you. Then, Perfect. <laughs> yes. Just watch him in Japan. If Jumbo, Destroyer, Billy Robinson, I mean, just watch this stuff there. The tag team with Dos Caras. These guys were like the original Midnight Express. They were tremendous. Absolutely. Yeah. All Dose, right. Well, well, Dos was probably a better pure luchador, but like. Luchador, yes. Mill was a different type of person. Mill was a, in a better, like, international style wrestler. Absolutely. He was a worldwide phenomenon. Absolutely. All right. Well, next week on Between the Sheets, a Patreon requested show by Sean Doherty, who wants us to go back to 2014, a long time ago, a land land far away. A <laughs> long boy, time ago, we used to be friends, but I and haven't what a, thought of you lately at all. What a show this is. TNA, they're on tour. Oh, of, you're of leading the, with that, huh? They're on tour to UK, so we'll uh, talk about that and running some shows there. And uh, some interesting stuff from Kurt Angle in the press over there. Uh, we have news on Jeff Jarrett and a possible uh, upstart promotion he's involved with. We have uh, some issues in Japan with guys looking at going to WWE. How timely. <laughs> As New Japan has a top foreign star and Noah has one of their top stars looking at going to WWE. So we'll talk about that. Osaka Pro Wrestling closes up shop. We'll talk about that. AAA has a couple of big TV tapings during our week. CMLL is getting their thing ready for Dos Leyendas coming up. Ring of Honor has a, uh, a show during our weekend we'll talk about. But WWE is dominant. WWE is 29 pages of notes. God the largest, largest ever for an individual section on this show because... CM Punk walks out of WWE. So we'll talk about that and all the stuff going on there featuring his interview with Ariel Hawani that took that drop before that happened. And we have the Royal Rumble. Yes, the infamous Royal Rumble won by one Dave Batista, but the fans wanted Daniel Bryan. So we'll have to talk about that, all the drama there, plus TV and everything else going on at the time. A wild and crazy show, folks, next week on Between the Sheets, 2014. So we're going from a sweet time in 1993 to 2014. Yes, so thank it should you, be Sean quite the uh, for putting up the $25 <laughs> on the Patreon, even if uh, God help us all. It could have been a whole lot worse, so I'll just say that. Yeah. I mean, the thing to remember is, like, there's a lot of mystery when Punk first leaves, like, the main coverage in the newsletters, at least, is how he had done his latest Ariel Helwani interview that weekend, and there's a lot of read between the lines going on. Yeah, all the all the, the big stuff don't come out till after our week, so you get the coverage of the immediate aftermath. I mean, of him really, out. the big stuff doesn't come out for months. Yeah. Like, so. When Mike Johnson really starts becoming uh, 
I won't say it. Uh, the guy breaking the most funk news. That's not until the spring, I think. Yeah, so. Anyway, should be quite the show next week. But anyway, John, thanks as always for being with us on the, the show. You were awesome. So thank, thank you for you. having me. Bix, thank you as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia. So mama, I'm sure all the hand and I just around. Calls her mama, I'm sure all the hand and I just around. Calls her mama, I'm sure all the hand and I just around. Patreon special edition number 87. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my ghost, David Bix and Span and Bix. If it's not noticeable right now by the tone of my voice, I am sick of the dog as we record uh, this part of the show. Yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, what we decided to do, at least for now, is that we'll get going with me taking lead and then, you know, we'll presumably get back to normal when we record the next part hopefully and you feel back to normal yeah i've had uh no sleep the past couple of days basically as we record this i've been fighting a lot of shit in my head uh i have a bad allergic uh thing to certain types of smoke and i was going down the road uh, a couple of days before we recorded this, and uh, there was a smoldering fire at this industrial park. And the smell of that certain smoke got in my throat, and 
it ruined me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm doing a little bit better than what I was. So there, there is that, but, uh, just trying to recover right now. So yes, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Dix is going to lead off. I'll chime in, you know, with whatever. So, uh, let's go ahead and get this, uh, show started as we're talking about, uh, basically, you know, the last years of Von Eric's here. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll start in 1988, and uh, the D magazine that uh, that was dated February 8, 1988, and we'll go on through to the end, basically of uh, you know, basically what carries suicide. Well, basically, what I tried to do here was, I mean, I don't know what we'll end up calling this. Maybe like the Von Erichs up close. I don't know exactly. The idea is that the bulk of what we're using here is stuff that's either the Von Erics in their own words or people that were close to them. You know, there are a little bit of exceptions, like we do have parts of the penthouse story that are much nicked, um, which we'll be talking about a little bit, you know, right up top because it's mentioned in the intro to the D Magazine article. But that's kind of the gist here. So we'll have th- those two articles. We'll have stuff from the 2005 um, Texas Monthly article that focused on Kevin and and, and Doris and Kevin's family. Um, the interview with Carrie and Rustling Flyer, which was kind of the, the, the nucleus of this, because we always wanted to do a show with that. But we couldn't really figure out when or why until, you know, the movie was coming out iron claw which probably will be out by the time you know this is posted on the patreon um then also kevin's interview with pwi in 93 that's mainly about you know carrie's suicide and the deaths in the family and all that which is a legitimate interview in that era if it was a serious topic a pwi interview can be assumed to be legitimate um you know stuff from carrie's friends and wrestling flyer when he died which I think I read on the main show, but, you know, we should have here um, stuff from Gary Hart's book. I may be leaving out like one or two things, but that's the gist. So it's it's going to be very depressing. Obviously, there's going to be a good bit of talk about suicide and in some cases, details that probably wouldn't be discussed in media coverage now, but were then. Um, But I think. The big thing I want people to come away with from this, though, and that I think we'll talk about a lot here, is just hearing it from them in the context and kind of what we'll really learn about Fritz and whatnot. I want to make sure that they're being humanized in a way that I feel like people don't hadn't historically treated them, although I feel like that's changing, especially with the movie coming out and what it seems like the the theme of the movie is. All right. Well, uh, let's get the show started now, Bix. As uh, you're going to start, you're going to take the lead here. So uh, go ahead. All right. Let's go to Carrie Von Eric's interview with Wrestling Flyer and John Clark on August the first. It's conducted by phone in July 1992, and we'll pick up after some basic introductory questions. Yes, I'll be John Clark. You'll be Carrie. And I do want to ask real quick: Have you ever actually read this before? No. You have not. Okay. I thought you might have. Okay. So this is this is new to you. Yes. 
I knew some of the other stuff was. I wasn't sure about this. Okay. Turning back the clock to around February of this year, you had disappeared from the scene for a while. Could you discuss with us what happened to you? Well, I stepped out because I went to Beatty Ford. I just got locked up on well, painkillers and drugs. Came at a time when I realized if I kept doing drugs to keep kick, on kicking ass, taking bumps in the ring, that was going to finally kill me. When you start doing drugs, you get lost in them. I wasn't doing drugs to party. I was doing drugs to keep myself going, keep myself well, keep injuries down, keep myself in the gym. I know so many people that I know are in them that are in our business. I'm one of the few, one of the very few that got help. Maybe one of a thousand of us who stopped and got help. Whenever there's a lot of injuries involved, whenever there's a lot of heartache with death and family, you try to escape a lot. You try to medicate those feelings. You just find out you're going down the one-way street. I speak a lot now all over the United States, all over the world, to kids on leadership, goals, Jesus Christ, drugs, friends, family, and everything else. But I would not know about the problems with the drugs if I didn't deal with drugs. I would not know all the problems with death if I didn't deal with death. I would not know all the problems with my family in family without dealing with family problems. Those are all a gift from God. Although they're a very misconceptualized gift, they are a gift because I did learn from them. Anything you learn from is a gift. After a motorcycle accident, that's whenever I started getting access to a lot of painkillers and stuff. This was way before then. David's death just almost killed me. Almost blew my fucking head off when David died. In fact, I would have been happy to. My brother Kevin felt the same way. My brother David was our whole world. He was one of the brothers. Then my brother Mike killed himself, and I ended my world again. Then my brother Chris, who idolized me and everything I did, he always wanted to be like me and always told me, Carrie, man, you got everything. How come? How come? Why do you have everything? I used to tell Chris, you got things that I want too, like the ability to laugh at things and your ability to draw and the ability you have with your hands and to love. Just your ability to love alone is something I value and wish I had. But he always wanted my athletic ability. But I don't care who you are, what you are, or what you think you are. The grass is always greener over someone else's fence. It's always greener somewhere else. These baseball players are making a million bucks, and I'm making a million also. We're both making a million, but then again, he's playing baseball. I wonder what baseball's like. So you want to try something else. You want to do something else. That's the way my brother Chris was to me. Really, that's the way all brothers are. I mean, I envy Kevin's, Kevin's values as far as Chris quitness in the ring, his love for children. I envy that. I envy David's ability for his love that he gave other people and his love for the state of Texas. Mike, I envied his ideas, his sense of humor, his strength, his willpower. I envied that. But it's not nothing I would take from them. But it's something that when they died, I, I took out of them and tried to put it myself. Anytime I took the world championship, my brothers were never, oh, no, Kerry got it again. They were never that way. They were on my side. They never said, hey, Kerry, slow down, back off the pace a little bit, and give Kevin and David and Mike a chance to get in the limelight. It was, hey, man, go for it. Whoever's in the press is who's doing the time. I just did a lot more at the time than they did. It's like something clicks in his head when he's talking about the real life shit to stop kayfaving. Because he, now he's talking about taking bumps and being given the world title and stuff. And it's like he's talking about wrestling as a work. But that's not the important part here. And I mean, there's a lot here. That you know, with him opening up here. I mean, one is just... And one of the reasons I find this interview fascinating is... This interview is the only glimpse we really have of... The real Carrie that the wrestlers talk about as their friend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the part where he's getting into just... 
talking about his relationship with his brothers and trying to support them and trying to, you know, I don't know if motivate is the right word, but you get what I'm saying, Chris and Mike, and to see what they had in themselves and not just try to aspire to being, you know, you know, Von Erich super athlete. Like, that's the carry we hear about. You know, that's the carry we hear about being the guy who would give you the shirt off his back. And, you know, the rest, he's, he sounds like a guy who's fresh out of rehab and is trying to stay sober. <clears throat> yeah. You know, and, you know, we'll get to this more later when we talk about, you know, him making his intentions clear about eventually killing himself. But, you know, like I said a few minutes ago with him and Mike, that there was room for people to help and intervene. The thing with Carrie, I think, is clear from this interview and some of the other stuff. Carrie was someone who made it clear he wanted to be helped and was willing to be helped. Yeah. I mean, anything jumping out at you here? I mean, he's just... You can tell it's a, it's a really, you know, it's affected him. It's really affected him, and he has insecurities. You know, he talks about what all his brothers had that he didn't have, you know? I mean, and you also, can tell, yeah, you can tell he has some issues... I mean, honestly, with being Fritz's favorite and being the one that Fritz saw as you are the Von Erich super athlete. Like, you are the successor. You are the favorite. The doing that then makes it that, you know, especially for Mike and Chris, being the ones who weren't really at, you know, as athletic, it, it makes them see themselves as lesser. But there's, I mean, that goes to that old theory about how, you know, jocks used to beat up nerds because they were jealous of the nerds being smart. I did not think of it that way, but that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, that's exactly what it sounds like in a way. That they had, they have all this great talent and athletics and stuff like that but they wish they had other things to the to you know go along with it you know what i'm saying right mike and chris's creativity yeah i mean one thing that really shines and the way carrie puts it is like ability to love which it's unclear what he means exactly whether he's talking about you know relationships or if he just needs empathy or whatever. That's bad. I think that's what he's talking that's about. A, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that it's like... <sighs> if you really put it in the context of everything we know, this one answer, and especially that section of it, it really lays bare, like, everything from the issues that Fritz's parenting caused. Yeah. Especially when it came to 
how he related to them as athletes and wrestlers. You know? Yeah. And then, of course, there's also the comment about wanting to blow his brains out. When David died, yeah. And, and that Kevin felt the same way. And I know it's a euphemism, although, and I mean, he's saying this, though, after, you know, the two first two suicides, one of which was a gunshot suicide. You know, like. But, you know, some of that's got to be as well. They're probably thinking and probably hearing that from their dad. What are we going to do now? Dave is dead. You know, it's that pressure of, yeah. you know, the act is not the same anymore because one of us is now dead. We're not going to be the same. Yeah. You know, it's that type of pressure. I think that, that Carrie probably felt, uh, Kevin, Carrie and Kevin both felt that time with David's death. It's, oh shit. I mean, how, what are we going to do now? And also, when we're talking about, like, these feelings of inadequacy that Carrie has as far as, you know, not having some of the other brothers, you know, creativity or whatever. David is of the athlete brothers, the one who was considered, like, the quote-unquote well-rounded one. He was the one with the mind for the business. He's the well, one. Well, Carrie, Carrie here now that that wasn't his thing. He didn't want to be involved in the business part. He's already talked about it. Yeah. And like, and I mean this. I don't mean this as an insult. I mean like, Carrie was a jock. He was a the, you know easygoing you know, and what that, that was his and, thing. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. And it's like, it was, no, it's not his temperament to be an office guy. You know, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be to Kevin either. Now, they were also going through a lot of personal issues and substance issues and all that during that period as well. But that was never the right place for either of those two. No. I mean, it, again, though, going back to what I said at first, like, it's interesting the way the interview just suddenly clicks for him here, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, we're not talking about WWF now. You think some of that is just him trying to be diplomatic about WWF, too? I think so. I think so. I mean, because, I, I mean, as we're about to get into, he's understandably very grateful to Vince McMahon for, you know, paying for him to go to rehab, so. Yes. To hear this entire show. Support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.